November 6th, the token's value began to fall, losing more than 80% of its worth in the span of 72 hours. Looks like we got a situation on our hands. Regulators! Mount up. It was a clear black night. He was sitting at home looking at a JPEG on his trusty iPhone. It was a rare NFT of a hipster mouse. So he did what you do. He mortgaged his house and he put in a bid. He was getting the itch. He couldn't sit there while he saw those other people get rich. But then the market crashed. The value deflated. This shouldn't be allowed. They should regulate it. He saw a JPEG. It looked in demand. So he mortgaged his house. Spent 400 grand. We need to pass new laws to prevent this fame. He wouldn't be so dumb if we regulate. Yeah. What? Um, hmm. That's not 100% what I was talking about. I mean, the first part was was okay, but it's more like it was a cool, crisp day. He was watching the game. That's when he saw a commercial with folks of acclaim. Crypto returns that'll never default. So he thought what you think. That sounds too good to be false. Mortgaged his house, researched the rate, checked out the CEO. Nothing seemed out of place. But when he checked one morning, the value was gone. We should make fraud illegal. This is all just wrong. He did his research and he studied up, then bought invisible tokens. This guy just made up. It was a harsh consequence for an honest mistake his iq wouldn't be five if we regulate you know on the message boards for the nfts i'm one of the smarter people so you do the math it was a lukewarm noon he's on capitol hill because he got margin called and was facing a bill you don't understand i've lost all that i had you need to pass more laws this is terribly bad uh, excuse me thanks for letting me join but isn't part of the issue him there's a new dog coin maybe the underlying tech is one we shouldn't forestall it's possible one day shibu inu it's called if he hadn't been allowed to be a hot alert he wouldn't have the impulse control of a toddler we could end human nature with the pen stroke today why do i have a feeling that they're gonna regulate you shouldn't prey on folks with financial illiteracy By the way, have you seen the state lottery? The Powerball's one billion, you better not wait He's gonna make good decisions when we regulate Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus, your host This is being brought to you live and recorded live on December 10th, 2022 The time right now, 9.33pm Pacific Standard Time We have a very big free roll tonight I urge you to get in there. You have 17 minutes left. You have to be validated. You have to already be verified. So if you're not in that position, you won't be able to get in. But if you are, you should get in now because Eric Benzamokin has done something very generous. He has decided to donate additional money to help our free roll, which you know is around $50 most weeks. And this week's going to be a lot more than $50. And tonight, he just dropped it on me that he is splashing the pot. You hear that? That's all of Eric Bensamokin's lawyer dollars falling into the free roll. $200 tonight. A $200 free roll by Eric Benzamokin. Really appreciate that. And I asked him, I said, do you want this spread out over weeks? Is this a donation for the next four free rolls or is this splashing the pot for one free roll because he told me he wants to splash the pot and his response was that's okay $200 tonight $200 is the free roll and that's a $100 first prize 50 for second 
25 for third, which is usually our first prize. This time it's third place. Fourth actually gets paid this week, $15. And for good measure, fifth place gets paid this week for $10. So you have a damn good chance of cashing because there's not a lot of people around right now at 9.35 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is after midnight on the East Coast. It's in the middle of the night in Europe. So you're going to have a very good chance of beating people tonight, at least enough to get into the top five, because we're not going to have a big field. So you want to play this. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. To understand the qualifications to win the free money, go to pokerfraudalert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase, pokerfraudalert.com slash freeroll. And you can learn about the qualifications. If you are fortunate enough to finish in the top five, I can send you the money by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by one of several cryptocurrencies, what is left of them, and other methods you might be able to think of where money is sent online. Just PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff. You know, it's Dan Druff with a space in between. Or if for whatever reason you don't want to do that, you can text me at the number I'll give in a little bit, or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. But I prefer you PM me on the forum, and I pay these out every few months, so there may be some delay but I'll try to do it sooner this time. I'll try not to make you wait a few months. But you do get paid. You always do get paid. It's just a matter of when I make the time to do it. But you will definitely get paid. It's all kept track of in the Flying Stupidity Forum of Poker Fraud Alert. So there's no pocketing of free roll money or anything like that. It's all very public of who wins, who got paid, who needs to be paid. Of course, if you don't collect your money within six months, or at least request the money, if I don't send it to you, no problem. But if you do not request it within six months, then I may or may not re-roll your money into future prize pools. I will not keep it. I will keep none of this money. It'll always be re-rolled back into some sort of free roll or contest if you don't claim it within six months. So make sure to claim any winnings within six months. Otherwise, it becomes property of Poker Fraud Alert to re-roll into other free rolls or contests. But I thank Eric. He's been so generous to the site and very, very good friend of Poker Fraud Alert. Very nice guy. And also doing good things legally to try to fight for the rights of people who need it. Poker players, small business owners, what have you, against the big companies who are taking advantage of us, of which there are many. In fact, we had a big discussion about that recently, about uh, big companies that took advantage of me when I had $10,000 stolen from my bank account. And nobody was very interested in helping me until I made a very big deal over it once I saw other victims were hit as well. But we won't go into all that right now, but we do have updates on that story. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is how that number breaks out. And you can also text that number at any time. 775-372-8355 is the number to text me. It does not have to be during the live show. It can be any time. Day or night, doesn't matter how early, how late, I will never be mad at you. I won't yell at you for waking me up. You can always text me, 775-372-8355, and I will probably respond to you. If I don't, it's probably just because I forgot and not because I'm trying to ghost you or anything. That does happen sometimes, by the way. I know some of you have texted me and I haven't answered. I do answer most of them, but there's sometimes where I will see a text because I've woken up to go to the bathroom or something, And then I'll think, oh, yeah, I should respond to that when I wake up. And then I go to sleep and I totally forget about it. So that's usually why I don't text people. That's why sometimes like someone will text me again, like years later after I never answered them. Not asking like what my answer is, but like about something else. And I'll see I never answered them like three years ago. And I'll go, oh, I'm sorry about that. You know, I I didn't 
mean to ignore you if three years ago I just forgot to answer. But usually I answer, and I'm never bothered by texts. You're even welcome to criticize things in the show you don't like. You want to give a suggestion, say, hey, such and such segment sucks or it's boring or I have no interest in this. You can give your feedback, and I will take all of this into account. You're not going to be able to boss me around and tell me what I can have on my show, but I will always take your feedback and I will combine it with other feedback. And if it seems like a number of people think the same way, then I will say, you know what? I think they're right. It is boring. We won't do this again. And I've done that before. You can also tell me if you like something, if something especially is interesting to you or was a good segment, then I'll don't do more of that because this show is for you, not for me. Anyway, 775-372-8355. You can also text me during the show, of course, and if you have any comments about things going on that I'm discussing, and I will read them and comment on them. If you call, try to do it towards the end of the topic or in between topics. This way, I don't get interrupted. And we have the Mount Charleston line, which is another line into the show. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. It's an old rotary phone from the 1970s, which sits on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin, and it forwards to me wherever I go. You cannot text the number, but you can call it. 702-430-1808 is an alternate number into the show, the Mount Charleston line. We've had that during the entire run of the show. We have the call to listen line. This is not something you can use to interact with me, but you can use it to listen to me. It is a line to just listen to the show, either the live show or the streaming reruns when we're not live. That phone number is 518-931-1189, 518-931-1189. It works from any phone in the world that can call the United States, and if you can call the U.S. for free, then it is totally free, unless you have T-Mobile, in which case they will charge you one cent a minute, which they don't give me a piece of, and I really am angry about that, because if they're going to charge you that money, I want a piece of it, but I, they won't give it to me. In fact, I wish it was just free for everybody. I don't even want a piece of it. But if they're going to take it, I'd like a piece of it. But I'm not getting a piece of it. Everybody else, though, if you can call the U.S. free, you can call this number free. I don't care how long you sit on there. Some people are worried they're going to run up my phone bill. I go, no, don't worry about that. I'm not being charged by the minute. So go ahead, use it to your heart's content. 518-931-1189. It does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It doesn't require an app. It doesn't require a computer. It does not even require internet access. And you know what? It will never buffer. It'll never freeze. No, 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 no. This will never happen because I hate buffering and freezing. And I said, if I'm going to put up something like this, it is not going to buffer. It is not going to freeze because I'm not going to build something that I hate. And if I were to build something that buffers and freezes, I would hate it. So I built it in a way that it does not ever buffer or freeze. And you can ask those who use it. It's never buffered or frozen once. It did go down a few days ago, but that wasn't under my control but it came back up on its own. It, it went down from the telephone side, not from the poker fraud alert side. But anyway, 518-931-1189. We've had over 2 million mil minutes listened to on the call to listen line. So keep on using it. There's a lot of ways to listen to the show in the archives. You probably know this because you're probably not listening live. About 95% plus of our listenership is not live. But we are on many platforms. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, which I recommend. It has clickable timestamps where you can click on a timestamp for a topic you want to hear. It'll jump right to it. It's very useful. iHeartMedia, another big app we are on. 
the Bullhorn app, which is similar to Spotify, except it also has its own call-to-listen line. If you want to listen to the archives in a call-to-listen format, you can do that, or you can just use it regularly as a podcasting app. Very cool app, the Bullhorn app. Not a very large app, but it works. The Stitcher app, we've been on there since the very beginning. And the TuneIn app, which you can also use to listen to the live show. So it's useful for that as well. And there's an MP3 file I make available every single week, you know, an old school MP3 that you can download or just click on to play. And it does not require any kind of app or external player. It'll just work with your device. That's a nice thing to play as well. Just go to the radio tab, scroll to the bottom, and you'll see all those methods. Just click on whatever you want. It'll take you to the appropriate page. Or you can just download those apps and search for Poker Fraud Alert Radio with spaces, poker, space, fraud, space, alert, space, radio. Keep in mind, we're also on Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. Say it fairly slowly so it understands. And we're also on Audible, which is owned by Amazon, but we're on there as well. There's another way you want to listen that I don't provide other than YouTube. I'm not going to do YouTube right now, but aside from YouTube, anything else that you'd like me to add, if it's possible, if it's easy, if it's not costly, I will do it. I want to make it easy for you to listen to the show. We have a chat room. You can chat during the live show. You do need a validated forum account in order to get into the chat room. It does not require Flash or any kind of external app or requirement like that. It'll work with any device. So you can go in the chat room if you're listening live and you can type things in there. I'll take a look every so often and you can chat with other people in the room during the live show. I will give you the agenda and then we shall get going. By the way, I'm aware of the fact that we have not been on for two weeks and I don't know why this keeps happening. I guess it's because I've been doing long shows and between the doing long shows and editing the long shows that I just haven't felt like I was up for doing this. So it just kind of ends up dragging. I meant to do it last night, in fact, and I just uh, didn't prepare enough. So I said, you know what, I'm going to delay it one more day. So it's tonight, exactly two weeks from the last one, and I'll try to get this done more frequently. I've had some complaints I've had a few complaints. I had complaint number one that we're not doing the show enough, and you're probably right. And complaint number two is that I've been splitting the episodes into two parts, and people don't like that. I wondered how people would react to that. Like, in a way, you have double the episodes, but it's like double the episodes, but they're shorter. Uh, people don't like that. They just want to hear the whole thing. So I'll try to avoid the two-part thing. Honestly, the reason I've been doing it is because I've done two very long shows back-to-back, and then... Like to edit that whole thing is just such a long task. So I figured I might as well get it out faster by editing part of it and then editing the other part later and releasing it later. But I know you guys don't really like that. So I will keep that feedback in mind and try to release this in one part, but uh, no promises. So if this ends up being released in two parts, don't yell at me, but I have heard you and I understand you guys don't really love the two part thing. Okay, so here's the agenda. The top story this week a female chess YouTuber named Kyu Zhu, who goes by Nemo. She's better known as Nemo. She held a contest to give away a $12,400 WPT win package. And it was a contest that was done through her YouTube channel. The reason we're talking about it was that the contest was rigged. The whole contest didn't actually matter because... 
the whole time the plan was to give the seat away to her boyfriend, who's a professional poker player who goes by Thalo, a.k.a. Alex Epstein. Uh-oh. So I'll tell you that whole story, and I'll tell you about this whole weird thing with the WPT seats that were being given away. If you've been following poker Twitter for the last few weeks, you've probably seen a number of poker influencers giving away seats. I'll explain that whole thing, and I'll give you my opinion on that whole thing, and we'll get into the whole thing. You'll understand everything about this when we're done with that segment. Then I have some updates for you. The first update story is on the big BetMGM Viejas global payments bank theft scandal, which also may or may not have to do with the DraftKings scandal where accounts were breached and money withdrawn. They may or may not be two separate scandals, but whatever. I was a victim of the BetMGM part of it. $10,000 was stolen from my bank account through BetMGM and a company called Global Payments. If you don't know about that, then go listen to my very long coverage of this two weeks ago. There's one episode dedicated to it entirely, so I'm not going to rehash that whole thing. However, I have two updates for you. Number one, several victims of the scheme are now getting obnoxious collection letters from global payments. So they got their money back, but now they're getting collections threats and they're afraid for their credit. And rightfully so. Isn't that pretty nervy to send that to the victims? You may wonder, did I get one? Well, I will tell you that when we get to that segment, and I'll tell you what I'm trying to do about it. Also, I have learned some more about the perpetrators of the fraud. I'm not going to tell you everything for reasons I can't get into, but I do know more about who did it, but I don't know exactly who did it. I'll tell you that. I don't, I don't have names, but I do know more about the people who did it, and I'll tell you what I can about that. Then a new story that does not... Ha- It's not an update, but it's a new story. Sean Deeb and Ryan LaPlante battled each other on Twitter and apparently already didn't like one another, which I wasn't aware of. And both of these guys are kind of controversial in different ways. So both of them have their detractors. Both of them have pissed people off. Uh, I actually have no problem with either of them. I understand the criticism that some have for these two guys. But that's okay. People criticize me too. There's people out there who don't like me, as you probably know. So that's okay if not everybody likes you. But these are two guys who are not universally liked, but I have no problem with either of them. And I will tell you what problem they have with each other and what they were battling about recently. Then we have an update on the FTX scandal. There's three different topics I'll talk about with that. A new controversy on Hustler Casino Live. Yeah, nothing to do with Robbie J. Lou. A new controversy. Brand new controversy, and it's not even about poker play. It's about an outfit worn on Hustler Casino Live. A woman named Sashimi, who is either married to or dating Joseph Chiang. She has something to do with Joseph Chiang. But she's an attractive young woman, Sashimi. She's Asian. And her real name is Yuki Kaeda. And she appeared to expose her bare breasts on stream. Keep in mind the word appears to have exposed her bare breasts on stream. So I'll tell you what happened there, and I'll tell you about some of the reactions and what I think of the whole thing. Another Hustler Casino story. Brian Sagbixall, remember him, the guy who stole 15K off of Robbie J. Lou's stack on the same night the Jack Forehand happened? Well, there is now a warrant out for his arrest. I'll tell you about that. Remember my story about Dodgers 
player Yasiel Puig and how he was set up by a lesbian of all people to for a sexual harassment lawsuit, and he ended up settling it, even though it was a complete setup and he didn't do anything wrong. Well, he is now being criminally charged over a completely different matter having to do with sports betting. Apparently, Yasiel Puig is a sports betting degenerate, but there's more to the story than was released a few weeks ago. So I'll tell you what's going on with Yasiel Puig. Very interesting matter, even if you're not a baseball fan. To me, it's especially interesting because I'm a Dodgers fan, and almost all of his career was on the Dodgers. Horseshoe Las Vegas. I'm not talking about the one downtown. That hasn't existed for 18 years. I'm talking about Horseshoe Las Vegas, which is going to be the new name of Bally's, and they're in the process of converting it. It's going to be very soon that the Bally's there is going to be Horseshoe. Well, the question is, will Horseshoe Las Vegas be similar to other Horseshoe properties around the country that Caesars also runs, which has some gambling aspects which are different from other Caesars properties that go along with the original Horseshoe brand, like 100 times odds on craps? Will they have it? I will tell you, and I'll give you my take on that whole thing. So those are our topics this week. If you like Calwatt, I have good news for you. Calwatt is a big UFC fan. So whenever there's a uh, UFC night, then he tends to stay up late. See, right now it's almost 1 a.m., but I believe he's still up. So he said that uh, when the fights are over, if he's still awake and still has the energy to come on, he will come on for some time. Obviously, he can't be on the whole show because it's going to get very late for him, but normally he'd be sleeping right now, but because of the UFC night, then he's awake. So I guess that's one good thing about us doing it tonight instead of last night is that we will probably get Calwatt for some time. And then uh, hopefully we pick up Trader Ruski as well when he wakes up. I have to imagine he's sleeping right now. But whenever he comes on, we'll be happy to have him as well. I always like having co-hosts. It's a lot easier. And I like talking to people. I know I'm talking to you guys, but I also like having conversations. It's a better show when I can converse with people. So, all right, let's get going here. The free roll has already closed late registration. So if you're in, you're in. And if you're not, you're not. And I have to imagine it's not a huge field. And I do, again, want to thank Eric Benzamokin for the money he gave for this free roll. If I had known earlier, I would have really pumped this up in as far as promotion. But uh, it's just one of these things he just dropped on us. And very happy to have it, though. Very nice of him to do. And yeah, I see we have uh, a little more than usual we usually get fewer than this on one of these shows that's kind of announced last minute. So I think some people were attracted to the money. But yeah, you all have a pretty good shot at finishing fifth place. So enjoy. I, I will answer one person in the chat, and that is Long here 5150 He said, let's go. What happened to the PFA hats? I keep getting that question. What happened to the Poker Fraud Alert hats? Well, I hate to tell you guys, if you're not aware of the Poker Fraud Alert hats, uh, you must have not been listening because... We had the Poker Fraudler hats, and we gave them all away. Pay more attention next time. No, I'm just kidding. We did give them all away, but that was back in 2013. The new hats have not been made yet. The new hats uh, will be made when, I don't know, but I'm going to get back on that. And we'll do it in plenty of time before next year's World Series. So hopefully I can see some of you guys at the World Series wearing the hats. And by the way, I have a friend in Vegas who's not even uh, 
a poker player. I mean, they, they they recreational they recreationally play, but they don't uh, like play regularly. And they're like, wow, you know, your people are around Vegas. You know, I saw a poker front alert hat at the at the next table over, and then I saw another person wearing the next day. So we didn't have that many people out there wearing poker front alert hats because these were ones that got it like nine years ago. But it was funny that we had enough of them to where someone outside of this whole thing commented to me that they were impressed that they saw people at the tables in Vegas wearing it during the World Series. So hopefully we can have more of that, more of a PFA representation. Of course, the hats are free, and I'll go into the whole qualification requirements when we are ready to distribute them. But don't worry, they haven't been sent, they haven't even been made. So if you see me wearing one, that's an old hat. I actually kept a few around, so... You know, in case I lose them or they get old, or they beat up or dirty, then I can just wear a new one. So that's why the one I wear these days looks fairly new, but it's actually one that was just sitting in plastic. Oh, wow. Look at this. Look at this. Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Jeff? I thought that you would be asleep. I thought it was going to be Calwatt coming on, and you'd be coming on like 3 a.m. Well, that both may be true, because I don't have too much uh, left in the tank. Oh, okay. But, um... Okay. But I did find I did run into my own hat, my uh, old hat, when I was straightening out the office. So, well, when was heard this? You talking about it? And, no, in the last week. Okay. You know, I got one of the black ones. Yeah, I've actually got to get so. with you and and talk about like us getting going with this again. And uh, Trader Ruski was the one who's kind of helping me organize this nine years ago. And I decided, you know, let's just go back to the same people. I was happy that, with them last time, and uh, let's do it again. So I, I know we just we kind of started and stopped and. So I, I want to start this up again, and I will buy them, and I will uh, ship them out to you guys out of my own uh, Jew wallet. And it's, it's just a show of appreciation to the people who have listened or contributed in some way, posted on the forum, whatever it is. Anyone who I feel is uh, a loyal follower or contributor to Poker Fraud Alert, uh, I want to get a hat over to. We're going to get to that uh, in not too long. Anyway, Trader Risky, you're right here on time for the first topic, which I was just about to talk about. So there's a female YouTuber named Kyu Zhu, but she's better known as Nemo. Most people don't know her under her real name, which is spelled Q-I-Y-U and last name Z-H-O-U. I have to imagine she's of Chinese descent. She goes by Nemo. She is a young female chess player. And she is very attractive. I'll give her that. And that's probably why she has that following she does on YouTube. She has about 90,000 subscribers. And, you know, that's the way you can become popular. There's a number of ways you can be popular, but it's a lot easier for someone who looks like Nemo to get a lot of followers on YouTube than someone who looks like me. People are not going to watch a YouTube I put up to look at me. They don't want to see a 50-year-old dude. It's not very exciting. But, you know, it's a young, attractive female who also plays chess. I can understand the appeal to that, especially if you like chess anyway. So she built up a following of like 90,000 people, so good for her. I, I don't begrudge anyone who builds up a following due to their looks or gender or whatever it might be. You know, you use what you have. You, if you have something about yourself that people find appealing, definitely use it to make money or get publicity or whatever it might be. I don't resent that at all. I don't go, oh, my God, you know, how can she can get so many followers and I can't because she's a pretty girl and I'm not. I, I don't care. That's the way life is. You know, I, I don't begrudge anyone for that sort of thing. And I'm serious about that. So that part's fine. And she's done a good job with getting following for her chess YouTube channel. But the only reason I'm talking about her 
because there's a lot of pretty girls on YouTube who have a big following, and there's a number of dudes on YouTube who got a good following because of uh, running their channel in a creative way that gets people's attention. But the reason I'm talking about her is because she is in the center of a controversy, which is by now mostly over in that people aren't talking about it much anymore, moved on to the next thing. But it happened in the interim in the two weeks since we did the last show, so it's going to be the top story tonight. And it involves not only poker, but it involves a poker pro who has a World Series of Poker bracelet. And this is a young guy who goes by Thalo, T-H-A-L-L-O, and his real name is Alex Epstein. And it got a lot of people quite angry. And for some reason, it kind of got me angry, even though it did not harm me in any way. I have nothing to do with any of this other than kind of injecting myself into discussing the controversy. So if you read articles about this from Poker News or other outlets, you will see that I'm quoted there. But that's only because I run Poker Fraud Alert and I found the story to be interesting and kind of offensive in a way. So I decided to get involved with my commentary and my analysis, as I often will do. But it didn't harm me personally. It's not like what happened with the Bet MGM thing where 10K was stolen from me. So I, I had idiots out there. No, no one who really knows me, but just like fans of hers going, oh, you're just jealous that you didn't win. No, I didn't even try to win. So I'm not jealous at all. Anyway, here's what happened. She ran a contest to win a $12,400 WPT package at the win. You may have heard of this win series that is going on right now. And let me tell you guys, this is a very successful series. People love this win series. In fact, I was playing at Commerce a few days ago, and even though Commerce is in LA, people at my Commerce table were talking about the win series. People were planning upon going there and playing in it, and people had already been there and played in other events. People had friends who were playing. And it's a very, very well-liked series. It's probably the most talked-about series that I've seen in modern times aside from the World Series. And when I say modern times, I mean like the last few years. Like I, This is a very, very well-liked series with a lot of buzz that is only second to the World Series of Poker. And Matt Savage is in charge of this. I like Matt Savage. In fact, he is a listener to the show. Matt Savage, who actually is funny because I thought Matt Savage was a listener to the show because I knew he was aware of it. I had assumed he listened to the show. And whenever I saw him when I would play tournaments that he would be organizing, he was very nice to me and he was very friendly to me. And, and he told me that he even once offered I could do a poker fraud alert show from the tournament. And not this tournament, the win, but in a previous tournament that he was running. So I assumed he was at least an occasional listener. Well, it turned out I was wrong. He was just aware of the show, because he, but he hadn't listened. But something brought him to the show, I don't know when, a few months ago, something brought him to listen, and he really liked it. So now he's a regular listener to the show. So I'm very happy to have Matt Savage as the listener to the show. I'm glad he enjoys it. I liked him before that, and I think he does a, a great job running these tournaments, even when there's some decisions that, you know, as far as the formats like the quantum format we can buy it today too like i'm not a fan of that stuff but as far as the running of the tournament overall uh he's done a great job and that's why he's nominated for the poker hall of fame and i i think he's going to get in one of these years because he is a renowned poker tournament director and, and everybody knows that except for alan kessler who doesn't like him for some reason but <laughs> i like matt savage and obviously he did a great job with this event because it's got a lot of buzz and a lot of people like it but with that said, there was a weird element to it 
that I haven't seen before. And I don't even think Matt Savage was the one behind this. Maybe he was, but I don't think it was him. I think it was the WPT itself. This involved giving away WPT seats, and it was some full package also. It wasn't even just like a 10K seat to the main event. It was a package worth $12,000 or $12,400, where you also get some expenses paid along with the 10K seat. So it was a 12.4K WBT package, and they gave out a ton of these. But they gave it out in kind of a unique way that I haven't seen before. And on the surface, this seems like a really good idea and very creative, and it helped create some of the buzz for the WBT win this year. So in that way, it was successful and a good idea. I just don't think the execution was good. And then that led indirectly to this scandal. Even though I can't directly blame the WBT for what happened here, the way they allowed these to be given away made it likely that one of these would eventually happen. So let me explain the whole thing. The WBT has an online poker site called WBT Global. Now, Trader Risky, I bet you have not heard of WBT Global. Is that correct? I have not. I hadn't either. And that's because you and I can't play on it. This is not something open to Americans. This is open to a lot of other countries in the world, including Canada. But there's others excluded. It's not just the U.S. But most of the world can play it. But we can't. So they are not licensed to operate anywhere in the U.S. So for that reason, you and I haven't heard of it. And it's fairly new. And they were trying to promote it. So what they were doing was running these satellites on WPT Global to give away these packages worth $12,400. And anyone who could play on there could register for these satellites. And I'm not sure if they were always sit-and-goes or they may have just been uh, small multi-table satellites with not a lot of entries. I know they were super satellites, or at least I think they were. Whatever. I, I don't quite know the format, so I won't claim to know for sure. But what I do know for sure is that these were small fields and that people could buy into them, but they also would have a very big overlay, meaning that the number of seats they were guaranteeing to give away was usually more than the total prize pool or otherwise of people entering, because whatever they paid to enter, multiply that by a number of entrants, and they were giving away more than that. So this is really a loss leader to get people excited about, number one, the WPT win, and number two, WPT Global, for those that can play on it. The influencers came in this way. So they contacted a number of people they thought were influencers in poker that could promote WPT Global and the WPT at the win, and they gave them free entries into these satellites. Now, you might say, wait a minute, the influencers must have to be outside the U.S. or they couldn't play. Well, that's incorrect. They actually could play because the law in the U.S. is that gambling is considered gambling if there are three elements to it. There is chance, meaning that there is some sort of luck involved, which, of course, there definitely is in poker. There is prize, meaning you would win something of value if you win. Definitely, that's true here, too. And then there is consideration, which is you lose something if you don't win. Well, the third part isn't true if they give the seats away for free, where it's a free roll. It's the same reason the Poker Fraud Alert Radio free roll is not illegal gambling, because you can't lose. The worst you can do is break even because you don't pay to enter. You can win a prize, and there is luck involved, so there's chance and there's prize, but there's no consideration. So that's the reason that's not illegal. That's the reason I'll be happy to tell 
federal authorities that we run this free roll because there's nothing illegal about running a free roll where you can't lose anything. So same here. Even though they were playing in a competition where others did put up money, as long as the Americans didn't put up money, then it was legal, which I've never seen before, but I, I guess it makes sense. So they gave free seats to these influencers, and they said, you can play to your heart's content. And I don't know how many seats they gave them, but I know a lot of them played a ton of these satellites, so it wasn't like they just got one seat. They got a lot of chances to do this. So they were, maybe they could enter at will. I don't even know if they had to be given tickets or if they just got to enter as many times as they want for free. But whatever it was, they didn't have to pay anything to enter. However, if they won one of these packages and these satellites, they couldn't use them themselves, nor could they give them away to people that they preferred. So you can't just win and say, okay, I'm going to give this to my wife. I'm going to give this to my husband. I'm going to give this to my dad. I'm going to give it to my best friend. You can't do that. They said, whatever you win, you have to give away, and you have to give away through some sort of public-facing contest. We're not going to tell you what type of contest. You can make it up yourself, and it can be any format you like, but it has to be given away in some sort of contest format. You can't just hand it over to someone that you prefer to have it, and you can't use it yourself. These were the requirements. So what do the influencers get out of it? Well, they get a lot of engagement because they're giving away something valuable that they got for free. Yeah, they had to play these satellites to win it, but these satellites didn't run for very long. And some of them... Some people won a number of them, like Amanda Botfeld, who I I just got to know, by the way. I've I've talked about her occasionally, and I've seen her on social media, but I've never met her, and I didn't know that much about her. But I talked to her some about this. She's not involved in this scandal in any way, but she was one of the influencers who had seats to give away, and she had the most to give away. She gave away eight seats. She won eight seats playing these satellites. I think she won the most, but... A number of people won multiple seats, and she ran some very creative and interesting contests that were kind of based upon merit and who she felt uh, had the best story to win them. She she ran some good contests to get this, and I think she did everything right, and and, uh, I have no problem with the way she gave it away. But there's uh, some people who ran these contests in a questionable fashion, so to speak, and you can see how this would happen, right? So let's say, just let's just say hypothetically, let's forget about Nemo, forget about anyone specifically, but let's just say a poker influencer is given these free seats to play for, and they win some of them. Let's say they win two. And they've got some friends who are kind of in a bind. They don't have any money. They may have trouble paying rent next month. They'd love to play poker, but have no bankroll. Maybe they have one or more kids, and you think about these friends of yours, and you go, you know what? This would be a great opportunity to give to one of my friends, a really nice guy, a really nice girl, and they totally deserve this. Let's give them another chance to get back on their feet. I'd love to give this to them. But you got that pesky requirement where you have to hold a contest for it. But there's no actual rule as far as the way that the contest has to run. Wouldn't it be pretty tempting to rig the contest, you can't directly give it to your friend, but what if you just make a contest where your friend is just about assured to win? Because it doesn't have to be a contest based upon chance. It can be a contest based on anything. Like You can say, write an essay about why you love poker, and I'll pick my favorite one. 
Nobody did that, but that, that could be a contest which would be valid under these rules. So, of course, it's very subjective. You could just say, okay, well, everybody write an essay why you love poker, and then you know in advance you're going to pick your best friend. So that's why this was ill-conceived. I like the whole thing with giving away these seats. I like everything about this except how the influencers were given the opportunity to make up their own rules because it's too ripe for abuse. There will be some people like Amanda Botfeld who don't abuse it and who give away the contest, give away these seats in a very uh, honest and creative fashion. But then there's others who are going to be really, really tempted to give them away to preferred people. And not even like because they're scammers or thieves, but just because like they know they have something to give away. They know people personally that are good people that just happen to be broke that could really, really use this. They really want to give these people a shot because this is a big event. There's a big field. It's a 10K buy-in. If you even cash in that, you've got five figures. And if you run deep, you can get six or seven figures. So this is a big deal. It's a big deal to have that seat. Yeah, it's not guaranteed you're going to win anything. There's a good chance you're not going to cash. But if you do, that could really get you back on your feet. So you can see how tempting it is, especially if you know good people that are just struggling financially these days. So this how people can justify it. It's not like a scam or, or stealing. They see it as, hey, I, I have to give this away, so why can't I just give this away to someone who I think really needs it, who's really close to me? So that's the problem with this. There, there had to be stricter rules on how these would be given away or bad things would happen. And what do you know? At least one bad thing happened. We don't know about more than one, but let me tell you from examining these giveaways, I'm not going to name any other names because the other ones I would say range between questionable to completely fine, but there's a big range there. But there was one that stuck out like a sore thumb because it was done stupidly that was more than questionable. It was just an outright rigging and it was very obnoxious. And that's what we're going to talk about with Nemo. So let's get back to her. So remember, she has a YouTube channel. And remember, she's much better known in the chess world than the poker world. If you go to YouTube and if you enter Nemo Chess, then you will find her channel. It is listed as AKA Nemsko, AKA N-E-M-S-K-O. I don't even know what that means. But you could just enter Nemo Chess. Yeah, that's that's the beginning of it, but... Yeah, like, listen to this. This is the intro video that plays as soon as you go to the channel where she talks about a chess match with YouTube superstar Mr. Beast, who, by the way, plays poker occasionally. Hey, guys. Today, I'm going to be playing a game of chess against Mr. Beast. But because he's not that great at chess, I'm going to be playing with only pawns. Yeah, so... I'm not going to play that video to you guys, but you get the point that she actually got Mr. Beast, who's probably the biggest YouTube star right now, period. Like, he's huge. But Mr. Beast played a chess match with her where she only used pawns and he got the full chess board to use, the full range of chess pieces to use against her. And she beat him anyway because he was a novice to chess and she's a very good chess player. So that's her video that comes up when you go to her channel automatically. But she's done a lot of videos, and as I said, she has nearly 90,000 subscribers, 88,000-something. And she releases a video usually on average of once a week or so, sometimes more, sometimes less. And the videos get anywhere between, like, 3,000 all the way up to 
300,000 views, depending on how interesting or popular they are. So it's not like a huge, huge YouTube channel, but it's a successful YouTube channel. And I would say it's probably growing. It's probably uh, getting more people's attention as time is passing. I think the only thing holding it back is there's only a limited audience for chess, even if it's a hot chick playing chess. There's still like only so many people that want to see chess YouTube channels. So I think that might be holding her back from being huge. But still, she found a niche. She's a pretty girl who's good at chess and does YouTube videos and yeah, has worked at least to some degree. So using her channel, she held a contest, which is completely fine. I don't mind that part of it. So here's what she wrote. And remember, she has to give away this seat. She won a single seat in one of these satellites that she got entries for free. So she wrote this on November 30th. Giving away my WPT Global 12K package today. A code phrase will be hidden in my next YouTube video that drops sometime in the next 12 hours. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and use the code phrase in a sentence in the video comments to be eligible to win. The first 10 are eligible. My editor will release the video anytime from now until midnight Pacific Standard Time. This is on November 30th. Even I won't know when. Only the first 10 comments using the quote code phrase will be eligible, so turn on notifications. I will pick a winner from comment creativity and ability to use the seat. Good luck. Okay, so from what we can see here, from what she announced on November 30th, that she was holding a same-day contest. And that at some time in the next 11 or so hours, between 12.42 p.m. when she posted this and midnight that same day, that her video would just drop, and even she wouldn't have control of when the video would drop, that she gave it to her editor to just put up the video when they feel like putting it up, and that when people find it, that they need to watch it, and somewhere in the video she's going to give you a code phrase, and then you have to repeat the code phrase in the comments of her YouTube video, and the first 10 people to get the code phrase correct will be eligible to win the seat. So from those 10, then she's going to pick a winner from their creativity and, quote, ability to use the seat. I don't know exactly what that was supposed to mean, but maybe whether they can actually show up and play. Like maybe if somebody is uh, unable to pay for the travel expenses and they live 9,000 miles away, that she's not going to just hand it to them to go to waste. That I, I assume that's what she meant by that. So there's definitely a subjective portion to this that of the 10 winners, she's just going to pick the one she likes best. And that I already don't love, but whatever. You know, there's other contests like this that I'm not going to talk about. That's not my big problem. But definitely there was a competition beyond that, which is concrete, and that is you have to be one of the first 10 comments that uses the phrase that she hides in her video some way, that you're going to have to discover that phrase and then use it in a comment to make a creative response to her. So you had to be one of those 10. If you're the 11th or beyond that, then you won't even be eligible to be a finalist to win that seat. Now remember, she was not giving a time this was going to drop. She was saying it'll be in the next 11 hours or so and that her editor is going to just choose a random time to drop it. Well, Thalo, who she has never publicly revealed was her boyfriend, and this is already where we're starting to get a little bit shady, because 
not only is she not revealing for this contest that Thalo is her boyfriend, in the history of her channel and social media, she never revealed that Thalo was her boyfriend, even though they've been dating for a while. Now, why would that be? Why is it a secret that she's dating Thalo? It's not like she is uh, a lesbian and doesn't want people to know and is hiding that she has a girlfriend or hiding it from her family. This is a boyfriend. It's not like Thalo is 60 years old and she doesn't want everyone to see that she's got a, a really old boyfriend. It's not like Thalo is ugly and she doesn't want to be embarrassed that she's dating him. So, Trader Risky, can you guess why would Nemo, prior to all this, hide the fact that Thalo was her boyfriend? He's married. No, that's a good guess. No, he's not married. But uh, no, it's because she does not want to be seen as having a boyfriend. Because if you're trying to get views and clicks based upon, in large part, being an attractive young female, the dudes that want to watch you, you don't want them thinking about the fact that you have a boyfriend. Now, she's not the only one who does this. We talked about this woman named Slot Lady a while back who did the same thing. This is actually very common on YouTube where young, attractive women who have boyfriends and popular YouTube channels will often cover up that they have a boyfriend so this way it doesn't upset the potential male viewers. They want the male viewers to think, okay, maybe I have a chance with her. Maybe if I could get to know her somehow, we could date one day. Even if it's like never going to happen, they want these guys to think at least there's a chance. But if, if she's in love with some dude already, then they have no chance. So a lot of these influencers cover up the fact that they're in a relationship and she was one of them. Now you can say this is her right to do, and it is, but uh, this is just the beginning. This is already where the deception begins, and it began long before this contest even started, or before she even had the seat. So Thalo responded, as if he isn't her boyfriend, on Twitter. When's the video coming? He types in all caps. This is the only thing I have alerts on for my entire life right now, with a laughing emoji. So he's saying, come on, I want to know when it's going to drop. When can I see this video? Come on, this is the only thing I've ever turned alerts for, for YouTube. And when is it happening? It's the only thing I have. And she responds, I don't know, in all caps, at 6 p.m. No, but actually not doing it so it's more fair. Good luck. So she's telling Thalo, remember, who's not supposed to be her boyfriend, just a guy responding to her, even though it is her boyfriend. I don't know when this video is going to drop. In fact, I'm not even the one who's going to be dropping it, so this way this can be totally fair. This way it's so fair that you don't have to worry about me telling my friends when it's going to drop. You don't have to worry about me texting my buddies and saying, hey, I'm about to drop it, get in there. That I'm letting a third party drop it who's not even going to tell me. That's what she's telling Thalo. So Thalo's acting like he wants it to happen. He's so impatient. When's this going to happen? I don't know when it's going to happen. I gave this to someone else to go do, so it'll be fair. So a lot of posturing here about how fair this contest is. Anyway, the secret phrase in the video was something along the lines of, my mom is so proud. And then the contestants would have to write something in the comments about her mom being proud in a creative fashion. So if they just type back, your mom is so proud, that's probably not going to win. They have to do something a little bit creative with it. Well, I bet you're shocked, but Thalo was one of the people who was in the top 10 comments. I know you didn't expect that, right? I know you figured that this is such a fair contest, but she said she was trying to be fair. She was making sure that you knew that she was not even dropping the video herself, 
because she wanted to be that fair. She was very, very big on fairness. But boy, shock of shocks, Fallow got lucky enough to get the notification in time and watch the video in time and mention the secret phrase so he could be one of the 10 finalists. Or did he? Well, it turned out he didn't. See, Fallow actually just posted a blank comment or just some junk comment in there, then watched the video, and then edited it later to sneak in the secret phrase. (laughs) So he cheated. Now, technically, it wasn't in the official rules that you can't do that, but that goes against the entire spirit of what they were trying to do here. The whole point was you were supposed to be watching all day with your notifications on when this video is going to drop, then rush over there, watch the video, and then comment as fast as you can with a secret phrase. Not that as soon as it drops, you just comment with a junk comment so you can be one of the first ones in and then go back in and edit in the phrase later. That's really cheating. So that's what Thalo did. And there's no question he did that. In fact, he admitted to have done that. But remember, he hasn't won yet. He's just one of the 10 finalists. He hasn't won. Even though he got in in a shady fashion, he hasn't won yet. But remember, she's picking this just subjectively. Her favorite comment, her favorite submission. So he's in the top 10. I know you're absolutely going to be floored by this, but would you believe that Thalo was her favorite comment? I know, right? Like, what's the chance? What are the chances of that? Not only does he notice when the video is dropped and get his junk comment in there so he's guaranteed to be the top 10 and then inserts the right phrase later, but then he was picked as being the best comment. Nothing to do with the fact that they're dating and they're not being public about the fact they're dating, but nothing to do with that and nothing to do with the whole display they put on about how fair they wanted it to be. No, it was just a coincidence. He, he just had the best comment, guys. That's it. You believe that? Obviously not. Well, people cried foul about this, of course. I don't know how they thought this was going to work. Like, this is one of the dumbest things I've seen. This is really just so amazingly stupid. I'm just shocked they thought that this would be something they could get away with without a tremendous backlash. Here was the edited comment that eventually won the contest. Wow, should have just randomly guessed the phrase with a smiley face. A WBT seat would be the, would be almost as great as your mom. And I'll make this as easy as your mom. <laughs> I, I don't think he meant that properly. I'll make this as easy as your mom. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, maybe her mom really is easy. Maybe he's correct. I don't know. Maybe they have some sort of weird relationship going on. But I'll make this easy as your mom. If chosen, I'll donate half of anything I win to a local animal shelter or charity of your choice. I'm sure your mom would approve of saving kittens. Also, if I ever get to claim bonus credit for coaching and carrying you in chat, I'll take it for this one. LMAO. You may say coaching. What? Well, we'll get to that. So next day, December 1st. In the early afternoon, she had made her decision. Next time I do any sort of giveaway like this, I'm drawing out of a hat. After reading some of your stories, they feel so guilty for not being able to give a ticket to everyone with a crying emoji. I'm sorry I didn't have more time to organize a better structure for this one. 
So she's saying here, well, I think next time, so I don't have to make this subjective choice and make the rest of you lose, next time I'll just do a random giveaway because I feel bad not everybody can win. I feel guilty for not being able to give a ticket to everyone, she writes. Thank you to everyone who participated. I've decided to give the package to my poker coach, Fallow. <laughs> her poker coach. Not her boyfriend. Her poker coach. That's all. He's just a poker coach. Poker coach who has a long-term romantic relationship with her that she has sex with, that she's been very, very close to. They're probably in love with each other. But he's just her poker coach, guys. Just her poker coach. Like, I've been with Benjamin's mom for over 13 years. If I were to teach her poker, when I would introduce her to people, I would just describe her as my poker student. That, that would be the way I'd describe her, right? So, so he's say, she's saying that uh, Fallow is her poker coach. She wrote, qualified in fourth, meaning that he was the fourth comment. And as anyone who watches my channel knows, he's carried my poker over the last 12 months. I wouldn't have had this opportunity without him. Win it for the SPCALA, meaning that she's choosing that he gives half the winnings, if he manages the cash here, to the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in Los Angeles. So she's giving it to her poker coach for two reasons. One, because he's helped her poker game so much, and two, because he's giving this to an animal charity and she loves animals so much. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet they're playing for the animals? And hey, who could question that, right? Like, who wants to see animals abused? Who wants to see anyone be cruel to animals? Isn't that a great charity to give money to that prevents cruelty to animals? Yeah, of course you choose him. And he's her poker coach, too. He got her where she is today. If she hadn't been getting the coaching from him over the past year, she would not have been good enough to win the seat. So, yeah, of course he's going to be the winner, guys. Yeah, he's kind of her boyfriend, too. But that's not why. That's not why. Well, the big problem with this stupid scheme of theirs, number one, she's already admitting they have some kind of relationship. She's not admitting to a romantic relationship, but she's admitting to know him. She's admitting that he's been coaching her for the past year. So even if he were just the poker coach, this would be bad because she's not giving this away based upon the criteria that she claimed when she ran the contest. She's giving it away to someone that she has an existing relationship with. Now, she wasn't owning up yet to a romantic relationship, but still, this was someone she'd been working with for a year, and she's admitting to that. Second, and the bigger problem, this is actually her boyfriend, and people know it. It's not like nobody in the world knows this. She's not public on her YouTube about it, but this is well-known enough in poker. I didn't know it, because I, I don't really follow these people, but enough people knew it to where they were never going to get away with it. If this was an ultra-secret relationship that nobody knew about, maybe. But this was not ultra-secret. It just wasn't expressly public. So, of course, everyone got pissed off. I mean, this is the dumbest scheme in the history of rigged contests. Can you imagine something dumber than this? That really think you're going to pass this off like he's just the contest winner? And the, the idiot has to cheat to win, too? It's actually a rigged contest that's set up for him to win, and he still has to cheat. I mean, come on. <laughs> You might wonder, why did he have to cheat? Why did he have to put in a junk comment and edit it in later if she could have just given him the phrase in advance? Well, I think his concern was that what if people find it so quickly that he ends up not being in the top 10? 
So I think he was so obsessed with getting a comment in there that he just, even knowing the phrase, just like was just super fast with just posting any comment and then editing it in. That's what I think he did. But who knows? It doesn't matter because, as you'll hear, this definitely was 100% rigged. The YouTube comments were very angry after she announced this. A contestant who didn't win named Chris Thompson wrote, It's unbelievable that you rigged this giveaway. I did not expect you would ever do this. What was the point of the whole giveaway if the winner was known even before the start? Exactly, Chris Thompson. I agree. Just give it to your boyfriend, Thalo, and don't try to farm views and comments. Yeah, exactly. And that's what this was. Yeah, you could claim that by the WBT global rules, she couldn't just give it to Thalo. But she made this whole elaborate contest attached to her channel because she figured, well, if I have to do a phony contest, why not make it something that also promotes my channel as well? Why not get two things out of this? She got too greedy. It's one thing to run a rigged contest to your boyfriend gets the seat, but it was an elaborate contest through her YouTube channel to where a bunch of average Joes thought they could win, and it turned out they had no chance, and that's really shitty. A person who goes by Haley Hanna, who's from Vegas, her name is Vegas Hales on Twitter, V-A-G-A-S, you know, Vegas Hales, H-A-Y-L-S. She wrote that Thalo himself admitted to cheating, referring to how he posted the junk comment in order to get in the first 10, she said, uh, wow, this is really cringe. Picking your own poker coach and friend who admitted he cheated. Yikes, not a good look. And then showed a screenshot of a now-deleted tweet, even then it was deleted on December 1st, where he was responding to someone criticizing him cheating, and he actually admitted to what he did. He said, clearly it's best to post a comment immediately and edit it once you know the phrase if the rule states first 10 comments are eligible. Sorry for following the rules? He puts question mark. Wow. So, so this guy, he's admitting this is exactly what he did. He's like, hey, the rules don't say that I can't post a junk comment and edit in the phrase later. So if there's no rule against it, I'm not cheating. <laughs> hey, stupid, you know, who's the one who looks foolish now? I'm just following the rules. <laughs> Terrible. Anyway, uh, at the time, Vegas Hales didn't realize that Thala was her boyfriend. Then later she posted how that's even worse, that it was actually her boyfriend. Well, clearly, it was planned from the start to give this seat to Thalo in the first place. But she wanted the excitement, the attention, and the engagement of a public contest to help further promote her YouTube channel. Because she had this valuable thing to give away, and she didn't want to waste that opportunity. So if she, if she had to rig it for her boyfriend to give it to him, she wanted to get some engagement out of it as well. As that person said, Chris Thompson, engagement farming. The problem with some of these YouTubers who try to pull shenanigans into the poker world is they just don't understand that the poker world is a lot smarter and more in tune to scams and lies than the YouTube world. And that is because the YouTube world is a bunch of 12-year-olds. Now, yeah, you probably watch YouTube and you're not 12. And I watch YouTube and I'm not 12. But... The people who subscribe to these type of influencer channels and watch them regularly tend to be very young. And I know this because I have a son who is that age. And he doesn't follow this channel, but he follows these type of channels. So a lot of these followers are very, very young and naive. By the way, I told my son about it and immediately he's like, oh, that's such a scam. That's so rigged. So even it would have fooled him. But 
it's one thing to fool to fool a whole group of twelve year olds that follow you, and it's another thing to fool the poker world, who is constantly aware of scams and things that are not on the level, and is willing to call it out. This is a very very different community than the YouTube community. And some of these YouTube influencers don't know this, so they think they can pull something like this off and no one's going to say anything. So that was really baffling that they thought they could get away with this, especially from Thalo's point. Because Thalo, if you look him up, Alex Epstein, he has a bracelet. He won a bracelet three years ago in 10K short deck. Now, that's not a big field. It's a small field event, but still, it's a tough event, and he won a bracelet, and he is a winning high-stakes PLO player who's been in the poker world for some time. He hasn't been around as long as me because he's young, but he's still been around for several years, and he's been on social media involving poker, so he should be very aware that the community's not going to go for this, but somehow this dunce didn't think about this because all he and his girlfriend Nemo could think about was that, number one, he wanted the seat, and number two, she wanted views on her channel. And they didn't bother to stop and think, hey, this is going to look really, really bad, and people are going to cry foul. And that's exactly what happened. Now, remember, the, the WPT demanded that she give away the seat in a contest. She claimed afterwards that she had asked WPT Global if they could give away if she could give away the seat to him and they said no you have to run a contest. So maybe you agree with her that this is kind of a stupid requirement that if she won the seat that why can't she just give this away to someone that she wants to have it? And they could say back, well too bad these are the terms and we're giving it to you for free, so these are our terms and I would agree with them. But let's say you agree with her that this is kind of unfair to her and that she should be able to give it to who she wants. Even if you want to take that line, you don't hold a contest to have strangers who are fans of yours believing they can win it when it's rigged against them. You don't hold an elaborate contest and posture about how fair you're going to be and you're going to have someone else drop the video instead of you just to prove how fair it is when you've rigged it the entire way for your boyfriend to win. So if you wanted to give it away to your boyfriend and not screw people over who think they have a chance but really don't, how do you do it? Well, not that I'm advocating this, but it would be definitely better than what she did. She could have held a contest where you're only eligible if you're someone who has done a lot for her in her life. So she could say, my contest is for people who have been there for me in my life and helped me get to where I am today. So if you're one of those people, then write a short essay about how you've been there for me and how you've been an important friend or family member to me, and I'll pick my favorite one. Something along those lines. That would have been fine. They just wanted some kind of public-facing contest because WBT Global wanted the free advertising because they're giving something away that's valuable. It's worth more than 12K. So they don't want you to just give it away behind the scenes to someone that is close to you. They want you to make some sort of contest about it so everyone sees and the brand gets attention. That's why they have this requirement. So she could have done that. She could have made it a closed contest only open to people who were close to her in some way that have done something for her life, something along those lines, and then quietly told these people behind the scenes, hey, you know what? Can you just put in a fake entry? You're really not going to win. I'm giving it to my boyfriend, Thalo. And can you just do this for me, please? And I'm sure they would have obliged because as long as they know in advance they have no chance, they probably write a very short essay for her and not bitch about it. 
But to do this to strangers who follow her, who are fans of hers, who've been watching her channel for a long time, and they think now they have a chance to win something. How exciting is this? And not only do they have a chance, but it's not like one in thousands. Here, 10 finalists after get actually get named. Why would you name 10 finalists if nobody really has a chance to win except your boyfriend? Why have finalists? Why do that extra step? Why make nine other people that excited for nothing? That's the worst part to me, is the finalists. Because if there's no finalists, at least if thousands of people enter, and then you pick your boyfriend, at least then everybody can say, well, I didn't think I'm going to win anyway because it's like one thousands of entries. But when it's 10 finalists, then you have nine people thinking, okay, I've got a $1,200 equity in this whole thing, and I've got a decent shot to win. I've got a 10% chance to win a $12,400 seat. And in fact, remember, it's not a random drawing. It's based on creativity. So someone who wrote a very creative and interesting content uh, comment may go take a look at the other comments and go, oh, hey, you know, I think mine's the best. I think there's a good shot I'm going to win this. But none of them had a chance. There were 10 finalists crowned with nine of them having no chance. These other nine people, their shot to win the seat was exactly zero point zero. And that's really obnoxious. And why posture so much on social media? Oh, I'm going to have my editor drop it and not me to make it more fair. What do you mean more fair? You're rigging it for your boyfriend. So why even have that? So she was doing these things on purpose to give it an air of legitimacy when it was super rigged. And all this does is victimize people who've been following you or big fans of yours. Imagine if I had a contest here to win a seat like that. Imagine if I was giving away that seat. And then the whole time I was rigging it for someone close to me. How pissed you'd be. Imagine if I had finalists. And you had to be waiting around all day until a video dropped and all that. And you think you have a chance and you think, okay, you know, Todd is finally giving something away. He's not counting on listeners to fund the prize pool of his free roll. He's actually giving something away that was given to him by the WPT. And finally, you know, we we can win something worth five figures here. I mean, we, we give away something every week, so I shouldn't say finally. But we've never given something away worth five figures. So imagine if I'm giving that away by far the most valuable thing we've ever given away here. And imagine if we held some big contest with all these specific requirements, and then you find out that I'm giving this way to my girlfriend, and it was rigged the whole way. Wouldn't you feel like a freaking chump for ever being a fan of this show, for ever reading my forum, for ever liking me? Wouldn't you be, like, super pissed? Well, that's how people are feeling here. More amazing to me is that they thought they'd get away with this. I mean, <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still shocked by that. I mean, people do shady things all the time, but I'm just so shocked that they thought they were going to get away with this, especially Fallow, who's been in the community for years. Like, like, how do you not know the community to not realize this will be figured out? I mean, come on. Oh, my gosh. So the backlash was very swift and angry, and they knew they had to address this. Fallow tried to show up and do damage control. So I posted a response saying that this was embarrassing and that this was very bad. And Fallow actually responded to me. He said, not what happened. I'm giving back the seat regardless. Y'all can enjoy bashing me if you want a bracelet or whatever for other reasons that make it so terrible for me to accept a gift, but there was no intent to deceive anyone. Now, by the way, that was not about me winning a bracelet in the past. 
this wasn't a very clear response, but what he's trying to say is he's giving the seat back as a result of this backlash so she can reaward it to people. But that he doesn't understand why they're bashing him so much just because he has a bracelet and play high stakes. That why is it so terrible for him to accept a gift? He wasn't trying to deceive anyone. Well, yes, he was. They were holding a fake contest. How is that not deception? So I responded back saying, no problem with you accepting a gift from a friend or a girlfriend. This was falsely promoted as a contest that her fans could win. In reality, they had no chance, and it was rigged for you to get it. You don't see the issue here? And still, he pretends not to get it. And by the way, this is a smart guy, despite this really dumb mistake on his part. This is not like we're dealing with a a low IQ drooler. I mean, this is a guy who's smart enough to win in high-stakes poker. He writes, I don't think it was promoted that way. That wasn't how I saw it. But now I see that's how the vast majority did, which is why I'm out here taking the heat and will reject the seat. That, that's its BS. That he didn't see this as anything deceptive, but since everybody else is saying it, uh, okay, I, I'm giving the seat back to everybody else. So he's not even owning up to the fact that they were trying to deceive people. It's more like, you know, we weren't deceiving anyone, but because it kind of looks that way, it, it falsely looks that way. So rather than fighting with you guys about it, I'm just going to give it back, guys. I'm just giving it back. Let's forget about it. Yeah, you're giving it back because you got caught and you're looking awful. So you did get caught deceiving people and you don't want to admit it. This is one of these cases where when you get caught doing something like this, just freaking admit it. You can explain why. But admit it. If you try to lie about it and say that there was nothing wrong being done, it just gets people angrier. So I responded back. I said, it was very blatantly promoted as a contest for the general public. You and Nemo got people's hopes up when in reality they had 0.0 chance to win. That was the crappy part. Not a gigantic scandal by any means, but a very bad look. Then someone named Hate to See It responded in that same thread and said, Number one, Nemo agrees to give you her seat for, quote, coaching her through the tournament. Number two, WPT says she can't just give it away. Number three, you guys come up with a way that it's a public giveaway, but only you can win. What am I missing here? Sounds real bad now, doesn't it? And Thalo said back, only only difference is, I don't think they told her that she can't choose who to give it to, just that they wanted obligations of a giveaway filled. Wasn't meant to deceive anyone. Yes, it sounds bad knowing how all the others have been done and seeing the stories, will reject it. So, so he's still not admitting to it. That's what's so annoying here. He's still not admitting that this was deceiving everybody. It was like, yeah, she's just doing it to satisfy the obligations from WPT. We weren't deceiving anybody, but I, I see how it looks that way. So again, I'm giving it back, guys. Let's just forget this. Well, then Thalo actually was caught with something else. And by the way, this tweet is gone now. But Sean Deeb got a screenshot sent to him. I don't think he found it himself, but he got a screenshot sent to him that on November 27th, three days before the contest, Thalo was already trying to sell a seat to this event. What? What? So hang on a second. This contest is on November 30th. Somehow, Thalo knows three days in advance he's going to win. And he's trying to sell it. So Sean is asking him, why are you trying to sell the seat in advance? Did you have another seat? And at first, he tried to say he did have another seat. Then he admitted that, okay, it was this seat he was trying to sell. So that meant he was actually selling this seat before he won it. 
<laughs> Does that sound rigged? Well, his answer for that was that at the time he thought WPT was going to let her just give it to him. And then in those three days, she learned she couldn't do that. So at that point, he withdrew the seat for sale and they did it this way, which maybe is true, but obviously this was rigged for him to win. Also, when Jared Jaffe criticized him about it, he responded again now in a deleted tweet that people are upset with him for not doing the quote right thing. And he puts right thing in quotes, which again is totally not getting it. a terrible look. Instead of, sorry, guys, for not doing the right thing, it's, oh, well, I know some people are on me for not doing the, quote, right thing. What? What? So Jared responded angrily and said, start by removing the quotation marks from right, then surrender the package. I'm sure Sean Deeb and myself can find a deserving person. Should probably have your girlfriend slash student give her package to someone as well. She doesn't deserve it. I think he didn't realize there were not two packages, but... Whatever. Uh, he, he's basically s- saying to Fallow that they shouldn't choose at all who gets it at this point, that it should be given to a neutral person such as him or Sean Deeb to then come up with a fair way to give it away. Sean actually concurred and said, never thought I'd publicly agree with Jared on any topic, but here we are. So finally, Nemo spoke out. But the way she spoke out was not what people really wanted to hear. And for good reason. She initially posted a very flippant and arrogant response. She wrote, and this is deleted too, a lot of deleted tweets here, but this is what she wrote, and I got a screenshot of it. Apparently this needs to be addressed, so I'm only going to comment on it once and move on, as Twitter is already far too draining on my mental health to give all this toxicity any more energy. You like this, the toxicity? (laughs) She's, She's acting like everybody's being toxic, and she does not want to be drained any further by these toxic people complaining. Yeah, how dare they? How dare they complain about a rigged contest for her boyfriend? So toxic, guys. You're very toxic if you don't like rigged contests. Can you imagine? She doesn't want to give this any further energy. She's going to make one statement. Really, really nervy. But it goes on beyond the how dare you. How dare you? I see a lot of you talking about my choice to give something I won to someone I know and who's helped me rather than you, your friend, or the best written sob story. (laughs) Hold on here. The best written sob story? The sob story she's talking about are people writing things like, oh, I've had a really tough year. I've lost my job. This would mean so much to me. This get me back on my feet. So she's like, I don't see why you're so mad at me for giving this to someone who's done a lot for me rather than someone that is a friend of yours that that really tried to enter the contest or someone who wrote a very nice sob story about their life. So why are you so mad at me for giving something I won to someone I know and who's helped me rather than you, your friend, or the best written sob story? Wow. She asked for the sob story. She said she wants a creative response. (laughs) Come on. Yes, I chose to give the package to the person I felt was most deserving. I never would have won the package without Fallow in the first place. He's helped me on every step of my poker journey, not to mention coached me that entire tournament. Whoa! Ah, Hang on, hang on. Coached me the entire tournament? Wait a minute. That's ghosting. That's multi-account. What what the heck? Coached me that entire tournament. 
You're not supposed to get coaching during a tournament. You're supposed to play it by yourself. What if I'm playing at the World Series next year? And I go, hang on, guys, hang on. Before I decide how to act on this hand here, because I see you just check-raised me. I got to figure this out. Let me call someone who I know is a better no-limit tournament player than me and find out what he would do here. Hang on, guys. Just let me make a quick phone call. You think that would fly? Or you think they'd disqualify me? So she's admitting that Thalow helped her during the tournament. Because <laughs> she's not in the community. She doesn't realize that's not supposed to happen. But you know who does realize it? The coach, Thalow, who's been part of the community for years. So on top of all this, he goes to her to win it or maybe played it himself. And he met the qualifications for the giveaway, she writes, which also isn't true because he cheated. Apparently, that means it was rigged or a scam to some of you. I don't feel that way. I was only fortunate enough to win one giveaway, didn't have an opportunity to come up with a better way of doing it, and frankly, I'm not going to feel bad about giving it to the person I feel deserves it most. I'm sorry I couldn't do anything as cool as Joey, referring to Joey Ingram, Amanda, referring to Amanda Botfeld, or whoever else. My community aren't poker players, and I didn't have time to organize some elaborate giveaway. I work 15-hour days as it is. If anyone who's upset about this thinks they deserve it, it should be based on someone's net worth, age, or whatever personal reasons, then feel free to do your own giveaways with your own money on your own time. I won't be addressing this again. Is that a nasty response or what? She gets caught rigging a contest and is like, hey, if you don't like my rig contest, you put it on your own contest with your own money. Well, first of all, this wasn't even your money. You were given this seat at the satellite, a lot of seats, I guess, but you were given enough seats to at least win one. And then you had to give it away. And then you rigged it. So what is this crap of if anyone thinks they deserve it? I mean, someone deserves it. If you're holding a contest, if you're holding a contest, it should be fair where everyone has a chance, right? So people didn't like that. People responded very angrily, as you might guess. So what do you do when you post something like that and everyone gets even angrier that the mad response from you makes things worse? Well, you delete it. And then you post a softer response. The new response to the whole thing is still up. And she posted this on December 1st at 11 p.m. I messed up. When I won the seat, I was excited and overwhelmed. I wanted to share that with Fallow, who has invested hours and hours helping me improve my game, and I got carried away. By the way, notice she's still not saying he's her boyfriend. After all this, like, after everybody's calling her out about giving it to her boyfriend, she can't just say, I gave it to my boyfriend. He's helped me for hours and hours, blah, 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 blah. No, he's your boyfriend. If he were just your coach, you wouldn't give it to him. He's your boyfriend. Just admit it. But she so does not want to tell people this is her boyfriend because, again, she doesn't want the simps who follow her channel to see she has a boyfriend and be disappointed. So he's still just her coach, even after everyone's criticizing her over giving to her boyfriend. So Fallow has invested hours and hours helping her improve her game, and she said, I just got carried away. If I wanted to give him the seat, I should have just done so directly. But you weren't allowed to. That doesn't make any sense. I should not have run a contest for the seat and let him be eligible. It wasn't fair to everyone else who participated. That you think it was? See, but that's not admitting the truth. He wasn't just eligible and happened to win it. Let's say we had a very, very big giveaway on Poker Fraud Alert. And one of the 
prizes or the only prize was this 12K seat. And let's say I said to myself, you know what? I don't usually play in Poker Fraud Alert contests because I don't want to win a Poker Fraud Alert prize, even if it's totally fair and totally random. I just don't want to win it because it's not a good look. I'm doing this to give it away to our users, not to myself. But let's say I say, you know what? This is so valuable. I kind of want to compete too. So I play and I win through a poker tournament. So it's not rigged. The No Fraud Online Poker Room is not rigged. I promise you that. We don't control the software. We couldn't rig it if we wanted to. I guess I could super use. I proved that could be done, but I wouldn't. So let's say for sure you know I didn't rig it and I won it. That would be, be that would be a case of me being eligible, but not cheating. But still, I would argue that's not a good look. Even if you know I won it fair and square and I didn't rig it and I didn't super use anything like that, it still wouldn't be a good look for me to play in my own contest to win the seed and win it. So for her to say the problem is that he shouldn't have been eligible. No, the problem is you shouldn't have rigged it for him. That's the big problem. He also shouldn't have been eligible, but that's not the big issue here. She then finishes off by writing, I'm very sorry that I missed so badly with this. Thalo is opting out and I'm going to do a random drawing tomorrow on stream for the first 10 people who replied to the video. And then she posted a screenshot of those who qualified and wrote little numbers next to them, 1 through 11. And then he was number 8, and his was going to be disqualified, so that's why she did 11 and not 10. Now, the 8 doesn't make much sense anyway, because it was 4th, supposedly. Not that it matters what order it was, but that didn't make sense either. But anyway, she posted who the other finalists were once again in a screenshot that honestly was hard to read especially for an old guy like me because my close vision isn't what it used to be well it depends if I have my glasses on then it's not but if I take my glasses off then my close vision is uh, decent it's not as good as when I, when I was young but it was like tiny print I had like zoom way into it I'm like can you repost this please for the old people but anyway I zoomed in and I looked and it was a group of randoms that I guess she didn't know other than Thalo. The only person I know prior to this whole thing that was in there was Gags30, who's a winning player from New Jersey. But I don't think there's anything shady there. I think Gags really got it there in time. But anyway, the eventual winner in this redraw was a guy named E.C. Gab, who, by the way, was very vocal about this when initially Thalo got it, which was understandable. However, if you look at her own screenshot of this, what do you know? E.C. Gab also shows edited. Ah, So it's another cheater. It wasn't rigged. I don't think she knew E.C. Gab. But he did the same crap Thalo did, was posting a junk comment and editing, <laughs> editing it in there. Now, before she did the redraw, I responded to her and I said, what you really need to do at this point is put this in the hands of someone neutral to choose. Don't do it yourself. Because my fear was that she was going to pick someone of the remaining 10 that was not vocally criticizing her. I don't think she knew any of these 10 people, but I know she was angry at some of them because she blocked some of them. A few of those 10 people got blocked. Like a guy named uh, Christian Northrup, I know, was blocked, and he was ninth. Sophia L., I think, was blocked. I think she, she was 10th. 
I think one other got blocked too. Blocked meaning from her Twitter. So she was clearly angry enough at them to where she blocked them. So I figured, you know what? If she's doing a re-giveaway, she's probably not going to award this to someone who was vocally against her and saying bad things about her of these other finalists. Now, to be fair, E.C. Gab, as I mentioned, was a winner, and he was vocally calling this out when it happened. So my fear about that turned out to be unfounded, though I still think it would have been a much better look if she let somebody else. Didn't have to be me. I would have been totally fair about it. I would have done it randomly, and I would have shown my process and the random of, randomness of doing it. I, I don't think I have a 10-sided die anymore. I used to, you know, back in the days when I played Dungeons and Dragons occasionally in the 80s. I, I wasn't like a big D&D guy, but I played like occasionally. They had like the 10-sided die and the 20-sided die and all that, but I, I don't have that stuff anymore. But I would have come up with a way for, where the computer randomly selects it, and I would have shown that process. But anyway, I wasn't chosen. Nobody was chosen. She did it herself. I, I didn't see the stream of her doing it, and I don't think it's available to be publicly found at this point. I will say the EC Gab was pretty harsh on her, and she gave it to him anyway, so that was good. But what wasn't good is she didn't bother to look and see if the video was, if the comment was edited. So he did the same shit that Thalo did, except it wasn't rigged for him. But he still cheated by posting a junk comment and then editing in his comment that was going to qualify about her mom. So that person shouldn't have won either. I don't even know who he is. I have nothing against him personally. I'm just saying that anyone who did that, anyone who edited the comment, should not have been allowed. And of these finalists here, labeled 1 through 11, if you ignore Thalo's entry, so the other 10, his is the only one that shows edited, EC Gab. Everyone else, except EC Gab and Thalo, did not edit it, which meant they really posted the phrase on time as they were supposed to. These people all stuck to the spirit of the contest, and EC Gab and Thalo did not. Thalo was much worse, of course, because it was rigged for him, but EC Gab also cheated. So of all people to give it to. <laughs> I don't think this was on purpose on her part. I don't think she preferred EC Gab, but I think she did some kind of random selection and didn't notice. So people were pissed about that. See, even that reroll was a screw-up. Not as bad as the initial screw-up, because at least it probably wasn't malicious, but still pretty bad. Well, now there's another element to this whole thing. Someone pointed out that there were allegations on Nemo about something else that was rigged last year. So now there's other rigging allegations that are connected to her from a year ago that have nothing to do with poker. And that has to do with chess. Now, before I tell you about that, we have another individual on who might be able to help me. Calwad, are you much of a chess player? Um... I'm okay. I'm not great. Okay, I'm not very good. I, I basically have one move. I have one move that gets people who are kind of like amateurs. But other than that move, I kind of suck. Like once, if that move either fails or I do it, and I kind of don't know where to go from there. So I'm not. I'm not very good at chess. I definitely don't follow the chess world at all. Uh, how do you have one move in chess? I don't understand. Uh, okay, I'll explain it. In the mid eighties, like tip the board over or something. No, no, no that's, that's my second move, I guess. But if, if I'm okay. losing, if I'm about to lose, I guess that's my other move. But it, right. my one move I learned from a computer. I, I had a computer chess program in the mid eighties for the IBM PC. You may have had it too. I know you were uh, a computer guy in those days as well. But uh, 
it, it was very slow because, of course, it had to think and you actually had to pick the difficulty level. And the funny thing is you could set it to such a high difficulty level to where it would take like 30 years to think of each move. <laughs> I don't even know why they enabled that. Like I could still be waiting for it to make its second move right now. You know, Drop, that's a good point. You can tell people how old we are just by the fact that we used to be that you could beat the computer in chess. Yeah. Like well, there was a time that the AI was dumb enough that a reasonably good person could actually beat the computer. Yeah. Well, I actually couldn't beat it, but I, I was never that good. But I was, uh, but yes. Oh, I said a reasonably yes, good person. Yes. Uh, but you're, you're <laughs> correct that it was beatable by a human being, whereas today it's not. So anyway, yeah. in this 80s program, the computer kept pulling this one move on me that was really annoying where it would trick me into exposing my rook and then the bishop would come and pound the rook right there and it was so frustrating because like I didn't even have a way to get out of it I, I didn't have a way to even kill the bishop it wasn't even like bishop for rook because the, the, the rook is a more valuable piece than the bishop but I, I couldn't even get the bishop at that point the, they, they would like pull the move on me in a way that I couldn't even get the bishop and get away so I learned that from the computer, and so when I would play people who weren't that great at chess, but even people who were overall like a little bit better than me, I would hit them with that move, and they'd be very alarmed by it. But then the problem was from there I just wasn't very good because I didn't have anything else in my arsenal. Now, against a very good player, against even a decent player, this wouldn't work. They'd have a defense against it. But anyway, that was my one move, and I learned it from having it done on me. Which, by the way, that's how I've learned some things in poker too, where I'll be playing and someone pulls something on me, and I feel like a chump, and I go, ah, I'm going to use this next time on other people. Uh, my only real current claim to fame in chess is that I can beat my kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, the, the, the allegations involved that, and I know you're going to be shocked here because of how she ran this contest in such a fair fashion as she promised. You're going to be shocked, but would you believe that there are allegations from 2021 that she played in a rigged chess tournament so she would win. Where she went to Hungary and she beat six superior players who were rated much better than she was. So you, you have a number that is a rating for you. It's, it's called an LO system and it's, uh, um, you get a rating based upon who you're beating and who beats you. So you get more points if you beat someone who's perceived to be better than you, who has a higher rating. And if you beat someone worse than you, you really don't move up very much. So her rating was 2102 at the time, which is still pretty good. And she walloped six players, all of whom had 2300 ratings or higher. And that's a big difference, 2300 and 2100. So she went 6-0 and against them. And yet they noticed that in previous matches, she played eight against people who were around her rating, and she won zero, had five draws where they both decide that it's going to never conclude, and they both give up and call it a tie, and three losses. So out of eight tries, she didn't win one, tied five and lost three against people rated around her. But then in this tournament, somehow she was 6-0 and oh, with no draws against people rated much better than her. Is, is this it, that Nemo girl that yes, we're talking about? Yes. Yeah, in a, in a fit <laughs> just a, in a fit of honesty, like uh, I messaged you the other day and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I checked out this video from her and the, the only reason I looked at it is she looked cute. 
Yeah, right. And that's how she got 90,000 subscribers. <laughs> so, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. You know? So anyway, it was pointed out on Reddit. This was last year before this whole contest or anything. This was last year. Other chess players on Reddit were upset about this and were complaining that she basically bought the win. And that's apparently something that's common, I heard, in Eastern Europe. I didn't know about this, but apparently this is common in countries which are fairly poor but have some very good chess players where these players need the money badly enough to where if someone comes in and would like to buy a title or buy a higher rating or whatever it is, that these players for an agreed-upon fee will play and purposely play badly or resign too early or whatever it is and allow them to win. So you can just walk in and beat everybody who purposely loses to you and you get a title. It would be like me uh, playing a small event at the World Series where before the event begins, I bribe everybody to purposely lose hands against me so I win a bracelet. It's and like, you can buy anything you want in Eastern Europe, huh? Yeah, pretty much. So that apparently she doesn't just do this. If she did this, I don't know for sure. There's no way to know for sure because uh, nobody's come forward and said that they threw it for her. But it was very suspicious that these players much better than her all lost to her. And as I said, right around the same time, she played eight matches against people rated around her, and she didn't win one. She tied five and lost three, and yet she crushes six much better players in a row in that tournament in a setting in Hungary where this was known to happen, where it was known that people can buy wins over there. So I'm not an experienced enough chess player to analyze the hands. You you can go look at, not the hands, the, the matches. You, you can see a history of all of them, kind of like poker hand histories. If I were a better chess player, I could analyze these and figure out how bad they looked. But regardless, I don't even have to because all the circumstantial evidence points to her buying a win there. As I said, we don't know for sure, but it really looks like it. So... The reason I'm now, bringing where would she get the money to do such a thing? Oh, like how who much knows? Would, how much do you think that would cost? Do you think it's expensive? Or? Probably not, because this isn't yeah. Hungary, and you probably don't have to give that much. Because it's not much skin off these players' asses, because they know even if they lose to her and their rating goes down a little bit, then yeah, they can get it back up. So it's really, if they don't mind doing it from the moral standpoint, and they get money out of it, then no problem. And yeah, she said she works actually, a job. I've been to Hungary. Have you been there? No. Yeah, I had, a, I had a pretty good time there. Went to Budapest and some other place south of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I don't know. I guess you could call it like the Alabama of Europe in a way, you know? <laughs> it, you know, just in terms of things are not quite as developed, but it's not It's not a complete backwater. You know? No, but there's a lot of poor people there. and Anything yeah. in Eastern Europe. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, but, and, said, and like anywhere else, like in, in Alabama, you know, in the the bigger cities, there are more people who are better off and out in the countries where you have a lot more of the poverty. Yeah. yeah. As you said, in Eastern Europe, it's not hard to buy things. So that's... Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of guys go over there looking... The poor bastards go over there looking for wives. Right. I'm guessing from everything that was said in that Reddit thread that that was rigged. And I think maybe that could have informed her with this. Okay, you know, the, I played in rigged chess matches where I was to be the winner and... Uh, why not rig this for my boyfriend? So she wasn't familiar with the poker space. I'm not letting her off for this because she still deceived everybody. She deceived her own followers, and you don't have to know about the poker world to know that's wrong. But I'm just amazed that Fallow, an experienced 
poker player who's on social media and everything would not have understood that this would have been super transparent. So that was really, really boneheaded. She also kind of deceived people about her, the nature of her relationship with her poker coach. And yeah, yeah, we, we talked that about she that. She had a boyfriend at all, right? Yeah, yeah, we talked about that. And she's still not admitting he's her boyfriend, even after all this. She's not saying he's well, not, but she, she just won't address it. Well, that's sort of like a, a thing with, the, and I'm not saying that she's in a, a quote unquote e girl or whatever, but that is the thing with a lot of them is that they, they just don't want to ever say that they have a boyfriend because they want all their people that are following them to live with the illusion that they could, you know, potentially have her as a girlfriend. Oh, yeah. No, I, I said the exact same thing a little earlier. Yeah. yeah. We're in full agreement yeah. on that one. And yeah, yeah it, well, it's, it's a funny. thing. I mean, it's a, it's a, and I understand it. Like, I understand why they do it. If I were them, I probably would do the same thing. You know? <laughs> That's a good question. If I were in that position and I, let's say I were a pretty girl who had a lot of followers because of being a pretty girl and yeah. I had a boyfriend, would I admit I have a boyfriend or kind of cover it up? That's a good question. I can I see why it's tempting to. I would not say anything. Yeah. I, because I would, it, it would be like knowing something is bad for your brand, you know? Yeah. Uh, by the way, it it's, it's, it's so funny because Fallow kept changing his Twitter status. He protected his tweets for a while. Then he unprotected them. Then he deactivated his entire account. Then he reactivated it and, in fact, tweeted that I'm not going to stay around in this cesspool of Twitter of people trying to uh, kick me while I'm down. But uh, I'm going to leave everything up because I'm not going to cover up any history here. It's always a cesspool when people do something wrong and people well, right. call them out for it. Well, it's what's, always a cesspool. What's so funny, after all that wishy-washiness with whether it's protected or deactivated or reactivated and all that, after that whole thing, later on he quietly went back and deleted some but not all of his tweets about the matter. So how dishonest is that? Like He, he finally reactivates and says, okay, I'm going to leave this all up here. I'm just not going to participate anymore. And then like days later, he goes and removes some tweets. And you can see in the Poker Fraud Alert thread about it, there's just some tweets that don't show up. And, and some of them I saved, by the way, knowing this might happen. I should have saved them all. It's just there were so many, it, I just kind of got tired of it. But yeah, that, that's just more deception here. That you, you, He actually tweeted, I'm going to leave this up. I'm not going to protect my account anymore. I'm going to leave it activated so you can see everything. And then, and then he deletes that tweet and several others. Like the whole thing's just so dishonest. Just like Nixon, it's the cover up, right? Right. That, that's what I was saying. Yeah. That, that, that if they just came forward, let's just look at it here and say, okay, they did something really dumb. They rigged it in a really stupid way. Because I got their defenders. There weren't that many, but there were a few defenders saying, look, a lot of these looked rigged. But this was just the one done in the most blatant fashion. That's why everyone's so angry. But should we be any angrier at them just because they were dumb about it and others were smarter? And I thought, hmm, that's a good point. But then I, you know, I thought about it more. I go, wait a minute. This isn't just about the fact that it was rigged for him to win. Because as I said before, there were ways to hold some kind of closed contest where you tell everyone beforehand that's eligible that they're really not going to win, that it wouldn't be that bad. But it's the fact that they made her followers that had been following her the whole time and loyal to her, believed they had a shot at this, and actually naming finalists and really making people think they had a chance when the whole thing was rigged. That's what was really bothering me, and that's why that was so much worse than any others that may or may not have been rigged. And you I don't should, get why they even bothered. Like, <laughs> Well, they had to give it away wants, in some way. 
It, it was well, required. If she wants to give it to her boyfriend, let her just give it to this guy and don't even hold a contest. Was she going for the No, she had to hold publicity? a contest. She had to hold some kind of contest by the rules because she, she was given this uh, seat as the influencer, but she didn't have to do it this oh, way. Oh, that's different. Well, oh, she, I didn't know that. Yeah, but she, she didn't have to do it this way. She didn't have to make a, a whole YouTube contest and, and open it off to the whole public. She could just say, uh, I'm going to open this to only people who've been a big part of my life all these years. Write me a short essay about uh, why you've been there for me and then quietly tell everybody behind the scenes, hey, you really have no chance. Just please do this so I can give it to my boyfriend. Like That would have been a little bit shitty, but at least nobody comes in with false hopes. Here she really played with the minds of, of strangers and, and, and you know, making all these tweets, posturing that she's being so fair and she's letting someone else drop the video so she doesn't even know when it's dropping and, and the and the yeah. whole thing about uh, the finalists. Like, why have finalists if it's rigged? That's a key thing that I didn't understand about this whole controversy. Is, okay, so she had to run a contest. Yes. That makes it really shitty that she did it this yes. way. Yes. Absolutely. So wow. I had a number of people messaging me with allegations about other contests. Oh, you've got a expose this person and that person and like for example uh this was tweeted this person didn't message me but this person tweeted publicly named cool fool and he wrote the fix was in faded spades who's another influencer i don't really know gave it to someone who's berkey's friend whose podcast is sponsored by wpt Amanda, referring to Amanda Botfeld, gave it to a father of a poker writer who writes about WPT. He's referring to Robbie Straczynski, who's been on the show, that she did give one to Robbie Straczynski's father. Berge gave it to someone who didn't qualify and just joined Twitter. I could go on. Well, I looked into some of these because I had some people privately messaging me that some of these other contests were shady, and then I actually wasted my time looking into them, and I go, no. First of all, some of them didn't look bad at all. Like Amanda Botfeld's looked fine to me. She was just trying to give it away to people with the best story who she thought deserved it the most. And it looked like it wasn't rigged in any way. It was subjective, but it didn't look rigged. And, and I talked a good deal to Amanda. And yeah, she seems like a nice woman. She seems like she's like a very positive person who just wants to kind of be like a poker influencer who does nice things for people in the community. That's kind of her thing and it, it seemed genuine to me from from my discussions with her i don't know her really well but I, I i talked with her for a while on twitter and then uh you know berkey's i watched that whole thing people say oh look at berkey's this is so suspicious blah 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 I, I watched it and yeah someone just signed up for some program he has called the poker nerds I, I don't know much about it but someone had just signed up for that before the contest and that person won but berkey actually did a drawing through the youtube platform that he couldn't rig so i i can't see how that was rigged in any way so there's no problem with what berkey did there so like all these people want me to call out other contests which some of them i think he was just unfortunate that someone was like a johnny come lately one like in berkey's case but he did nothing wrong and in others maybe it was a little more questionable i'm not going to call them out because they weren't blatant but i didn't see anything that was worth bringing attention to because some at worst were questionable but here's the whole thing and this is where i have to criticize wpt global and some people got angry when i did this on twitter like, everybody was with me up until this final thing I'm about to talk about. 
Yeah, prior to this, when I was criticizing Nemo and Thalo, everyone's like, "Yeah, yeah, go, 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 go! You know, get him, get him, get him!" But as soon as I posted this general comment, some people got angry. Some people agreed, but some people got angry. I said that it's time to admit this WPT Global giveaway was a fail because it's a bad look for poker. We had a blatantly rigged contest, which looks really bad. And then we have a number of others that people suspect were rigged, even if they weren't. And then maybe some others that really were rigged but weren't as obvious. So the problem is, when the whole thing's said and done, people look at who won these, and they didn't win. You know, They tried to win. They spent their time trying to win. They got their hopes up. They lost. And then they look and go, you know what? I think this was fixed. And then they see the thing with Nemo, and they go, oh, yeah, of course they're all fixed. Here's one that was blatantly fixed. But I bet everybody fixed it, and just others were smarter about it. So that was the belief of a lot of the average people who followed this and entered this. And you have to understand that this is something the WBT did for good publicity. And they did something generous. I know they weren't doing it to be charitable. They were doing it to promote their brand, but that's fine. It was still generous. It was still giving average Joes a chance to go play in an event that they otherwise could never afford to play. This... uh, $10,000 WBT event with $2,400 on top of that. And that's a very nice thing to win. And these were seats being given away for free. And I think more than a half a million dollars of seats were given away out of WBT's pocket. That's great. That part's great. What's not great is that there is a perception, whether correct or not, that most of these contests were unfair and were rigged. So that doesn't help but WBT Global with the average player they're trying to market to. So if you're going to hold something like this and commit half a million dollars to giving away these seats or whatever they committed, then you have to make sure that it does not have this appearance. And to the average player, it does have this appearance. You ask the average poker fan who is observing all of this, do you think the whole thing was rigged for the most part? I hate to say it, but most of them are going to say yes. And where there is a disconnect is you have poker pros who are looking at this going, no, it's a wild success. I thought it was a great contest. And look at all the great work Amanda Botfeld did, blah, 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 blah. And I say, I don't disagree with that. But I'm talking about the perception. We have a blatantly rigged one, which only could happen because of the open-ended fashion you were allowed to run the contest in. So they thought they could get away with this and did it really stupidly. But then now you have others that people are also suspecting, whether rightfully or wrongfully. But if the perception is that the fix is in and that the average Joe doesn't really have a chance and once again the rich in poker get richer, once again the known players and semi-known players get all the spoils when they're already winning anyway, then that's a bad look. You want the average person in poker to think they at least really had a chance, that everything was honest. The reason Chris Moneymaker was such an endearing story was he was a very, very average everyman. He wasn't a poker pro. He wasn't a great player. He wasn't someone with a big bankroll. He put 40 bucks on poker stars, satellited into the main event of the World Series, and beat pros and finished in first place. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there is value in in these things when there is authenticity. And you really do feel kind of robbed when there isn't. It's the same thing with um, you know, some of these bands that you think are organic bands that started in someone's garage but they're really contrived and put together by the big record labels you know it, the the band loses a lot of that 
authenticity and cred. And it's the same with this. You know, you really want to have some kind of faith in the actual story behind it. You know? Yes, exactly. And you also don't want the incorrect appearance that it's rigged when it really wasn't. Now, this one was rigged yeah. for sure. This one 100% was rigged. But a lot of these that people are accusing of being rigged, like Berkey's, for example, I do not believe were rigged, but a lot of people believe it was rigged. And I guess that Conrad guy who's uh, one of the hosts on Berkey's show, he won a different contest. I think he, I think he won uh, the Faded Spades one. So people are, again are going, oh, yeah, Berkey's friend won it, of course. Like, like this is the problem here is you, you need to have some kind of guidelines from the WPT saying the contest must be along these lines to where you're sure it's always going to be fair because the last thing they should want is the perception that the fix has been in the whole way and the average player never had a shot. Otherwise, the the marketing value is mainly lost. So while I think this was a good idea from the standpoint of giving away seats and promoting the tour that way, and, and the whole win series is very well liked, and apparently there's even a win seniors event. And I guess it existed last year too. I didn't know about this, but there's a, a win seniors event that got very good participation. I, I would have considered going and playing that. I like these seniors events. After playing the seniors event at the World Series, I would have played another big seniors event. I mean, it would have required going all the way to Vegas again, so maybe not. But I, I would have at least been tempted. I didn't even know it existed, but maybe I'll take a shot with that next year. But it's a really well-liked event. So credit to Matt Savage for putting on a good event. And credit to the WPT for giving away all these seats pr- promotionally with the intent to give people a shot to play the main event that otherwise couldn't. I'm talking about the WPT main event at the win, not the World Series. That's, that's all great. I'm not criticizing that at all. It's, they gave the influencers too much leeway. And some of them did it right. Some of them did it questionably. And one influencer did it horribly and was obvious that they rigged it for their boyfriend. But by the way, if you're caught with this, if you're caught blatantly doing it, there's no way out. You just own up to it. There was no way Fallow or Nemo was going to convince anyone that this wasn't rigged, that this wasn't predetermined beforehand he was going to be the winner, and that nobody really had a chance except him. There's nothing he could say or she could say to convince anyone otherwise. So just start from there. Start from there saying, okay, here's the story, guys. She won it. She wanted to give it to me. You know, Fallow could be saying this. She wanted to give it to me after she won it. They wouldn't let her. So we figured, okay, we technically have to run a contest. We decided we'll just run a contest to satisfy the requirement to get it over to me. And where we made the mistake was we didn't think about how this hurts other people. And we're really sorry. We were so focused on getting the seat over to me, which she wanted to do in the first place. We were so focused on that, we forgot to think about the rest of you. And we're really, really sorry. And we shouldn't have. And this is a big mistake. And we wish... This didn't happen, and now I'm giving it back, and now we're going to let a third party who has nothing to do with us give this away fairly, and we're really sorry this will never happen again, and maybe they could even do some kind of little giveaway on their own on top of that. That would be the best way you could handle it. You don't try to lie to people. You don't try to convince them, well, I didn't know this was dishonest. No, I didn't think I was deceiving anyone, but since you think I was deceiving people, yeah, I'll give it back then. I wasn't, but since you think I was doing it, I'll, I'll just do it. I'll just give it back. No, that pisses people off because, as you said, Calwatt, the cover-up is worse than the crime. The, and then her initial arrogant response where she talked down to everybody, that was even worse. Very poorly handled during and after 
whole thing was a gigantic mess. By the way, if you want to see me talking about this on Chicago Joey's show, I was on the Twitch episode. I didn't even know he only dis- does Twitch episodes sometimes. Like, sometimes he'll do ones that are on YouTube, sometimes on Twitch. I thought anything he does appears on YouTube, but apparently not. But there's a Twitch-only episode on December 2nd, and I was on for quite some time, probably an hour or more, starting at the 1 hour, 57 minute, 17 second mark. So again, it's on uh, Twitch on his channel, Joe Ingram 1, from December 2nd. You can also find in the thread on Poker Fraud Alert in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum. You can scroll down to post 15 and you'll see a link to this if you want to watch me on there. Saying a lot of the same things I'm saying now, but just to Joey. That's the second time I've been on his show in recent times. By the way, you know, I enjoy going on these other shows sometimes and not only giving my opinion to audiences that don't otherwise listen to the show, but also I, I like exposing what I do to other audiences so they may want to come over and listen to this show. I like if people could listen to me for an extended period of time, as they did there, and say, hey, you know, I, I like listening to this guy. I'll, I'll go listen to his show. So I, I think it can grow the audience here. I also just like getting my message out there in general, so it kind of has a, a dual purpose. And I look at the comments when I go on these shows, and they're mostly positive as far as my appearances there. You know, people have liked so far when I've appeared. There's been a few trolls who've said negative things, but for the most part, it's been very positive there, so I appreciate that. So if you found me through one of those shows, then that's great. It's funny because (laughs) I have people that I've known for decades that either aren't aware that I have this show or uh, just for whatever reason don't listen, and they watch things like Matt Berkey's show or Chicago Joey's show, and then they come out of the woodwork and go, oh, hey, I, I saw you on uh, Chicago Joey, or I saw you on uh, Berkey's show. So I, I always get that sort of thing when I appear on a uh, show with a wider audience. And I go, well, you know, I have a show every week. You can go listen to yourself to the show if you enjoyed that. I'm I, telling you, man, you got to get on this YouTube thing. I, I guess, but... I, the problem, if I did, went on YouTube, it would only be like an audio show on YouTube. I, I just don't want to do a video show. In fact, I am on video on the Chicago Joey shows I appeared on and the Berkey show. And I'll tell you, I'm much more comfortable doing an audio show because it's one less thing I have to have on my mind. I don't have to worry about the way I'm sitting or if I'm picking my nose or if, uh, like, I have a funny, I'm making a funny face as I'm talking. Like, I've just got to look at the camera all the time and, like, a- am I looking weird? Am I looking stupid? Like, I, like, it's just something I don't really want to think about. And I don't think seeing me does a whole lot. If I were a hot chick, sure, then, then that adds to the show. But I don't think seeing me, a 50-year-old dude, is going to add a whole lot to what I'm no, presenting. No, I mean, it, it's not. It's just that YouTube has become such a source for people to find stuff you know yeah i know i i even looked into it a little bit i was looking into if there was some sort of some sort of program or tool that uh can grab the rss feed that the show puts out and automatically post it on youtube which i realize isn't trivial because it's not just audio you like you can't i figured it'd be very hard for it to grab an audio and then post a video on youtube even if it's just a black screen so it turned out yeah. uh I was having a very hard time finding that. I kind of gave up for the moment. 
I did. Uh, we'll we'll talk about it later. Uh, but there, I do know a tool that at least makes it a little less painful. But no, I mean, here's the thing: you you do the podcast for free, so don't turn it into something that you don't want to do. But when it comes to discovery and people finding content, um, you know, YouTube is pretty huge. No, I know, and and I I think about it myself, like. When I think about what people are going to want out of ways to listen to the show, I will think about what I like and what annoys me. And I do know that a lot of times when I want to watch something or listen to something, I immediately go to YouTube and enter it. And if it's not there, I get annoyed. So even though I know I can find it in podcast format, it's so much nicer to just go on YouTube and and punch it up and watch it. So I realize that. And and it's the same reason. I like them both. Like I I do some, uh, I do a lot of stuff on YouTube, but I also like having. Like there are some shows I watch on YouTube that also have a podcast, and they do it the reverse, where they take the the YouTube audio and they just dump that out to an RSS feed. And I like that for when I go on hikes or runs or stuff like that. Well, that's the other thing too is that I like the fact that it's an audio show because people can listen when they're going on hikes or runs or or sometimes even at work or even driving, whatever it is, where they can't watch something and they don't feel like they're missing something by not having video. So even if you say, well, you can just uh, listen and not watch, well, they're going to miss things that they're doing on video. So at least here, if you're listening, you're getting the entire story. You're getting the entire picture because there is no video attached to it. And I, I think that's also good for, for the audience and it, it makes it easier for people to listen and not feel like they're missing anything if they can't watch. And I, I do realize that it would be better for on YouTube. And you know, we'll, t- we'll talk about, you can tell me this, tool that makes it a little bit easier maybe maybe i'll do it i do want to make it easier to find the show and anything that is along those lines i'm interested in but anyway finishing up this topic before i move on you might wonder how they chose these influencers and i'm not sure i kind of wish they chose poker fraud alert because i would have done a good giveaway and i would not have rigged it and i also would not have been eligible myself, and if anyone associated with the show was eligible, it would have had to have been in a way that was not subjective. I would have to think about the best way to do this, but it would it would never be something where I just choose like whatever I like best because that is I don't think is the best way to do it because then you get these allegations of impropriety even if you're being totally fair. But anyway, we were not offered one, so once again we were snubbed. I'm not sure how they chose her because she's a chess influencer, not a poker influencer, but somehow she got that. And I understand why Berkey got it, why Chicago Joey got it, and why some of the other people who got it were given these seats to hand out. But you probably saw this all over Twitter about this WBT seat, but that's what it's about. These people all got these satellite seats for free to just keep playing to win these things. And as I mentioned, Amanda Botfeld, she won eight of them. She got it because of her audience, man. She's yeah. got a large audience and it's measurable. Like they can just go on YouTube and they can see for themselves how many subscribers she has and how many video views she has and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I it probably was something like that. And I I do wish we were given one. Uh th- this is kind of a function of the show not being as just known that we even exist. Like people who know me, it's not. It's not like I'm not known because on poker Twitter, almost everybody there, at least anyone who's active there or actively follows it, knows who I am, and I've been in poker for over two decades. But a lot of people still don't know this show exists, and some who know it exists have never tried to listen. And 
I always want to get more exposure, and that's that's why I've been appearing on these other shows in part, as I mentioned. And also, I do think it's good when I'm involved in being one of the main people who's either analyzing or exposing these scandals, whether it's something that directly harmed me, like the bad MGM thing, or something that had nothing to do with me. When I'm at the forefront with helping expose and discuss these things, it gives people more exposure to me and this site, and then they find their way here. So that, that's one of the reasons, among other things, that I, I've been trying to put myself out there a little bit more recently. And I also like having input in these things. It, it's not just to promote the site, because the site, it, it's not a for-profit site. So if we get a huge audience, I still don't make any money. So, but, but at the same time, I, I want to talk to as many people as possible, just so it makes this more worth my while, more, worth my time to, to put all this content forth. So there's a dual purpose. One is I really do enjoy helping people get made right, made whole, and calling out the bad things in the community. And when I make an impact, it makes me feel good, not like I won, not like I've gotten a victory in some way, but because I know people were helped. Like when that girl Mandy, when I got her the 250k payout that they may have never given to her, I felt very good about that because... I did something that was right for a poker player who deserved the money. So, well, Druff, think about Robbie, right? You know that whole situation? Yeah. And think about how much money she made people who just covered her on YouTube. Oh, yeah. And, and they don't do anything else other than, you know, they've got their videos monetized on YouTube, so it shows... The YouTube ads, you know, they don't have dedicated sponsors or whatever, but, you know, just just all of the interest that that story generated made made a bunch of people uh, probably a decent bit of money. Yeah, you know? d- definitely. And, you know, I, I, you guys know I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not monetizing anything. And you guys know that. The only thing that generates a little money is that Amazon banner at, at the bottom of Poker Fraud Alert that if, if you click before a purchase, then I get a small percentage of it. But that doesn't even pay for with the server costs every month. So I'm definitely not well, making... Well, that's the, the fun thing about monetizing YouTube videos. So, I mean, there are two main... Well, really three main ways that YouTubers will get money. One is they'll have a private Patreon account, you know, that they'll people can just donate to or they'll get, uh, you know, special content there or, or whatever. Um, another is they can have sponsors. So they do, they do live reads on, you know, their actually cut into the video so you can't really skip over them but the thing that a lot of people do is they just let youtube monetize it so they don't they don't even pick who is advertising on there like youtube just picks all of that for them so they don't even have to worry about conflict of interest because they're they don't even know who's going to be monetized on their videos yeah that is nice now unfortunately with poker it's a niche community and the ceiling is not that high i i have thought about running some kind of YouTube channel that is something not having to do with poker and, and hoping it catches on and even some ways it could catch on. I, I don't know. I just, I just haven't done it. But as far as this is all you concerned... You could have the most clickbaity of clickbait <laughs> titles on there, like, did she steal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you guys, I'll be honest here. I, I like delving into these situations. I love kind of yeah, using common sense to pick apart what was really going on and exposing the lies and exposing the scandals and shining light upon 
bullshit that's happening and, and helping those who are victimized in any way that especially makes me feel good if that's successful. And it has been in many cases, as you've seen over the years, many people have helped get paid or other ways that they otherwise probably would not have been made whole if it were not for the assistance I give. And it makes me feel good when this is done because I, I know it's doing good for people when they're in very frustrating situations where they feel they can't win. So that's some of the motivation. And, and then also I'm hoping that we could grow the audience of this show so the show will get bigger and then it kind of goes hand in hand because the bigger the show is, the more exposure that I have then when something is wrong, then when I amplify it, then more people see it. And in the last month or so, when I've put out the story about Ignition with, with that girl Mandy or the whole thing about BetMGM, these got a lot of attention. These tweets got hundreds of thousands of views. I'm not exaggerating. Hundreds of thousands of views. And this was because there are people who are paying attention now to my tweets that will retweet it. So it's not just my own following, but it's the, the following that I have has been retweeting it as well, including some people who have a lot of followers. And then this gets a lot of attention and then the issues get handled. So that's nice that that's going on here. So I'd like more of that because I do want to see people treated fairly in this space, in the poker space, in the gambling space. And even when it doesn't involve me, it just pisses me off because I'll read these stories and I'll go, this doesn't affect me at all. But I imagine if I were in that spot, I'd be furious and I'd be going crazy. And I think someone's got to help these people. And I put myself out there to do it. So the more audience we have, the better I can do that. So if you can recommend this show to people who think may like it. Uh, definitely go ahead and do that. I always like uh, growing the audience here. And, uh, you know, we did, I'm not complaining we didn't get a WPT satellite seat to try to win one of these things. But it would have been nice if we did. And if someone's listening who has a way to make that happen next year, I'll be glad to take one. And I promise I'll do it right and give it away fairly. Let's move on. Also something having to do with the win tournament, the WPT, but very different. This is another markup debate. Another markup debate, but these always happen during the World Series, and this one is happening quite far from the World Series, about as far from the World Series as we can get, right in the midpoint from last World Series to this World Series. And this is not about the World Series. It is about the WPT win, and it involves Ryan LaPlante, who, by the way, used to listen to this show regularly. I don't think he does anymore, but he used to listen to every episode. He told me that. And Sean Deeb, who once called up the show and yelled at me. But overall, he doesn't hate me. I, I know that. He, he'll even occasionally refer someone to talk to me about something that they have a concern about or whatever. So uh, Sean Deeb, I don't have a problem with him. I know he can sometimes be brusque on Twitter, to say the least. Also kind of hard to understand. He's not exactly the best writer. There's actually a guy named Coherent Deeb who translates what he writes, which is kind of funny. But Sean Deeb, I, overall, I don't have a problem with him. I don't think he's a bad guy. Sometimes he's a jerk to people, but you know, he's not a bad guy, and overall, I think he means well. And Ryan LaPlante, I don't think he's a bad guy. And I think overall, he means well. I couldn't disagree more with Ryan's politics. He's very left-wing. He's a social justice warrior. Politically you'll be hard-pressed to find anything we, we agree upon. But I judge people 
not based upon that. But I have seen from Ryan that he, it seems like that he's mostly a good person and that in matters involving poker, I've seen that he tends to have a good heart and is coming from a good place. Ryan is also an openly gay poker player. He was one of the earliest openly gay male poker players. And he's, I think, been open about it pretty much since the beginning. He got more well-known later on when Jason Somerville was already very well-known in poker. He was the one you'd think of first, typically, if you think of an openly gay poker player, at least male poker players. But Ryan LaPlante, I think the whole way, has been openly gay. And I I think he's married to to another man. I, I know he at least has a boyfriend or fiance. I think he's married, but whatever. Even though we don't agree politically at all, I have no problem with him. And I often agree with his poker takes. I don't mean strategy-wise. Sometimes that too, but I'm talking about this in general opinions about things. And often the criticism he's received from people I don't think is very fair. He does have a number of haters for various reasons. But you know, he's very opinionated, so he's gotten people not to like him over the years, just like Sean Deeb has gotten people not to like him over the years, just like I have gotten people not to like me over the years. But that doesn't mean someone's a bad person. It just means they're opinionated and they piss some people off. So anyway, that's that's. I, I wasn't hoping anyone wins this little battle they had because I don't dislike either of them. I'm not friends with either of them, but I don't dislike either of them. So here's what happened. Ryan LaPlante was selling the win main event, the one we were just talking about, that they gave away all these satellite seats, for a 1.5 markup, meaning that you have to pay 50% more for whatever percentage you're buying of him over Oof. what the buy-in would be. So you'd be paying 150 instead of 100 to get 1% of him. And there's been this debate for a long time as to what is fair. Now, there's no question that Ryan LaPlante is a very good tournament player. And I've played with him before. So I'm not saying that he's not a winner. And I don't know if Deeb is even trying to make that case, though Deeb said some derogatory things about his play. But that wasn't really the main source of the debate. The debate was not whether Ryan was a favorite in that particular field, which people were saying was probably the second easiest 10K field only behind the World Series of Poker main event because both of them have a lot of amateurs in there. So the question is not whether he's a favorite in that field compared to the buy-in and the rake, whether he's plus EV or negative EV, but the question is, is he so plus EV that it would be fair to sell himself for a 50% markup? So that's a fair question, and there's no problem with asking that politely. The problem was Sean Deeb, in his usual eloquent fashion, when someone was discussing this, Deeb simply said, LOL, LaPlante scamming again. (laughs) So he's referring to this as scamming. Now, I'm going to say right off the bat, that's not scamming. That's the wrong word. It seems a little harsh. It's very harsh because if Ryan LaPlante said, I'm charging 1.5 markup because through the analysis of these 10K events, I'm really worth 3.0, that would be scamming because that would be a lie. But he's not claiming he's worth 3.0 or anything like that, nor is he claiming anything that is provably false. He just has valued himself, and this is impossible to actually value unless it's outrageous, 
like 3.0, in a field with a lot of amateurs, which this is, he thinks, as an experienced tournament pro, that he is worth the 50% markup. You may disagree. You're probably correct to disagree. Maybe you're not correct. I don't know what he's really worth. You know, this is kind of a new thing where they're giving away all these free seats. So nobody really knows for sure what the real fair markup would be in a tournament like this. I think 1.5 is probably a bit excessive, but that's what he's selling it at. So the bottom line is he's being honest. He's, he's saying, I think I'm worth 1.5. So if you want to buy a piece of me, it's 1.5. If you don't think he's worth 1.5, it's very simple. Don't buy it. So it's only deceptive if you're misleading people about something. If you're just charging too much, it's not scamming. It's like if I he, go... He can say it's a bad deal, but he can't say it's scamming. Yeah. 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 Like a, if, if I go to a restaurant and they're charging way too much for a steak or a chicken dish or whatever it is, and I go, whoa, these prices are crazy. I'm not paying these. And then I walk out. They're not scamming. If I choose to sit down anyway and pay the prices, I'm not being scammed. I'm just getting a bad deal. And I also have the option not to patronize the business because I think the prices are too high. So same here. He's never doing anything deceptive to offer markup that's too high. Now, Deep's point is that he's misleading people into thinking he's better than he is because he's a poker coach, because he has a coaching business. And uh, so he's trying to make people think that he's a way better player than he is and that this is a better deal than it is. But this is all subjective. If he I mean, were to say it's a bad deal, right? I mean, to say, I don't think this is plus EV or yeah, something right. like that. And that, that would be totally fine to say, I think this is lousy. Don't buy it, guys. I don't think Laplante is worth this. Someone else pointed out, Lucky Spewy one, who's a winning New Jersey player. It's different than Lucky Chewy, by the way. It's Lucky Spewy. Lucky Spewy showed that Espen Jorstad, who won the 2022 main event, who's an excellent player from Norway, that he is selling the same event for 1.35. So he said, main event champ markup 1.35 seems reasonable. So Laplante greater than Espen? Say he's trying to mock Laplante, showing that Laplante is charging substantially more than the winner of the main event, who also was already known as a very, very good player. So yeah, which is a better deal, 1.35 for Espen Jorstad or 1.5 for L- Ryan Laplante? Of course, Espen at 1.35 is a much better deal. Even if you want to say they're the equal in skill, obviously the 1.35 is better than 1.5. But okay, Espen is charging 1.35 for whatever reason. I'm sure he could charge way more being the main event champ, but he's deciding he thinks 1.35 is what's fair. Sean Deeb said, now that's some fair markup for someone worth more. So actually, Sean Deeb thinks Espen is worth more than 1.35, but Laplante definitely is not worth 1.5 to the point that he thinks Laplante is scamming. Well, someone brought this to Ryan Laplante's attention. And then Ryan says, well, I, I can't even see this because I blocked him. So obviously they had a previous issue if he already had Sean Deeb blocked prior to this. And we'll hear about that shortly. But he actually unblocked him so they could discuss this. So he said, I unblocked Sean Deeb. Now he can better see that I'm sick of him being a bully. Sick of years of his harassing comments to me each year at the World Series of Poker. His consistent lies online about my integrity. He's a bully and willing to lie in order to hurt people. Wow. Then he 
followed up by explaining one of the ways that he was bullied by Sean Deeb. He said, best example of his harassment. 2019, near the end of June, around 11 p.m. <laughs> he remembers this pretty well. Deeb walks up to Table, asks Table something as he sits down. I'm listening to an audiobook and focusing on play. I ignore him. He runs off multi-tabling. Comes back, looks at cards, folds out of turn. I say to dealer, he can't do that. Call the floor. Floor comes over, gives him a warning. Okay, so let me stop right here. I don't know if this is at a World Series event or if it's just a cash game. I'm guessing it was probably an event because Ryan LaPlante just plays a million World Series events, like one after another, after another, after another. He plays at tremendously high volume. I don't think he plays much cash at the World Series. So I have a feeling Sean Deeb was actually multi-tabling World Series events, which you can do, by the way. So he wasn't happy that what Sean Deeb was doing was in an attempt to multi-table, which of course is way harder in person than online, that he would sprint over there as fast as he can run, I guess. Sean Deeb's a pretty heavy guy, but he'd sprint over there see his cards, fold, and then he would sometimes fold out of turn. So where people have not acted yet that are supposed to act before him, he folds anyway and runs back to the other table. So LaPlante says he objected, saying he can't do that, call the floor. So LaPlante wanted the floor to tell Deeb to stop that, that either he has to wait and turn to fold or just uh, let the hand auto-fold. So then he says, Deeb says to me, why didn't you say something when I asked the table? I say back, you can't fold out of turn. I don't care who you are. He spends the next 10 plus minutes calling me names and other shit. He's a bully who hates anyone who's not willing to put up with him. And he's willing to lie and publicly defame as well as privately harass those he dislikes. Okay, well, I have to say, Ryan, this isn't the best example of bullying. This just sounds like an argument. Now, I actually agree with you, by the way, that he shouldn't be folding out of turn because he's multi-tabling. That uh, if he is going to multi-table at the World Series, or even in cash, wherever he was doing it, that he has to play in turn. And he shouldn't be able to fold out of turn because he's multi-tabling. That's not everybody else's problem that he's multi-tabling, because the problem with folding out of turn is it gives people who are supposed to act before him an additional advantage that they know he's going to fold. So it's, it's against poker etiquette and also against the rules in many rooms, and I assume at the World Series, to routinely fold out of turn. Yeah, it's a clearly established rule as far as I know. Yeah, it is. So I, I agree with Ryan there. If this is the way it happened, I agree with Ryan saying that he shouldn't do it, and that's fine. Now, Deeb's point was, hey, I asked everybody if I can do this because I'm multi-tabling, and nobody said no, and now you're complaining, so what's the problem here? And I, I, don't, I don't like that line of reasoning because as Ryan was saying he was listening to his headphones and didn't notice Deeb asking this, and that's probably what happened. I don't think Ryan would have said, oh, yeah, sure, fold out a turn, I have no problem. And also, what if Ryan was away from the table when he asked or just wasn't paying attention? You can't just break an established rule because the whole table's okay with it, and uh, some people at the table may have not heard you, and it's their f- problem. It's not their problem. If the, if the rule's there, the rule's there, and you can't say, hey, I, I already said I'm going to do this five minutes ago. It shouldn't matter. So if this story is accurate as stated by Ryan, I'm on his side here. However, I wouldn't call this bullying. Bullying would be if Sean Deeb shows up at the table and is like, oh, Ryan LaPlante. Oh, hey, this guy's a big fish. Or, hey, this, this guy's a big asshole online. You should see all the dumb shit he says. Or, hey, you know, does everybody know this guy's gay? Does everybody know this guy bangs other men? Uh, like, you know, that, that would be bullying, okay? 
um, getting in an argument about procedure at the poker table and then being mad and then calling the person names during the argument, you can say that's crass and bad form and that Deeb is a jerk, but that's not bullying. Bullying is where you just start up with someone and harass them for the sake of harassing them, not because you're in an argument with them and it gets heated. That's not bullying. So the word bullying gets overused very much these days in society. And you know, there is real bullying that goes on, but this was not an example of it. So I would have liked to hear what he was saying, calling him names and, quote, other shit. The rest of this is not that interesting. The rest of this is just kind of leading up to why Ryan was right in the argument, if this is the way it happened. But I don't see any bullying here, unless he was really out of line. If he was using his status in the poker world, like Helmuth or someone else, would you consider that bullying? No, it would just be unfair and favoritism or whatever. I guess, and that, a lot of that, yeah. yeah, a lot of that goes on at the World Series for sure. And I think he's kind of getting at that yeah. too. That that Ryan thinks be, uh, that not right. That, that uh, Sean Deep thinks that because he's a big name player, that he can just go do these things and no one will say anything. But it's still not bullying. I think that's just expecting favoritism, which I don't agree with either. But it's still not bullying. Yeah, so, so he says he's that's a bully fair. who hates anyone who's not willing to put up with him. No, I, I think this is someone who might expect favoritism, and may get mad if you object to the favoritism, but it's still not bullying. That's inappropriate. That's not being right. That's being entitled. It's not bullying. So that's, that's the wrong way to put it. So then Sean didn't really address any of that story, but he went back to the allegation that he lies about him because I guess Sean's biggest issue here is that Ryan is insisting that Sean lies about him and Sean feels he did not. So this is what Sean wrote back. What did I lie about? I've always been completely upfront with you. I don't like you, hate people like you, taking advantage of people and coaching for profit while not giving equality of skill and knowledge for what you charge. This markup is losing all winning players. Know that for you. Did that make sense to you, Calwatt? I mean, he, I guess he's saying that he doesn't believe that his poker coaching is worth anything, right? Yeah, if that's hard to follow, you're right, because this is Sean Deeb's writing. He's like a horrible writer and just likes these really long, confusing run-on sentences. Oh, so, yeah. It so, always looks like his cat ran across his Twitter feed. Yeah, so Coherent Deeb showed up to the rescue, who's a separate person that uh, is like a Vegas pro. He's not even like a known guy. He's just someone started doing this. Coherent Deeb translated it pretty well. This is the translation. What did I lie about? I've always been upfront with you. I don't like you. I hate people like you taking advantage of people in coaching for profit while not providing the equity of skill and knowledge for what you charge. This markup is losing. All winning players know that. There you go. That's what he really meant. So then LaPlante said back, calling me a scammer slash scamming is a lie. I'll agree with that. You have said this multiple times in the past. You have zero idea how I play, and you haven't looked at my content or discussed a hand ever with me. Sean Deeb came back. You'd be surprised what I know. I heard you say before that your ROI is higher in 25Ks than 1500 because it's easier to play people. But I've heard this before. I've heard good players say before, oh, I think it's way easier to play good players than bad ones. I don't agree with that. Now, I know people have different talents. Some people are better against bad players and better against versus better against good players. Like some people, their real talent is beating bad and mediocre players. And some people are 
kind of confused by bad players and are better yeah, at beating players. I've always find beating bad players to be the easiest. Exactly. Thing. That's exactly me. <laughs> I, I Look, guys, I'll take credit here. I My main strength in poker is beating bad and mediocre players. I will not lie about that. And in fact, back in the days on poker table ratings where you could look at people's results at the high stakes games, really any games, any of the cash games on poker stars you could, and other sites like Bovada, you could take a look at their stats and it even showed who they were winning against, who they were losing against. And when you look me up, you would see that the ones I was crushing were the fish and the mediocre players. And not only was I crushing them, there was like no player who was doing better against them in big blinds per 100 than me. I, I was the one isn't, who was, Isn't that the definition of poker, though? That yes. You, you want to be the, the best player? You'd rather be at a, a table full of mediocre players or bad players than good? I mean, yeah. you always want to be the best player at the table. Right. right? So, but, so uh, it was very interesting to look at this because there was no one in online poker at the Limit Hold'em games that was beating the fish at a higher rate than me. And not just because I was finding them more. It wasn't just volume of hands. It was that as far as winning the most per hand against them, I was number one for like the long term, not just like in one short stretch. But among winning Limit Hold'em players, if you compared me to the good players as far as against each other, I didn't have very good numbers. They, they, they were like I was losing overall against the good players. And yet I was crushing the bad and mediocre players better than all of them. So that shows well, that's why some... they're bad and mediocre, right? Yeah. Well, it's because <laughs> well, it's because I I had a better feel on how to get the maximum out of these players than these sure. guys did that were even beating me. So just because someone and, can and beat there, me there, there definitely is a skill to that, but also I mean, that's the whole reason why they're bad players is they're more likely to give you their money, yeah. you know? So I mean, and Barry Greenstein in fact uh in one of his books, he was covering that where he'd give a rating to against good and against bad, which I thought was interesting. He'd like give like from one to ten of against good and against bad. So definitely, I'd be a ten and against bad. Uh, in in against well, that's why table selection is a thing. Yeah, right? I mean, I, I've I've had scenarios where I knew every person that was sitting at a table and I had a choice between playing the game or going and doing something else, you know, semi-productive. And I knew that most of the guys that were sitting there were, you know, pretty much as, as good as I was. So I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to go do something yeah. else. Like, why would I even bother? You yeah, know? as far as making money, that's the total right approach. And also spending time properly. If, you, if you're not just there yeah. for the challenge of facing really good players, like some people really enjoy the challenge right. of facing top players and, and they're not worried about their win rate or they don't even worry if they lose or if they're the if they're negative EV at the table. But if you're a poker pro and you're trying to make money or you're not a poker pro and your main purpose for being there is to make money, then, yeah, the smartest thing to do is to play against lineups that you are a favorite to beat. So anyway, uh, with that, all that said, I still don't think that Ryan LaPlante, from what I've seen of his play, would, be a, would have a higher return on investment on average at a 25K event, which is going to be almost all good players, rather than a 1500 event, which is going to have a lot of amateurs in there, especially at the World Series. So I think that's an exaggeration. I don't know if Ryan really said that, but that's what Deep said back. But then he goes on to say, I've heard of many terrible hands you've played. Every World Series of Poker, everyone thinks you're a fish. Your results show fish. Just because you have students, you aren't pro. So I, I don't agree with that stuff. I, his results don't show fish. I think he's made like 13 final tables. Uh, I think he's won either one or two bracelets. He... When I've seen him play, I 
would not say at all he's a fish. Uh, I've seen him uh, be a tough opponent. Uh, you know, has he made fishy moves? I'm sure he has. Have I made fishy moves? Yes. It, it's very hard to play a lot of poker and not make fishy moves at some point. Because you're not a robot. You're not going to be perfect. There will be times you miscalculate or misread a situation and then walk away feeling stupid. So I, even if Sean really heard that Ryan LaPlante did something dumb, and it's possible that Sean Deeb obviously, you know, he obviously doesn't like him. It's not just possible. For sure he doesn't like him. So Sean probably told his friends that he doesn't like Ryan, and then probably some of his friends have been at the table with Ryan because Ryan plays so many events, and then maybe Ryan made a move that they didn't like or thought was stupid, and then they came back and told Sean, ah, you wouldn't believe what Ryan did. What a big fish. Ah, he lost all his chips doing this. Ah, like it was probably something like that. But that you can't look at individual hands and say that someone's a fish and that they're just uh, tricking everyone because they have students and they've sold it well that they really suck. I mean, the guy has like 13 final tables. So he's not a fish. That's, that's not fair. Now, that doesn't mean he's a 1.5 markup favorite at this event, but to say he's a fish is not fair. So then came the question of how is this going to end? Well, a lot of times in these poker arguments, there will be a heads up for rolls challenge where say, okay, if you think I'm a fish, let's play heads up. Well, that's not what happened here, actually, but something kind of along those lines. Ryan said, so put up your money. I'll buy from you this event at 1.5. I'll also buy from you at 1.5 every event I play 10K and under for 2023. I don't give a fuck if you think I'm plus EV in anything. Saying I'm scamming is deeply out of line when you think my ROI is lower than it is. So what Ryan's trying to say is that he wants to reverse sell to Sean Deeb to where instead of Sean Deeb buying his action, that he's going to buy his own action from Sean Deeb, where it's going to be kind of like Sean Deeb selling him his action and then paying him accordingly. So if Ryan wins, then Sean Deeb is going to lose and have to pay him. And if Ryan loses, then he's going to lose and have to pay Sean. Whereas, of course, it's the reverse if someone buys a piece of you. Like, think of when I sell pieces of myself at the World Series. If I lose, then you've lost money. What you've sent to me, I'm going to send you less back than what you sent to me. If I win, you've made money. I send you more back than what you sent to me. Well, this is the reverse, where if Ryan loses, then Sean makes money. If he wins, then Sean loses money. So he's saying... at I'll buy it from you. I'll buy myself from you at a 1.5 markup to prove it's really worth it. I like where he's going with this. This sounds fun. And and not just this event. I'll buy you every event that I play 10K and under for 2023. So Mm. I thought that was interesting. And so he said, how much do you want to bet on this? I'll buy up to 5% of any live event, 3K plus that I play, and 20% of any buy-in under 3K at 1.5 for 2023. So he changed it a little bit where he said he'll buy of himself from Sean Deeb up to 5% of each event, 3K or more, and 20% of any buy-in under 3K for the entire year of 2023. And then he also points out that he already did one of these, that he bought himself from Chris Hunichen, Big Huni, H-U-N-I on Twitter, for that price. So he's not just selling himself at that, he actually bought himself from Big Huni of this. So he threw down the gauntlet to Sean Deeb. If you think I'm such a fish, if you think I can't cover 1.5, then reverse buy. Sean Deeb said back, 
Let's do 10% across everything you play all year. It's very simple. At 1.5, you can also cross-book me 10% any event of your choosing before start. Now, cross-booking is where you have a competition with somebody where you're playing the same event, and whoever makes more that the person who's made less have to has to pay them the difference. That's what cross-booking is. So let's say I'm playing the World Series of Poker main event and somebody else is, and that guy says I'm a fish, and I say, no, I'm not. In fact, I'll cross-book with you. And so we do it, and then that person ends up cashing uh, 30000 and I min-cash for 15000 Well, if we cross-booked for 100%, then I would owe him 15000 If we cross-booked for 10%, I'd owe him 1500 because that is uh, us having a competition of who makes more and then paying whatever percentage of the difference. So that's what a cross-book is. So Sean Deeb was saying that not only will he do this reverse buy of 10% of everything Ryan plays all year at one5 but also they can do a cross-book of 10% of any event they play together. Jason Moe, also known to some people as J-Mo or uh, Cunty Cakes 123 on Twitter, exactly as it sounds, Cunty Cakes 123, he's always very outspoken. He said, why do people still care about broke, gay, racist hillbilly? Referring to Ryan LaPlante. Now, where does that all come from? Broke, gay, racist hillbilly. Now, I don't think he's broke. He definitely is gay. The hillbilly, I don't think so either. He's like from Minnesota. I think he's from like the greater Minneapolis area. He's in Vegas now, but that's where he's originally from. The racist part came from an old screenshot someone found. And this was kind of embarrassing to Ryan LaPlante because, as I said, Ryan's like a very left-wing social justice warrior. And someone unearthed a very old chat screen capture of him using the N-word. And not even like to someone black, like just saying this in chat to someone he didn't like and calling them that word. So it wasn't very good language, but I think it was like in 2011 and stuff when there wasn't as much of a stigma for this and Ryan was much younger then. So obviously he was acting out of line then. But uh, again, if you go through anyone's long social media history or chat history, you're going to find things that are embarrassing. So I, I don't like unearthing things from 10 plus years ago and think, ah, ah, look, you're really a racist. Ah, like I, I don't think that's good form because... If you saw everyone's history and everything they said, you could find objectionable things. But uh, that J-Mo said, why do people care about broke, gay, racist hillbilly? Imagine playing a decade of poker and still being too poor to play on your own. Just quit life. <laughs> oh, man. Imagine a guy named Cunty Cakes being outspoken. <laughs> <laughs> he apparently made a lot of money in crypto, by the way. I don't know how much he still has because of uh, all the crashes. I, I think he's still very well off. But anyway... Uh, I don't think he plays much poker anymore, JMO. But going back to this, so that was the offer. And then what happened was uh, Deeb was concerned about something here. Because Josh Arier, who, by the way, is good friends with Sean Deeb, so I'm surprised he kind of appears like he's taking Laplante's side here. But he said, Sean, he made a very fair offer that's very respectable. You call him out for selling too high. He backs his offer by willing to bet you. And you just want to change the bet. Just take the bet as offered. Because remember, Deeb, he said, let's do 10% across everything you play all year. Very simple at 1.5. You could also crossbook if you want. And then Ryan LaPlante. Yeah, all, all of these poker arguments always end in just dick measuring contests. Yeah. And then Ryan LaPlante had made a different offer. So so Josh Arie is saying, look, he made an offer which was fair. And now you're, 
you're trying to change the terms of what you're offering to him. Like, if you think he's really a fish at 1.5, just take it. That's so, true. So, okay, but Sean did bring up a good point in response. He said he's trying to bet at 1.5 with with 80% plus of the buy-ins are for 1Ks. I had a simple request that 33% of the total buy-in has to be 5Ks or higher. He even admitted in DMs how shitty his GTO software he shills is. <laughs> and uh, so apparently there's some software that he sells that is part of his course and Laplante saying that uh, the last part is a lie. Are you capable of being honest? And then Sean D showed a uh, DM conversation they had where he said, I know when they were going to acquire you, I know who built your GTO. And then Ryan Laplante said, referring to that person, oh, you put in a good word? And then Deep says back how shitty it actually is. No, he knows what I think of you. And then Ryan says, I know that, LOL. So clearly Ryan was saying, I know what you think of me. Like he knows, I know what you think of me. And I know your friend there knows what you think of me. But we were, you know, we still did a deal and, and I bought his software. He wasn't saying, I know the software is shitty. Like Sean said two things and he's, and Ryan said back, I know LOL about one of them. So yeah, that was misleading. That, that was kind of a lie. And I think Sean knew that. I do see Sean's point that he is worried that what's going to happen is that uh, Ryan is is going to change the way he's playing and he's going to play a lot more easier events just to show up Sean here for this bet and that that's not fair to him that the statement was about these big events, these these 10K type events that he's not worth 1.5 and that it's not fair if for 2023 they have this bet and then Ryan changes what he's going to play. And he did have this point because Ryan did admit in one of the tweets that he's going to play 90% of the same events he played in 2022. And yes, he's going to change it a little bit to play lower events, but why shouldn't he to give himself more EV in this bet? Like he admitted he was going to change his schedule to make this bit more profitable for him. So Sean wasn't even out of line to think that might happen. A guy named Sam Algaha responded, as a contract litigation attorney, Sean is correct here. Once you countered his offer, you essentially rejected the offer. However, Sean, do you mean you're no longer willing to accept the same offer you initially made to Ryan? Why not? So these are all good points that if someone makes an offer to you and you say back, well, how about this? You are allowed to do that. You don't have to accept their initial offer. And But at the same time, like, why is he not accepting the initial offer? Because that's, uh, it, it seemed like that was something he was willing to do at first. And then, But, yeah, you know, Sean thought uh, better of it, realizing that Ryan may change his schedule. And Ryan admitted he would probably change his schedule to help him win the bet. So the thing is, this shouldn't be a way for one to get over on the other. This should be, Ryan thinks he can prove he can beat these at 1.5 markup, and Sean thinks he can't, and they bet on that. If Ryan's then going to insert a bunch of easier, low-stakes events so he can actually beat it at 1.5, that's not really fair. He should. So I said what the bet should be, if they want to be fair, if they want to keep to the spirit of the whole thing, the fair bet would be to agree upon a schedule that is as close to 2022 as possible and then see if Ryan can beat that at 1.5. And if he can, then Ryan wins. If he can't, then Sean wins. Not where Ryan can insert extra events to make up 
for un- being unable to keep up with that markup at the bigger events. That's that's not really fair. So if Ryan refuses that, then he's not being honest about wanting to accept this bet. If Sean refuses it, then he's not being honest about believing that Ryan's 1.5 markup was wrong. So I, I think that both of them were trying to angle for what they thought would benefit them. And as Cal Watts said, it was like a dick measuring contest. Yeah, they clearly don't like each other. They're whipping their dicks out. I mean, I, I, honestly, don't they have anything better to do? Yeah, you and know? you know, and I've had arguments with a lot of people over the years on Twitter, and I've never made contests like this or demands like this. And I thought it was fine <laughs> that Ryan threw it down, like that. Okay, you know, I'll buy myself, but uh, it's not necessary. And and then once it starts getting to all these terms, and like if he threw out, okay, I'll play the same schedule as twenty twenty two. Let's do one point five. And then Sean said, no, then Ryan looks great because he put his money where his mouth was. But then he's like, no, I'll play 90% of it. And then the other 10%, I'll play extra. So I give myself an edge. Then it starts to get kind of crappy. So uh, at this point, it becomes, let's see who can angle as much to beat the other and show the other up. And at that point, it ruins the whole point of what they're trying to prove in the first place. So this, this is why you don't just do, you just don't do this. You just move on and... Agree to disagree and accept that there's people in poker who don't like you. And you can defend yourself, of course. Like, I don't blame Ryan for defending himself and saying he's not a scammer, because he's not, and defending why he's charging the markup and why he thinks it's okay and whatever. But, you know, these challenges here, they can go into the weeds, and that's what happens. So I, I don't believe this ever got settled, and I guess I could dig into it and see if it ever did result in a bet, but I don't think it did. If you guys see if it did or didn't, you could let me know. I, I kind of stopped looking. <laughs> I kind of got sick of it, and really the most interesting part is there, and we've discussed it. Okay, so I'm going to read some texts I got on uh, 775-372-8355 from the 916. Please, please do more Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. Okay, well, not on this episode, but I'll keep that in mind. I will do one soon. At 9.41 p.m., the 773 texted me, not working, God bless it. I think referring to the call to listen line. (laughs) Someone else in 508 said call to listen line, not working. Uh Uh-oh, I'm promoting the damn thing, it's not working. But then he said, never mind, sorry, got it. So I don't know what. Maybe it put itself up. I I don't know. Sometimes the thing goes down. And as I said, I, I don't have full control of it. I have control of one side of the entire matter. And then uh, for the 651, naturally, my first chance of playing the free roll, and I have a friend visit at the wrong time next time. Yeah, I kind of messed up last time. This guy, I told him I, I validated his account for the free roll, and I really didn't. I thought I did, and I didn't. And Anyway, he couldn't play last time, so I was like, okay, this time you're really validated. And then this time he was going to play, but then a friend came over and he couldn't play. Oh, well. Let me guess, you validated your girlfriend, some kind of scammy thing going on. <laughs> you caught me. Shit. There's Nemo. No one's, no one's supposed to know that. Let's move on to an update on the big story we did last week. The 10K theft from my bank account, the BetMGM, Viejas, Global Payments, and DraftKings bank theft scandal. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. You can go listen to the part one of the episode from two weeks ago where I go into the whole thing for hours of what happened to me, but suffice it to say, someone created 
a BetMGM account using my personal info, and they used a flaw in global payments, which is their e-check payment processor. They exploited a flaw in that system to withdraw $10,000 out of my bank account without even knowing the account number. So it just outright stole 10K from me, went into that account, and then because BetMGM had poor security and poor policies to prevent fraud, they were able to cash out on the same day without even playing to a different account, which they created on Venmo and cashed out to a debit card in my name that they created and then sent it elsewhere on Venmo. So there were faults all over the place here. BetMGM had big faults. Global Payments had big faults. They screwed the pooch big time. This was a horrible example of mismanagement of these payment systems and of policies preventing fraud and even money laundering. This wasn't money laundering. It was fraud, but someone could also money launder this way. Can you imagine putting 10K on, not playing, and be able to cash out the same day for 7,500 of it, and then the other 2,500 two weeks later without playing? Crazy. They won't let you do that in Nevada, by the way. So I went over that whole thing two weeks ago, and I was at the forefront of investigating this because I found it happened before others found it happened. I was one of the earlier victims, but I kept quiet about it. I wasn't even sure if there were other victims. So I was investigating behind the scenes, putting hours into it. And by the time Joseph Chiang went public on Twitter that he was one of the victims for a similar amount of money, I already knew a lot about it. And then I publicized that I was a victim too and that I had already learned a lot. And then from that point, some people came to Poker Fraud Alert in the thread I created about it that same day who then told me some more. And then I pieced the whole thing together and I had a very, very good picture of what was going on. Then something similar happened on DraftKings, but it involved what's called a credential stuffing attack, where someone just bought a list of usernames and passwords used on other sites, somewhere on the dark web, and then used that to get in, and then from that point pulled a similar trick. It may or may not have been related. I think it was because it started right after the other one was winding down. But that's where we left off. And if you want to hear all the details, you can go to the episode from two weeks ago, and listen to that episode, part one, of that show. But here's the updates. Several victims of the scheme have been getting collection letters from Global Payments that they need to pay up what was clawed back by their bank because of the fraud. And if they don't, well, then I guess it could affect their credit, right? Is that a shitty thing to receive? Isn't that a horrible thing to receive? <laughs> that you're defrauded like this? You get the money back by making a complaint to your bank as you're supposed to do when this happens? That's the first thing you're advised to do by law enforcement is call your bank? So these people did that? And now they're getting letters from Global Payments Collection Agency that they need to pay back this money? I don't even know if it's their collection agency. It could be their internal collection agency within their own company but they got collections letters. I'm going to read you one. I'm not going to say who got it because I don't know if they want this public. But this is one of the victims, one of the verified victims who did a report to their bank that they were defrauded out of $1,240 through this scheme because there were a lot of poker players this hit, probably more than 50, most of them being known or semi-known pros. 
Here's what they wrote. Dear such and such person name, this communication is from a debt collector. We have received your dispute stating that the above account originates from fraudulent activity. Okay, good so far. That's true. In order for us to properly update our records, additional documentation will be required. What? Please provide the information checked below and mail it to Global Payments Check Services, LLC, Attention Collection Department, P.O. Box, blah, 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 Niles, Illinois, blah, 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 blah. And then they checked a copy of a police report and a notarized affidavit of forgery referencing this specific check. That is awful. That is awful. Because they know it was fraud. This is a known mass instance of fraud that victimized poker players. They've even admitted it such. They, it's not like they're just learning about this. Global Payments admits, while they claim they have no fault, which is incorrect, but while they claim they have no fault, they admit that there is a mass fraud scheme committed against poker players that occurred between early October and mid-November. They know it. This person was a victim of that. So instead of saying, yeah, this is one of them, they are demanding that in order to get out of collections, this person has to go file a police report, get a copy of that report, and notarize an affidavit that they are sent by global payments, that they are declaring an penalty of perjury that they were defrauded. They can't just take this person's word for it, given that all the signs point to this being fraud, that it fits the exact pattern during the exact dates when this happened, where someone created an account in their name on the same day deposited, never played, and then withdrew to a Venmo debit MasterCard. Wouldn't you say that if they all followed this pattern, it's pretty clear that this was done by the fraudsters? But no, they sent this to some but not all of the victims, demanding that unless they provide a police report and this notarized affidavit of forgery, that they are going to be subject to collections. They said, if we do not receive the items checked above, we will not be able to process your claim. And then it says at the bottom, this office is attempting to collect a debt and any information obtained will be used for this purpose. So basically, what they mean by process your claim is we're not letting you off the hook for this money unless you do this. Even though we know about the fraud, even though we know that this exactly fits the pattern and this was during the days it happened, we don't believe you. So you have to prove it to us. You might say, well, what's the problem with a request? Why doesn't this person go to the police and get a copy of a report? And why don't they go get this affidavit notarized? If they're telling the truth, why don't they? Because it's a pain in the ass, that's why. Why are you requiring obvious fraud victims to jump through hoops to get their own money back? If they know these people were victimized, it should stop there. That should be it. And by the way, this is a huge company. They shouldn't be super paranoid that people are trying to roll them for amounts of money like $1,240 by pretending to be one of these victims. But this fits right in with this scheme. And in fact, it happened to this person before it was made public. So it's not even like this person copycatted it 
in order to defraud global payments in this way. This obviously was part of that whole scheme. This happened to them before the whole thing was made public, and they know it. But yet they're sending these collection letters. Now, they would have one excuse. The date of this letter was November 8th, 2022. Well, this went public on November 8th, 2022. So you could say, wait a minute, global payments didn't know that this was a widespread scheme yet. So, okay, they sent this out at the time thinking this was just a standard case of fraud where they always ask people to do this. In fact, when I called them around uh, that same date, I think it was November 8th, and I called them, they said to me, they didn't mention the police report, but they said to me, they're going to email me an affidavit for me to notarize for the forgery. And what do you think I told them, Calwat? Go fuck yourself? Exactly. Not in those exact words. But I said, absolutely not. And they said, why not? I said, because I don't want to waste my time with it. I was defrauded because your company had poor security. I'm not going to run to notaries now and pay for a notary. I'm not going to do all that because you guys had bad security. I'm going to go to my bank. In fact, I've already done it. I went to my bank earlier in the morning and I've reported this and they're going to investigate. I am going to the police as well because I want to see the perpetrators brought to justice. But I am not going to give you guys notarized affidavits because your system inadequately prevented this. This is your problem, not mine. So no, I'm not doing this. But I will make you one offer, I said to them. I said, I will get this affidavit. I will get it notarized. I will do everything you ask if you agree to cooperate with me. So if you give me the IP address of the person who did this to me, and you give me all the information on the fake account that was created, you give me everything in your system about this, and I'll be glad to prove who I am, that I really am Todd Wittellis with that date of birth and all that, so you can, you're sure you're giving it to the right person, so you're not violating anyone's privacy. There's no law against giving me all this information from an account in my name. No violation of privacy at all. So I said, if you'll give me all of that, then I will give you the notarized document you asked for. And they said, no. (laughs) So I said, okay, you won't cooperate with me. I won't cooperate with you. I do not owe you a notarized affidavit. I will not do it. (laughs) So that was my response. But did I get one of these letters? No, I did not. I can't tell you for sure. But remember, I got a call from them after this whole thing blew up big. I got a call on a Saturday morning where they're frantically trying to call me because I didn't answer the first few calls. But I happened to see it at 9.30 a.m. when I was going to the bathroom and I answered. They were frantically trying to call me and say, do you have your money back yet? Do you have it back yet? If you don't, we'll wire it to you. Do you have it? We want you to get back your money. Because I was appearing in all these articles and they didn't want me to continue to be able to truthfully say, I don't have my money back, because at the time I didn't. So they wanted to make sure I was going to have the money back. In fact, they admitted to me I was a, quote, special case that they were following up on. The special case was because it was looking bad for them in the media. ESPN did an article that made them very upset, because they don't like this publicity. They're a publicly traded company. So they wanted the loudest complainer, they wanted the person who was at the forefront of calling this out to not be able to say anymore that he was out 10K, or as my girlfriend said, they moneymakered you, because they referring to how PayPal gave Chris Moneymaker back the 12K they stole from him as soon as he was the lead plaintiff in the class action suit filed by Eric Benzamogan. 
the so same thing. They they wanted to get the most visible person who was a victim of the whole thing out of the matter. A little bit of a different yeah, reason, you're but a squeaky wheel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're getting they, the grease. So that's why they were very very insistent that I get my money back, and that's why I presume I didn't get a collection letter. However, a number of other people did get collection letters. I wouldn't say all of them, but plenty of people did. And this is very distressing. But hold on. Remember, November 8th. So maybe global payments just didn't know yet on November 8th. They probably didn't. Now, I was trying to tell them on that same day. On the morning of November 8th, I called them up and I said, please let me speak to your security team. I want to tell them what's happening. And they wouldn't let me. They'll let them know, they told me. They'll get back to me. They'll email me and then I can tell them. Of course, nobody did. Had they let me speak to them on November 8th, this could have been stopped right then. But they didn't take it seriously until it really blew up huge on Twitter, thanks largely to me. This reminds me of when I, as a software developer, call up for tech support for whatever, and they ask me if the computer is plugged in, and you're like, come on, <laughs> please, let me talk to someone that matters. Yeah, I like when they say, okay, so go down and click on the little Windows button. And then uh, click on run and then type this. I go, no, no, no. Like, I'm way more in advance than that. Let's just like, I understand a lot more than you think I do. Let's just like get to what your suggestion is of what I should do and I'll just do it. Yeah, so, yeah. No, nothing personal, but let me talk to somebody else. <laughs> you know? So, anyway, in case you think that maybe this was just sent early on before global payments fully realized what was happening, well, that might be true, but these people called up their customer service because these people came to me and said, hey, Todd, what do you suggest I do about this? And I said, here's my suggestion. Call up Global Payments, and I gave them the phone number, which, by the way, is different than the number that was on the letter. It was like a collections number on the letter. But I gave them a different number so they're not speaking to a collection agent. I had them call the main Global Payments number, and I told them to ask for a supervisor or manager who should be very aware of this by now. And I said, speak to them and have them take care of this. Well, these people tried, and they were denied the ability to speak to supervisors about this. And the people answering the phone basically said, yeah, we're aware of this, but we're still asking you to do this anyway. So they got nowhere. They tried and tried, and on the phone, no one got anywhere. And I heard this from multiple people. That by calling the main number, not just the collections number, the collections number just gave them a big fat middle finger and said, nope, this is what you got to do too bad. But they called the main number and the main number people wouldn't give them a supervisor and basically said, nope, it's out of our hands. Too bad. Speak to the collections department. Yes, we know about all this fraud, but tough luck. We're not changing this. So I said, okay, well, I'll get involved here. And I decided to write an email to a person I had spoken to at Global Payments, the highest person I've communicated with. It was the same guy who called me up on that Saturday. Actually, it wasn't him. It was one of his underlings, but I, I eventually got to him. It was, a, the, I think, the manager who directed me to be called. And this guy was pretty high up as far as the VIP preferred service they have there. He was like one of the directors of that VIP preferred service that was used to defraud people. So he wasn't like upper management. He was kind of like middle management in the company, but he was the highest one I or I think anyone else in poker media or anything else like around those lines was spoken to. Everybody else spoke to a PR person. I actually got to speak to a real manager there. I feel like a, a, a letter from Eric Benzamokin 
about a class action lawsuit might get some results too. Yeah. So this this is what I wrote. I, I won't say his name publicly yet, though I probably should, because he didn't answer me. But I said, such and such person, comma, I just wanted to inform you that a number of victimized poker players have been receiving collection letters from Global Payments after they reported the fraud to their banks. Global Payments is claiming these players authorized these e-checks, false, and are demanding police reports and notarized statements in order for Global to wipe off the debt. This is unfair to place such a burden upon victims of a well-known scheme. One of the victims is named blah, 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 blah. Another is named blah, 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 blah. They have shown me the letters they've received. While I realize you cannot provide me details regarding other players, I am urging Global Payments to stop sending these collection letters to write this fraud off as you told me was the plan. And it's not fair to require these players to file police reports or get notarized letters in order to be reimbursed for fraud, which largely occurred due to negligence on the part of BetMGM, Viejas, and Global Payments. Thanks for any assistance you can provide. Todd would tell us. He didn't answer me. No answer. I'm going to try to call him, I think, this week. See if I can get him on the phone. <laughs> He's going to have to answer me. But, look, I understand if these letters just kind of fired out, even in an automated way, to where they didn't mean to send them. But when these people call in, that's when you say, oh, don't worry about that, disregard the letter. Instead, no, they're being told, no, you got to do this. If you want this debt wiped off, if you don't want this affecting your credit, and by the way, they have these people's social security numbers, so they can really put it on their credit. If they don't want it on their credit, they've got to go to the police, file a report, go to a notary, pay for the notary, notarize that affidavit, and then it'll be forgiven. After they do all that and send copies to Global Payments. Why the hell should they have to do all of that? Global Payments knows what happened. Why should they have to do all that? Talk about a big fat middle finger for the victims there. You should require this when there is some doubt whether the person was actually a victim or if they're just claiming to be to get the money back they lost gambling. Yeah, Druff, if I had to do all that, I would also send along an invoice for my time (laughs) that I spent doing all that. I really would. I'm being serious. This is so obnoxious to be doing this to the victims. I mean, talk about just no remorse for what happened to the people. And I understand it's a big corporation. They're not going to have remorse. But at least don't rub salt in the freaking wound by making them go through these hurdles jump through hoops to not get into collections, to not have their credit ruined over being a fraud victim when you know they were fraud victims. How screwed up is that? That's just a complete disregard for the victims. And this occurred due to their own negligence. Them and BetMGM and Viejas, they were all negligent here. It's super clear. The least they can do is not send these people to collections. It's just awful. It's it's offensive, honestly. It It is. is. I was just so angry when I saw this, and I went through my mail. I'm like, nope, nope. Nope, didn't get one. And I know why I didn't get one. They don't want to send it to me because I am the one who's being the loudest about this. Mine was for a lot more than 1240. Mine was for 10K. I don't understand who got them and who didn't because, you know, like some of the smaller victims got them, some of the bigger victims didn't. So I, I don't know. Listen, Druff, you, you've never shown any mercy. Getting single mothers fire, fired from waitressing and hostessing jobs. <laughs> get get this guy fired that is, you know, is not writing you back. I, I'm definitely going to call him. him and, well, I'm sure they're happy he's not writing me back. They probably told him not to. Like, I, I don't think that they... Remember, they, they're, they're like in cover-up mode. They, they're like admitting to the very least possible, and they're trying to just get out of this with the least damage. So 
Yeah, this I, is how you show them that that's only going to make it worse. Yeah, nobody's yeah. going to get fired over this, but I, I can at least be a pain in the ass to where they have to answer me here. I okay. believe in you, Druff. I believe you can get someone <laughs> fired over this. Do it. Of all the people that deserve to get fired, it's not the it's not the the woman who brought you uh, a hamburger that had ketchup and the pickle on it when you wanted it on the side. It's this fucking guy. Okay, I, I got to defend myself. I, I don't do that. Yeah. I, I only try to get people fired when they're like outright rude yeah, to I, me. I know, I know, but you know what I mean. Like seriously, this guy's fucking with people in, well, I, in I, but a serious way. But I, I really believe that he's doing what his superiors want him to. They, they really just want to get out of this. They have no sympathy over, about any of this. The, all they want, in fact, the guy basically admitted to me that the only reason this got attention as promptly as it did, which still wasn't as promptly as it should have been, because I was, I wanted to talk to them about this on November eighth, was because of the ESPN article. The guy basically admitted that to me without directly saying it. That. The overall amount of fraud here was not that high compared to the overall amount of transactions they process and even other fraud that comes in, but that because of the ESPN articles and, and the increasing publicity here, they had to handle it quickly. That the, the guy basically admitted that to me. So the squeaky wheel did get the grease, but they really don't give a shit about any of us. But I, I can continue to be a squeaky wheel is the point. The, the wheel hasn't squeaked as much recently, but it, it, it'll start squeaking again is the point. So I want to move on to a second part of this whole thing. This isn't directly about global payments, but I now have some more information regarding who is behind this fraud. And I can't tell you that much yet. I'm telling you that I have some information. I do not have any names. So it's not like I know who the perpetrator is and I'm holding it back. I, I don't know who you are yet. So if you're listening to me, I don't know who you are yet. But I'm working on finding out. But I know some information, including where this ring was based out of. And this has not been made public yet. Very, very few people in poker know this. And the few that do know it are ones I have told and sworn to secrecy. In fact, uh, Cal Watt, after the show, I, I will be glad to tell you. But I, this is something I can't make public yet for reasons I'll explain later. But I do know where the ring is based out of. I do know that there's more than one person involved. There's some other pieces of information that I have learned. But I do not have a name yet. And I'm working on finding out more. So this is not over. I have the money back. I really hope you nail the bastards. I really do. I have the money back. But this is not over. And it's also not over from a law enforcement standpoint. Law enforcement is, is very aware of this and is investigating this. And I can't control how good of a job they do with this. Hopefully they do a great job. But uh, that's out of my hands. But I am going to be looking into this myself, and the more I find out, the better. And when it is time to release this information, I will release it. And there's I can't decide who I'm more outraged at. The way you know the people that actually perpetrated this fraud or global payments for the way they've handled it. Yeah, I mean, I, that, I'm, I'm really not sure. Yeah, it's <laughs> really know? terrible. It's really terrible. And and Ben MGM hasn't been great either. Uh, but, but global payments has been worse. This is just incredibly callous. I mean, w- when these collection letters come in, 
any response short of we're so sorry, tear up this letter, we're not going to collect from you is the wrong response. Anything short of that. They, as soon as they get the call, hey, I got a collection letter, the answer should immediately be, oh, don't worry about that. We're not going to do this. We know you were defrauded. Very sorry about that. That should be it. It's amazing that they, they have the nerve at this point to still demand these people file police reports and get notarized statements. It's, it's insane. But yeah, I'm going to continue to look into this. And when the time comes, if I have the information, which I don't yet, but if I have the information on who was responsible, then I will make it public. I will call them out. And even if it's not a known person in poker, I'll still call them out. This may be a while. But I'm going to be very closely following this up. And as you guys see, I have more information right now than the general public has. And I believe I will continue to have more information than the general public has, but I'm going to responsibly use that information. I'm not going to just collect it so I can make a spectacle on radio or on Twitter. So I'll release these things at the appropriate time to release them, is all I can say. And you can probably imagine the reasons for that. Because I'm still pissed off about this. Still pissed off this was done to me. Still pissed off this was done to the poker community in general. Pissed off that Global Payments has handled this so poorly. That BetMGM and Viejas have handled this poorly. And I am pissed off that this could even happen. That the security was so poor. And that the regulators in these states allowed the security to be this poor. Because Nevada didn't allow this. Yeah, that's what I mean about me being not sure who I'm more disgusted with is... First of all, the, their security setup to begin with, global payments is just, it's a joke, you know, to allow this type of thing to happen. And then add in that they're sending out these notices to people where they're, I mean, give me a fucking break, man. Yeah. All of that together is just, it's, it's horrific. It is. So I'm very mad about this at a lot of different entities and parties. Yes, I'm mad at the perpetrators. Yes, I'm mad at global payments. Yes, I'm mad at BetMGM. Yes, I'm mad at the regulators in the states that allowed this to occur. Mad at a lot of different parties here. Some I will never get any reg- resolution, like the regulators, you know, can't do anything about them. I can suggest changes, but you know, they're not going to face any music over this, obviously. That's the way government works. But as far as these companies hey, Drew, go... Th- th- this would be like if, if you had a, a car... And it had, uh, you ever seen those cars that they've got kind of uh, combination locks for opening the door? Yeah. It was like an older style thing. Whatever, you know, uh, GM makes this car and it's got this combination lock on it. And they ship it with something incredibly fucking stupid, like 0000, zero, zero, zero unlocks the car door, right? Yeah. So some thief is like, oh, cool, 0000, zero, zero, zero unlocks this thing. And they steal your fucking car. And then your car is stolen and GM sends you an invoice and says that they're going to damage your credit because your car is stolen. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I know. There's when, some culpability here. When I know? got, you know what? When I got these messages about these collection efforts, I'm like, I can't believe this. I like, I, like my hair stood up on end, even though it didn't happen to me. I mean, the first thing happened to me with the thefts, but I had my money back by that point. But I, boy, I was furious to even read this i'm going oh my gosh can they handle this it, it just keeps getting worse i thought they handled it badly before and keep in mind every single one of these companies on november 8th when i called them all 
I said, let me speak to your security department. No, you can't, I was told. There's no way to transfer you to them, but we will let them know and they will contact you. And not one of them did to this day. Not one of them. And I could have stopped a lot of these because many of them happened after November 8th. Nobody wanted to speak to me. I could not even get the message out. Very, very and, bad. And believe me, I'm not condoning the theft, right? I mean, the people that stole are, are thieves. But I'm also realistic that in this day and age, if you release something that is that grossly insecure, it's not a matter of if, it's when that someone's going to find that and just absolutely rob people, you know? And regulated poker. The whole pitch for this, the whole pitch for yeah. these regulated gambling sites, not just right. poker, but sports betting too, it's supposed to be, it's safe. Your money is safe. Right. There's no your customer requirements. This is not the wild, wild west of bet online and Bovada and all these other offshore sites that can just screw you and where bad things can happen to you at any time. This is the safe place to play. Well, no. What good are regulations well, if it's this easy? Yeah. And, that, and that's the problem is, you know, a lot of times the regulators don't know enough about the thing that they're regulating to even do a good job doing it. Yeah, they didn't. I mean, this, this is shockingly when it comes to tech. This yeah. was a shockingly easy thing to pull off. I couldn't believe it when I learned how easy it was. And I replicated <laughs> it by making a fake me on another bit MGM in New York and trying it out. I go, wow. OK, yeah, this this would work. <laughs> I didn't withdraw any money, but I, I could have. I, I, I went through the whole process, which took a few minutes, and there it was. I had access with just very basic personal info. I had access, again, to withdraw from my bank account. It was crazy. I took screenshots of it and posted it on Poker Fraud Alert. It was, it was crazy how easy it was to impersonate me and just steal out of my bank account without even knowing my bank account number. Absolutely dreadful. So that's the update I have for you. Uh, as I learn more... I will let you guys know. Okay, so let's do another update on the FTX scandal. We've been doing a lot of these, and I know this is not just something you hear on this show. This is something that, while it affected a lot of people in poker, this is very, very major news, and you've probably seen it all over the place. But still, because it's interesting, and because it has connections to poker, especially to that scumbag lawyer of UB, Daniel Friedberg, who is caught on tape engineering cover-ups of the super user cheating back in 08. You hear him talking about how to underpay people and how to manufacture false stories about what happened and to falsely blame it on someone who didn't even do it, who's willing to take the blame. You hear him talking about all this stuff right there on tape that Russ Hamilton himself made I guess to kind of cover his ass later or blackmail people later. Who knows why? But anyway, th- that was released in 2013 by a man named Travis McCarr. We've talked about this many times. And I was one of the people it was released to. And I was also one of the people he initially came to two years prior in 2011. But Daniel Friedberg is getting a lot more visibility now into what he did at UB Almost 15 years later. It's amazing how these tapes were made in, I believe, early 2008, early to mid-2008. They were played to me and Brian Mikon in 2011, but not given to us. And then they were actually given to us two years later in 2013. And through all of that, Daniel Friedberg 
has mostly skated away without this really harming him. He just wasn't part of the narrative of the whole UB scandal as much as he should have been. I mean, he was talked about, he was named, but even people familiar with the UB scandal from back then, they definitely know Russ Hamilton's name. They associate it with Russ Hamilton being the perpetrator, which he was. They associate Greg Pearson, if they're watching somewhat carefully, as being part of it as well. But you know who just wasn't really discussed very much with Daniel Friedberg, who wasn't really known until those tapes came out. But boy, once those tapes came out, he was one of the worst figures on the whole tape, if not the worst figure. You have Russ admitting on tape he stole the money. But he had Daniel Friedberg discussing all the ways they're going to underpay people and pitch a completely bullshit story to the public to trick everybody as to what happened. Really, really slimy. You listen to this and you think, you're, you think to yourself, boy, what a piece of shit. And so these tapes aren't new. They, they were released almost nine years ago. But Daniel Friedberg is now finally paying the price for it. Not legally yet, but this is coming out everywhere. As we discussed last show, where NBC News contacted him and he tried to claim, quote, off the record that these tapes were illegally made and that he's informing them of that. And then they said back to him, no, we don't agree this is off the record. In fact, we're going to publish this off the record text as on the record. (laughs) I, I like how he's just like so much of the belief that as an attorney, he can scare people that he thought he was going to intimidate NBC News into not keeping that response on the record. And they're like, no, (laughs) we have attorneys too, and this is on the record. We'd have to agree for it to be off the record, and you saying off the record means nothing, so we're going to publish this. And then he just stopped answering. Like, what did he think he's going to do? He doesn't think NBC News has their own attorneys? He thinks NBC News is terrified about being sued? Come on. Worth a shot. Yeah, so that didn't work out well. But anyway... He's taking down his LinkedIn. He definitely is very upset about this whole thing. And this is being focused upon now, these UB tapes, and people are watching the YouTube videos of the UB tapes now. And they're hearing him be the snake that he is. And before, hardly anyone heard it outside of poker. Now there's a lot of widespread interest in this. There's, in fact, 3,100 views on this for the Poker Fraud Alert channel, and that's not even the main place people are finding it. There's another one that has, like, I think tens of thousands of views that comes up first if you just search for the Daniel Friedberg tapes. But mine has commentary in it. That's why mine is different. That's why I posted it also. I wanted commentary so people could understand what's going on. He knows a lot of people have heard these tapes now, and he just looks awful. I mean, it just sounds like he's a complete piece of shit who's trying to cover up a major cheating scandal and underpaying people. And so there's like, hey, this compliance officer for FTX, look at what he did in the past. Look what type of person this is. They've even asked Sam Bankman-Fried, also known as SBF, they've asked him, why did you hire a lawyer like that with that type of past? And he didn't have much of an answer. But I thought... Yeah, I think one of the questions that they asked him was, why did you hire this guy when uh, his main claim to fame is fraud? Yeah. 
<laughs> this is great. Yeah, well, I, I've great. said uh, that's who you hire if you don't want uh, very much oversight of what you're doing. You, you want to hire a compliance officer who's willing to bend a lot of the rules. Uh, that's uh, Yeah, and I hate to say it, but, you know, I, I realize that his stock is sinking in a lot of circles, but uh, I'm sure in... I'm sure there are some places where being a suit that's willing to uh, do just about anything and have no morality whatsoever is a positive uh, character trait. Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's uh, I think yeah. that is why he got hired. I think the SBF is like, oh, sweet. He was willing to do all this to help you be cover up. Okay, my type of lawyer. Okay, you're hired. I, I bet it was something like that. I, I don't think SBF wasn't aware of it because you just had to Google his name and you would have found it. There are plenty of articles about it. I think he's like, oh, you know what? This is actually a positive. This is a positive trait, not a negative for what I'm doing here. So that, I don't think, is a shock at all that this shady UB lawyer who's on tape trying to do all these awful things is involved in this FTX thing. But we've talked about this on other episodes. Why am I bringing this up again? Well, because Daniel Friedberg has now been added to a class action suit involving the entire FTX scandal. Haley Hintz has reported on December 9th that he has been added to a class action suit which is seeking to recover money from those who were deemed responsible in any way for this whole debacle. And it's pretty wide-ranging. So, of course, SBF himself is one of the defendants. But it also includes Caroline Ellison, the CEO of Alameda Research, which received the stolen money and then chunked it off. Former Alameda co-CEO Sam Trabuco, for whatever reason, resigned as CEO back in August, maybe because he knew the shit was going to hit the fan. This guy looks very shady as well. In fact, he has been found in other interviews when asked some tough questions, really trying to dodge them. FTX co-founder Gary Wang, who apparently was said to have known about everything that was going on. But also, celebrity endorsers who promoted FTX pretty aggressively. And it said that they implied in the commercials that they were very much invested into FTX. And it led people into investing there. Now, I think it may be a little shaky to sue these people because... There's not a lot of responsibility of due diligence for a celebrity promoter. Otherwise, nobody would promote anything if, they, if they're going to be responsible if the company ends up doing shady things. So I think, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I believe they could only be held responsible if either they knew that what they were claiming wasn't true or if they were making claims about their involvement or trust in the company that were not true. So maybe they can get them if they're claiming they were investing or implying that they were investing a lot in this company when they really weren't, or when they were only investing what they were being paid for the promotion. So maybe they can get them on that. I don't know, but they are named in this class action. Among those, Tom Brady and his now estranged wife, Giselle Bunchen. Steph Curry, the Golden State Warriors itself, which, of course, is Steph Curry's team, Shaquille O'Neal, Udonis Haslam, David Ortiz, former Red Sox player, William Trevor Lawrence, Shohei Otani, 
of course, the two-way Angels player, who's both an excellent hitter and pitcher. Naomi Osaka, the skater. Larry David, the comedian. And Kevin O'Leary. So they've been named, but then also added now is Daniel Friedberg. This is a uh, 51-page complaint and is the third version of this class action that was filed about a week prior. So I guess they keep amending it, which they're allowed to do. They can keep amending the complaint as much as, as many times as they want, and then these replace the other versions of the complaint filed in court. And not that it matters, Jeff, but I'm pretty sure Naomi Osaka is a tennis player. Oh, she was a tennis player. That's right, not a skater. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I got it confused. Thank you. That's why I keep you around here. I know why you really keep me around, Ruff. I've got, a, I've got a would you rather for you. What? You want to now or you, you want to now or you want to let you finish? No, no, go ahead. Wait, what's the reason to keep you around? All right, so this is a would you rather, and in, in both cases, everybody knows about it. So would you rather have sex with Carolyn Ellison with a condom or Kate Hall without a condom? <sighs> and every, in, in both cases, like people know that it happened. Oh, and there's no question I'd rather have Caroline Ellison because with Kate Hall, like, I'd be so afraid afterwards. <laughs> I'd be afraid of a lot of things. I'd be afraid of getting her pregnant, for one. And, and then second, oh, okay. I, I'd be afraid of anything I might catch. Like, I, I would be so afraid of doing You're that. you afraid He's, of catching that polyamory? Yeah, yes. Like, I, I, I would be so afraid of that. With Caroline Ellison, like, I, I wouldn't be very attracted to her, but at least I know I could walk away and probably not catch anything. It, it wouldn't feel good, you know, aside from how she looks, it also wouldn't feel like good to know that, like, SBF had sex with her and, like, that I'm coming after that. But still, I, I'd rather do it with a condom. Yes. No question. All right. Fair okay. enough. Fair enough. A- anyway, uh, going back to this story, the plaintiffs in this class action are people I haven't heard of. Uh, Greg Podalski, Gary Gallant, Skylar Lindeen, Alexander Chernyevsky and David Nicole. But it said that there could be as many as hundreds of thousands of plaintiffs added, not by name probably, but uh, probably initially as John Doe's, and then I guess later by name if they join the class or if they're automatically joined in by records that are subpoenaed from FTX. So it could end up having hundreds of thousands in the class as a plaintiff, basically. Interestingly enough, in the complaint, it did mention the UB stuff with Daniel Friedberg. Remember, this is not just suing him. They're suing this large group of people, which he's now part of. But they did throw in all the discussion of UB. So this starts from number 87 in this complaint. Remember, these legal complaints uh, are numbered for each point they're making. So starting from 87 here, 87, Daniel S. Friedberg was the chief compliance officer at FTX, the person who oversaw FTX's compliance initiatives before it imploded. He joined the firm in March 2020 and was instrumental in perpetuating its nefarious activities, in part by helping cover up any indications that the FTX scheme was unraveling. So, of course, you see where they're going with this, that he was a cover-up master from back in 08, and he's just bringing those skills to FTX, which may very well be true. 88. Although Friedberg was supposed to be the adult in the room overseeing the operations of the FTX empire, he did so thousands of miles away, remotely from Seattle. As FTX's chief regulatory officer, 
Friedberg was tasked with monitoring customer protection practices, ensuring product of offerings complied with existing rules, and overseeing internal audits and reviews. He did none of this. Yeah, it's a good point. They're saying that he wasn't even there. He was the one guy who's supposed to be looking into all this, and he's sitting all the way in Seattle while they're existing in the Bahamas. Now, maybe he's probably coming up with contingency plans for covering shit up when it goes wrong. Yeah. Uh, Now, it's possible he was going to the Bahamas sometimes. It's possible a lot of this work could be done remotely. So I I don't know how strong the point was that he was thousands of miles away in Seattle, but they, they were saying that obviously there was no customer protection going on or this wouldn't have happened. And it does appear that the things he was supposed to be there for, he wasn't doing. And he was probably there for other purposes. Yeah, you can look at the quality of the job that he did just based off what happened. Yes, <laughs> they they, yeah. they weren't really I mean, co- complying very well with uh, yeah. any kind of consumer protection measures. 89, Friedberg has also been tied to an online poker scandal in 2008 where Ultimate Bet's founder, Russ Hamilton, was accused of installing a, quote, God mode on his gambling platform that only certain players had access to, resulting in an estimated $50 million in misappropriated funds. By the way, uh, Russ Hamilton wasn't actually a founder of Ultimate Bet. He was an investor in the second round of it. And he also didn't install the God mode. This was actually put in for testing purposes. And then the story is that at some point a little bit later when money was needed, and there's different theories as to what the money was needed for. One of the theories is that Greg Pearson needed it for the legal defense for his perverted wife who had sex with a 16-year-old student. She was uh, accused of that. And uh, I, I'm i trying to remember. She may have even pled guilty, but the, the, that was the allegation that she had sex with a 16-year-old student and he needed, and she was criminally charged for it. That's for sure. And it was right around that time when the super using started. So one of the theories was... I would was, be serving her papers immediately. That's what I don't understand. Like, why, why is he raising, raising money? money right. If you're going to raise money, it should be for a, a divorce attorney, not for uh, getting her off of the charges. That's, that's really you weird. You imagine like, if there's a plot twist and it becomes even more intertwined and Friedman calls on his old friend, uh, Russ Hamilton, and he's the one who like embezzled all the, the Bitcoins and all the shit from <laughs> FTX. Can you imagine? <laughs> That would be funny if if there's a connection back. By the way, the reason that Friedberg even got involved with UB is kind of interesting. It's because he went to the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Guess who else went there? And had something to do with UB. I'm going to guess Phil Helmuth. Yes, Phil Helmuth, who is originally from Madison, went there. And met Daniel Friedberg, and they were friends. And that's why he became Helmuth's personal attorney and helped uh, with some of the legal issues early on, before all the cheating, involving UB. So that, that's how he got involved in this whole thing. If he hadn't met Helmuth that's in college... A, that's a little embarrassing. Yeah. If he hadn't met Helmuth <laughs> in college, then this he wouldn't be involved in any of this, probably. But that, that yeah. really set him on a different path in life. Uh, Helmuth wouldn't comment on any of this, by the way. But that, that's where he originated. So anyway, uh, Hamilton didn't install the super user ability there. Uh, this was done for testing purposes, and that at some point someone had the idea to abuse this, and so it was done. And Hamilton was the main person doing it for sure. Number 90, in a surreptitiously recorded file, referring to those tapes, 
Friedberg reportedly advised Hamilton to claim he was a victim of the ultimate bet, quote, God mode scam and to push blame on an unnamed consultant to the company who exploited the site's servers. Totally true. That's right there in the tapes. You can go to the Poker Fraud Alert YouTube channel and listen to Friedberg saying this out loud. The audio recordings were published in 2013 under uncertain circumstances and have not been independently verified. Well, I've independently verified them, and I was part of the uncertain circumstances. I was one of the original publishers of them, and it was provided by Travis McCarr. Now, Travis McCarr got these from Russ Hamilton, who was recording this secretly. He secretly recorded the meeting, and then he either gave it to Travis or Travis got a hold of it, who then made his own copy and then provided it years later to us. So that's how it got out. It's not really uncertain. I I know how it happened. There's nothing uncertain at all. The only thing uncertain is why Russ Hamilton recorded it. But obviously he was trying to cover his own ass in some way. I I think what he was worried about is that he did not want all of this coming down on him. Probably being the main super user on there, the main guy who was doing the cheating and the stealing. He was probably afraid if the hammer fell one day, or it was falling. The the hammer was in the process of falling. That's where they're having this meeting. So he's probably afraid they're going to pin it all on him one day. So he wanted to get them all on tape to blackmail people from not doing this. Now, interestingly, when NBC News... Give him something he could uh, cop a plea deal if he had to. Yeah, maybe. Uh, When NBC News contacted Hamilton, he said to them, I'm not going to say anything. I didn't talk back then, and I'm not going to say anything now, which is an interesting response, which is true. If you think about it, he's never talked about this. Number 91. I did take this money, and I'm not trying to make it right, Dan, so we got to get that out of the way right away real quick, Hamilton allegedly said in the audio recording. Well, not allegedly. We hear him saying it. Hamilton also founded the World Champion Online Poker Platform. Now, you may wonder what does that mean, the World Champion Online Poker Platform? This was someone writing this who didn't understand UB very well or online poker very well. Uh, They're trying to say that he was the 1994 World Series main event champion, presumably, and that he also was one of the founders of UB, which also isn't true. So they kind of combine two things. (laughs) I think they're going to need a third amended complaint. Fix dumb things like this. 92. Veteran short seller Mark Cahodes, one of the few to publicly question the rapid rise of FTX before its fall in a September interview with a trading-focused webcast called Hedgeye, had noted the potential conflicts of hiring someone connected to a cheating scandal to oversee compliance at the $32 billion FTX exchange. 93. Similarly here... Daniel Friedberg, in his role as chief compliance officer, oversaw both FTX and Alameda, which had its own god mode, i.e. Alameda was secretly exempted from FTX's auto-liquidation protocols. Now, I'm not sure about that part, but I do know that Alameda received 10 million, or 10, 10 million, I wish it was 10 million, 10 billion dollars that was taken out from FTX and was supposedly done through a back door installed by the man himself, SBF. So I think that might be what they're referring to, of how it had its own god mode, that unlike, or I guess similar to what was going on at UB, where the top people could see or went hold cards and steal from them that way, that their version of the god mode was that they could secretly transfer 
cryptocurrency out of FTX over to Alameda without anyone else in the company seeing. 94. Friedberg's penchant for duplicity to make legal problems vanish for his corporate paymasters didn't end with UB's demise. NBC News recently reported on a 2020 incident involving SBF's promotion of Ethereum-based cover protocol and the unfortunate experience of one Dave Mastriani, an investor who was prevented from cashing out his 400000 in paper winnings, I think they mean profit, due to, quote, insufficient liquidity on FTX before the cover token cratered. 95. When Mastriani contacted FTX to accuse SBF of having a pump-and-dump role in the debacle, Friedberg called back with an offer. How would Mastriani, a graphic artist, like a job creating NFTs for FTX? Friedberg offered Mastriani an advisor contract that would pay him one Bitcoin, which was probably worth, I'm guessing, around 20 k at the time, for 30 days' work, but it also required Mastriani to absolve FTX, Alameda, and its affiliates of any responsibility for Mastriani's cover losses. Covers in all caps, some kind of token. So I'll admit I don't know about this cover token, but there is some sort of token there called cover. And I guess this Mastriani guy invested in it and was up 400000 and then somehow was unable to cash that out or, or, or sell it on the exchange, something where FTX wasn't letting him do it, and then the whole cover thing crashed and went down to zero, and then he didn't have his 400k anymore, of course. So Mastriani supposedly contacted FTX and said, what the hell, this was a pump and dump scheme, and that's why you were not letting me cash out. And because the problem is uh, if Mastriani cashed out what he had, presumably, and cashed out meaning sold what he had, his early position, then that can cause the price to crater. So sometimes in these schemes, once you can buy in very easily, but then if you want to get out, they try to prevent you from selling your tokens. And then uh, that can prevent the whole price from crashing. So the organizers of the pump and dump scheme, I'm speaking generically, not about this cover specifically, but that could be a reason why they were stalling him and not letting him sell off his 400k worth of cover at the time. So supposedly Mastriani contacted FTX and said, this wasn't fair to me. You guys were doing this on purpose. And then he gets a call from Friedberg, he claims. And he claims that Friedberg offered him, which he accepted, that if he drops his claim about this whole thing and lets it go, that he'll be paid a Bitcoin for designing NFTs because FTX wants to release some NFTs. And it doesn't say it right here, but I think it's implying that he's going to have some kind of interest in this NFT project. So if the NFT project takes off, that that he'll make more money from it. Because otherwise you think, well, why is he willing to accept one Bitcoin, which is probably worth about 20K, for 400000 that he got screwed out of here. So I think what was probably pitched to him was, here, how about we pay you 20K up front through a bit, by giving you one Bitcoin for designing these NFTs, since you're a graphic artist and you're good at this, and then you'll also own a part of this whole NFT project, and uh, if this succeeds, then uh, you'll make a ton more. It doesn't say that last part, but that's what I assume is the reason he accepted. So it says 96 Mastriani eventually agreed, and while he did receive that one Bitcoin, FTX never accepted any of his artwork. 
Friedberg later emailed to inform him that the payment was, quote, primarily for your release of all claims, and with that goal accomplished, FTX no, had no more reason to maintain this subterfuge. If true, that is very dirty. Very, very dirty. So basically, the NFT for FTX was never going to exist. It was imaginary. But they had to come up with something to give him a job for with promises that it could make more later. So they're like, here, we'll pay you a Bitcoin up front, probably worth about 20K. And then you can make more down the line, presumably, because he'll be a big part of this being the graphic artist behind these NFTs and FTX being a huge company. Imagine being the designer of their NFTs. There had to be something down the line. There's no way he'd accept just one Bitcoin for this whole debacle. So he must have thought this had some kind of big payoff down the line if it's successful. And why wouldn't you believe it could be? Because an NFT for a huge company called FTX, yeah, it could easily be big. So the guy puts in the work, designs NFTs for them, sends it in, and then they're like, no, no thanks, you know, we're not going to use these. And he's like, what the hell? I thought this was my job. And then Friedberg emails him, he's like, yeah, um, we weren't really going to use these. This was really just to get you to agree to release all claims. And, you know, we've done what we had to do. The only thing we were guaranteeing you is that we're going to pay you one Bitcoin for your work. Well... We paid you one Bitcoin for your work, so scram. That's what's being alleged here. I don't have any independent confirmation that any of this occurred this way, but this is what's claimed in this lawsuit. Very interesting. I've never heard about this before, but very, very shifty if true. And would I believe that Friedberg would come up with a scam like this? Of course. (laughs) That's really shitty if true. To make the poor guy who got ripped off for 400K in a pump and dump scheme to feel like he has access to a bigger money source than 400k by being the head designer for their big NFT and then he gets paid essentially 20k up front to design it and then they don't really do the NFT and he's told yeah no we we were never going to do it we just wanted to sign this if true that's a really really messed up thing to do to say the least but not too far from what they were going to do on UB Remember, they were going to try to get away with paying the least possible of the money stolen through the cheating scandal, and we're going to come up with a completely fake story about what happened. And we have Friedberg on tape admitting that. 97. In August, the FDIC sent a letter to Friedberg and FTX U.S. CEO Brett Harrison, because FTX U.S. and FTX non-U.S. are two different companies, so Brett Harrison was the CEO of that company while... The mainline FTX was uh, SBFs. But they sent this to Friedberg and FTX US CEO Brett Harrison to, quote, cease and desist using marketing language that could have been erroneously interpreted as saying that exchange users' accounts were insured by federal banking regulators. Harrison subsequently deleted the tweet. So this is alleging that they put out a very misleading tweet that made it sound like that the deposits on there were FDIC insured and then the FDIC sent them a letter going whoa 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 no you're not and stop putting out any tweet that implies that and then Harrison just quickly goes and deletes it 98 before joining FTX Friedberg was a partner at Fenwick and West LLP where he led the firm's cryptocurrency division according to a now deprecated LinkedIn page meaning he deleted his LinkedIn page 
He received a JD and MBA degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I, I don't know why that's in there, probably just to state facts about Friedberg. But yeah, sounds like a very shady guy, doesn't it? So he's now part of this lawsuit. And a lot of attention being paid to those tapes and what type of guy he is. And people are really believing that he had a lot more responsibility in this FTX debacle than people might originally have believed. Obviously, uh, SBF is the one who is most at fault here. There's no question. He was the leader. Caroline Ellison, obviously very much at fault. But you know what? Daniel Friedberg was the compliance officer. And between what happened and his history at UB, yeah, I can't imagine he was in the dark about all this stuff. We'll see what plays out. I, I really hope he ends up in prison. I'll be much happier to see him in prison than SBF. He should be there, too. But, like, if I had to pick one and only one person to be in prison here, I'd actually want Friedberg just because of what he did with UB. It would be more satisfying to see him there. Even though SBF is the more culpable one. If I had to pick one I'd be happier to see in prison, it would be Daniel Friedberg. Calwater, are you still awake? We have two co-hosts on with me. And neither seem to be conscious. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang up on them both. Goodbye. And you know what? Sometimes I will be nice and edit this stuff out of the show. You may wonder what I do in the editing. I will edit things out like long pauses or like if I didn't have something ready and then I'm searching for it on the web. That makes bad radio, so I edit it out. And I edit out anything else that just is like confusing or unclear. I don't usually record new material after the fact. I just will remove stuff that makes the broadcast harder to understand or listen to. I make it flow better. And occasionally I'll remove things like where I'm asking if the co-hosts are there or not there, and it turns out they're not. But you know what? I'm going to leave this in. I'm going to leave this in so you know I had two unconscious co-hosts on with me here at uh, 1.30 in the morning Pacific Standard Time. This is not going to be deleted. All right, taking a look at the chat. Disposition. And by the way, disposition, I owe you some money for the free roll, so please PM me, because the money goes some pretty you know, pretty well ways back, but I, I know you're a regular listener, so I'd like to send it to you rather than roll it back into the pool. So please get a hold of me, or I do have to roll it. But he wrote, Helmuth and Ho. Now, this is not Maria Ho. He's referring to... Poker Ho, whose real name is Mark Kroon, and many other UB players ran in that Wisconsin circle. Trojan, protect yourself at all times from polyamory, he also wrote. That was in reference to Kate Hall. Yeah. Uh, if you have sex with a girl who is into polyamory or any girl with a lot of partners who isn't into polyamory, it's probably wise to wear a condom, as well as if you don't want to get the girl pregnant. That's all good advice. But as far as the first thing he said about Helmuth and Poker Ho, and a lot of people from UB ran in that Wisconsin circle, that's totally true. Uh, Poker Ho was a nice guy, and as far as I know, he had nothing to do with any of the cheating. But a lot of these original UB pros... I'm not talking about after the whole cheating scandal. I'm talking about the ones who were UB pros like in the mid-2000s. 
they were not chosen because they were the greatest poker players in the world. They were chosen because they were friends with Helmuth from back in the day in Wisconsin. So this poker ho guy, Mark Kroon, was one of them. Uh, Sean Rice was one of them. And there were various other ones who, again, were not responsible for any of the cheating. But if you wondered how these like no-name players got to be UB pros, that is how. Because they knew Helmuth from Wisconsin, and he made them pros there. A little bit of UB trivia for you. So disposition is correct. I met a number of these people when I played at the Aruba tournament one year, which UB put on. And, you know, as I said, I have nothing against these people, but turned out that UB was dirty. Moving to the next FTX topic, Caroline, that is Caroline Ellison, has been rumored to be hiding in Hong Kong. The belief was that Caroline was afraid that as the CEO of Alameda Research, the recipient of $10 billion worth of cryptocurrency that was shuffled into her company without the knowledge of most people at FTX and definitely not of the customers who thought it was safe. And then she and whoever else at Alameda traded it away and chunked it all off and now it's gone. So there is some belief that she is concerned that she is going to be criminally charged and that she was trying to get to a country that was not going to extradite her. And I don't know if Hong Kong would extradite her for this, but supposedly she was in Hong Kong kind of hiding out and trying to find a way over to a country that for sure was not going to extradite her. And that's what the story has been. It was not verified anywhere. But that was the belief of what was going to happen. That was the belief of what was happening with her at the moment. And she had not been seen in public ever since this whole story broke. SBF has been seen all over the place in Bahamas, even by himself without any security, which is crazy. But Caroline hadn't been seen. So people were wondering, is that true? Because no one's seen her, so maybe she really is hiding out somewhere like Hong Kong. It would make sense, right? Well, we now have an answer to that, where Caroline really is. Caroline, Caroline. she's the reason for the word witch. I hope she's speeding on the way to the club, trying to hurry up and get to a bar or a site or somebody like that, and try to put on her makeup in the mirror and crash, crash, crash into a ditch. So where is Caroline? Did she crash into a ditch? No. Caroline, it turns out, is not hiding at all. In fact, she's in a place where it is very difficult to hide, especially if you go out in public. That would be New York City. New York City! Caroline has been spotted walking around Manhattan and going into coffee shops and acting like she doesn't have a care in the world. So she is not hiding at all. Yeah, New York City. That's where she is. This was found by someone who was in the same place that she was getting coffee. And then they sent a picture they took. They surreptitiously took a picture of Caroline 
from a little bit of a distance ordering her coffee. It is kind of funny that someone is doing this instead of just confronting her. Like, if you're that concerned that Caroline is just walking among us, why not just go up to her and say, are you Caroline Ellison? What do you have to say over what happened? Where did the money go? Why did you help SBF steal $10 billion to invest? Like, Why not say that to her? What's she going to do? Are you afraid she's going to kick your ass? <laughs> it's a small woman. He's afraid to confront her, whoever took this picture. But some dude took the picture and sent it over to an account on Twitter called Autism Capital, which I was already following. It's kind of like a semi-parody account regarding cryptocurrency. So I was already following them, but they've really blown up ever since the whole scenario with FTX became apparent to the public. And they've been very aggressively covering the subject. So someone sent it over to Autism Capital. And then Autism Capital posted the picture and asked for people to verify. Now, it really looked like Caroline because she has a pretty unique look. Not a very attractive look, but nevertheless unique. And she even has unique glasses, these like big glasses she wears. And she has a unique looking nose. And just her whole facial profile is not all that common. So while it was kind of a distant photo, it did look a whole lot like Caroline right down to the glasses. Then some eagle eyes on Twitter noticed that there was a little dog next to her. And they identified that as being the same dog that was seen with her in pictures in the Bahamas before all of this happened. So that made it even more likely that it was really her. Furthermore, there was a dude standing with her who was identified as someone else in the effective altruism community, which, of course, you know she's part of, too. So that really, really made it likely that it was really Caroline. And then finally... The supervisor of the barista who is serving her coffee showed up on the Autism Capital thread and confirmed it was her. And in case you think it's a troll account, I went and looked at it, and it's actually an account of this person who has long identified himself of being an employee at uh, one of these coffee places in New York City. So this person has tweets going way back indicating that's where he works. So unless he's just outright lying, which I doubt he was, then I'm sure you know, he that's who he really is, that he really was the supervisor of the person serving her and that he probably recognized her too and, and looked at the receipt of the credit card or whatever and saw it was really her. So all these factors together... And it definitely was Caroline Ellison there in some sort of coffee house right there in Manhattan in New York City, which is crazy. So why is she in New York City? Isn't she worried about getting arrested? Why would she just voluntarily come back to the U.S.? I mean, if, if you're not wanting to hide out in foreign countries, at least stay in the Bahamas. We already were like SBF is. But she just went right to U.S. soil in New York City. And is not even like hiding out in an apartment somewhere. She's going right out there in Manhattan, one of the most densely populated places on Earth and the most densely populated in the U.S. And just showing right up to coffee houses. And I'll give her this. She was not attempting to disguise her appearance in any way. 
It's not like she lost the glasses and changed her hair color and changed her hairstyle. And you know, there's things she could do to be less instantly recognizable. But this is the same Caroline that we've seen in all the pictures. So I will say she wasn't trying to hide at all. She has the exact same look as she always has. So not only was it definitely Caroline, it was Caroline not trying to hide that she was Caroline. So she just doesn't care if she's spotted, obviously. Which even if you want to put aside the whole legal implications, like being afraid she'll be arrested, she's not even afraid of anyone confronting her. Now, yeah, she had a dude with her, but you know what's he going to do? He's like just some regular dude. It's not like she has a really big, strong guy with her. He was just like a regular guy. He doesn't look particularly tough, so... Well, that's a little more protection than being out there by yourself. You know, if aggressive people who are mad about what happened confront her, uh, you know, it's got to be unpleasant at the very least. So, like, if I were in her shoes, I wouldn't want to be walking around in public, just like I wouldn't want to be walking around in public if I were SBF. And I'm not saying anybody should do anything violent to them. I'm just saying you got to worry about that when so many people got cheated out of their life savings. But yeah, she's just walking around. And what does this mean? Well, a few things. First of all, if she's walking around Manhattan with a dude from the effective altruism community, I have a feeling she's probably having sex with that guy. <laughs> Not that that really means very much or is all that relevant. I'm just mentioning it, that if she's walking around with a dude from effective altruism in New York, yeah, this is probably the dude she's currently having sex with. Because as we saw in her Tumblr, she actually has a pretty high sex drive. And sometimes you look at a homely girl like that and think, oh, this is probably a girl who's kind of asexual. But she's not at all. If you read her Tumblr, like, she's really into dudes. So I, I have a feeling this is her current sex partner. But that aside, what this probably means, I would think, is that she has already made a deal with the government. That she's not afraid of being arrested at this point. She may have already contacted the government and said, okay, I will rat out SPF about everything if you promise not to charge me. And maybe they agreed. Or maybe they agreed upon some kind of light sentence. Something along those lines where she's not afraid, where she's actually coming to face the music rather than running for life. Because it does kind of suck to run for life. And who knows how much money she really has stored away. It's possible that she and SBF have stored away a lot of cryptocurrency that they could sell from another country and live very comfortably the rest of their lives, but it's also possible they just lost everything, especially her, and it's possible they don't have really a path to living the rest of their lives in hiding. And maybe she just doesn't want to do it. Maybe she'd rather serve a short time in prison and then get out and live as normal of a life as she can rather than running from the law for the remainder of her life. So that may be what's going on here because she wasn't the ringleader, and maybe... The feds would rather just get SBF and are willing to give her a light sentence in exchange for her cooperation to bust him. So it could be something like that. Otherwise, I don't know what she's doing. Like, why make it easy for the feds to bust you? And we can learn this from my former radio co-host, not on this show, but the previous show I was involved with, uh, Brian Mikon. Because for all the criticism I've had for Brian Mikon, he did do a smart thing when the Nevada authorities were coming down on him for running seals with clubs, that he quickly got up, left the country. And the reason this was smart was that when they eventually charged him, because he wasn't charged yet, so he was just 
in a position where he knew he was going to be charged. His home was searched, and they seized his stuff, but they didn't arrest him yet. So he bolted the country because there was no restriction regarding him leaving. They hadn't charged him with anything. He went to Antigua, and then he was the one with all the power in the situation because he basically told the Nevada officials who were pressing charges on him that he's only going to come back and face them if they give him a sweetheart deal. And if they won't, okay, he's just going to stay in Antigua, and Antigua's not going to extradite him for this, and he'll just live happily there. So if they'd like to charge him and have him come back and plead guilty, then they need to agree to very favorable terms. And he retained attorneys who are experts at getting this done in uh, Chesnoff and Schoenfeld. And while it costs him a pretty penny, yeah, he came there and uh, spent all of like two hours in jail. And then everything else was a suspended sentence. And uh, he ended up pleading guilty to one misdemeanor. So he got off very easily considering what he was originally charged with. But he wouldn't have had this power if he stayed around in Nevada for them to arrest him. But he got over to a foreign country where they were not going to extradite him, and then he had all the power at that point. So Caroline could have done that. She could have gone somewhere and just said, okay, I'll come back when you make a favorable deal with me. And by the way, they will never trick you in that spot. They'll never claim they're going to make the favorable deal, and then when you get there, ah, we're just kidding. Okay, now we're going to throw the book at you. They don't ever do that because it's very important for DAs to have the credibility of their deals. Not only could this get them into legal hot water if they attempt to press the criminal charges and they would look very bad in court, but also they want the criminals they negotiate with to know that they keep their word with the deals that are offered. So if you're offered a deal like that, like, hey, come back and face the music and we'll charge you with no more than this, then they will always keep it. And, and he knew that, and his lawyers knew that. So that's how Mikan got charged so lightly at the end, and that's what I would think Caroline would do. But apparently not, unless she already has made that deal. So that's why I think she's made that deal. I think she has agreed that when they eventually do charge her, that she's not going to try to avoid the law, that she's not going to avoid being arrested. She's not going to leave the country again. She'll she'll wait right around there in New York for them to come arrest her. But that they've agreed that with her cooperation, she's not going to get more than X time in, in jail or prison or whatever. That's my guess. Or she could just be reckless <laughs> or overconfident they're not going to charge her and just came back. But otherwise, you think that's kind of weird. Last FTX update. You've probably seen that SBF is doing a tremendous number of media appearances. And I'm sure you have the same question on your mind as I do. Why? Why would someone who is probably going to face criminal charges giving so much ammunition to prosecutors because every word he says on these broadcasts can be used against him. So they can comb through everything he goes on and use his own words against him in court because he is knowingly recording himself for these broadcasts. It's different if someone were to sneak in a recording device in a place where it's illegal to do that, where there's no one-party consent law, where there's a two-party consent law, where both people have to know they're being recorded. It's one thing if someone does that and records him without his knowledge and then he can get it thrown out in court. 
if he knowingly goes on to any kind of show that is broadcasted to the public, then that is completely admissible in court. Everything he says is completely admissible in court. So why would you ever do that? The first thing your attorneys are going to tell you if you're criminally charged is to shut up, to put out all statements through them, to not go on shows about what happened, to not tweet about what happened, which he's doing a lot of too, to basically just shut up. Shut up in all ways and anything you want to put out there, run it by their office and they will put it out for you. So they're sure that the statements being put out are not going to harm you later. Criminal attorneys never want to see you putting statements out there that are not closely vetted and moderated before these statements are seen by the public or heard by the public because they don't want you to say anything that can further incriminate you. So I'm sure his attorneys are going crazy about this. So why would he be doing it? I mean, he's not stupid. This is a very manipulative guy. So what could this possibly mean? Why is he doing it? And what is this going to mean for his future regarding criminal charges? Well, only SBF knows why he's doing all these media appearances. But my belief is that he really thinks that he can turn public sentiment. And that if he just goes on these shows over and over and over again and keeps repeating that he didn't knowingly do anything wrong, that he didn't steal, that he was just an over-aggressive tra- trader who let things get out of control, that he wasn't monitoring closely enough FTX's finances, that if he puts this out here over and over and over and seems like an okay guy, that maybe public sentiment will change and there will be much less public bloodlust to see him get criminally charged in a harsh manner. That's my only guess of what he thinks he's going to accomplish here. Or maybe he thinks that he can get credibility back and then maybe sometime in the future after he gets past all this that he can run another crypto business and people will trust him. Now, would you ever trust him? Would you ever trust SBF to manage your money or crypto again in any way? Even if he were to allow, if they were to allow him to do it, would you ever trust this? Obviously not. Nobody would ever trust him again to manage anything unless they were a complete moron. So I think this is more delusion than anything else. I don't believe there is a real logical utilitarian purpose for what he's doing. There might be in his head, but not one that actually makes any sense. And that's why criminal defense attorneys always tell you the less you say in public, the less you write to the public when you're criminally charged or about to be or likely to be, the better. That is the first thing they will all tell you. And even if you assure them, oh, I know what to say and what not to say, don't worry, you can trust me, they will say, nope. Again, we are urging you, do not make public statements about this, put everything out through us, do not tweet about this. They will all say that universally. You won't find any competent defense attorney that will tell you, yeah, sure, go ahead and tweet about this. Yeah, sure, ahead and go on a bunch of shows about this. But he is, and he's going on big shows, small shows, mainstream media, even Twitter spaces, you know those Twitter spaces where you can listen to people talking on there? He goes on those too. <laughs> he's, he's appearing everywhere. He's appearing so much, I don't even listen anymore. 
It used to be like a big event. Oh, my God, SBF is going to speak out. Let's listen to what he has to say. Now he's on like so many things I don't even bother to listen because it's the same stuff every day. It's the same stuff said in a slightly different manner to different hosts, but it's basically the same message every day. But he's going on so many of them. So I think the guy just is delusional, doesn't quite have all his marbles, and really believes he's going to talk his way out of this. And his attorneys, I'm sure, are telling him, don't do it. But he doesn't care. He's doing it anyway. Now, will this come back and bite him? Very possibly. Because when the government eventually makes their criminal case against him, and I think there's a high chance they will, they will have a very, very large body of audio and video evidence that they can go through and pull clips out They either contradict each other or have him confessing to things. Now, he's not trying to confess to wrongdoing, but you can pull things that don't make him look good and that are almost essentially admissions of guilt. The only thing he won't cover and won't discuss and dodges the question when you bring it up is what happened to the money? Was there a backdoor in... FTX that allowed you to transfer it out to Alameda. Did you take customer money and transfer to Alameda? Like He's been asked this, but he just won't answer it. He dodges the question. Oh, I wouldn't knowingly take any money that belonged to other people. Like He'll say things like that, but he will never just say, no, I didn't. No, I never took customer funds. Like He won't say that, which, of course, if he didn't do, he would say. So his not answering to that is already very telling. But he's put out so much material, and because we all know he's guilty, all they have to do is find within all that material things that will harm him in a criminal trial and make him look more guilty, and this can be used against him. So you never give the prosecution additional material to convict you, and that's all he's doing here. There's no good that can come out of it. It's not like if he goes on enough of these and convinces enough people that he's innocent that he won't be charged. He may think that. But that's not how it works. And no matter what he says, he's not going to convince many people. Now, there's some ass kissers out there who had a previous relationship with him who say, oh, you know, I think I believe him. I I think he wasn't knowingly doing anything wrong. I think he just kind of let things get out of hand. There's a few morons on Twitter. And when I say morons, I don't just mean like randoms, but people who are known in the crypto space or figures who are known in other spaces that have dealt with him in the past that are giving him the very undeserved benefit of the doubt. So I could see where some of those people may come forward and have come forward in his defense, but that doesn't mean anything. That's not going to stop him from getting criminally charged. There's no way he's going to convince the general public that he is innocent. In fact, it just gets people angrier to hear him dodge the important questions because he'll ramble, 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 spit out all these numbers and all this crap. And then when you ask him the very direct questions, what happened to that $10 billion? How did that go from FTX over to Alameda? Was there a backdoor, yes or no? You say you didn't knowingly transfer. Are you denying that you transferred it at all? Like, can you come out and just say, I did not take customer funds that were at FTX? and bring it to Alameda. And he won't say that. He'll just dodge the question. They try to get him to say it, but he won't say it. So he probably thinks he's being smart. Oh, I'm not admitting to the things that are going to get me in trouble. But that doesn't matter. He's talked so much 
that a lot of this can probably be used against them in court. I mean, it all could be, but they will be able to pick out snippets of all these interviews that will really make him look bad. Big mistake on his part. And I definitely hope he gets criminally charged. I hope he does spend time in prison. That's where he belongs. And you should not believe his bullshit. This is a guy who stole $10 billion because he felt in all of his narcissism that this is money that he can trade with, that people deposited to FTX. So if he thinks that he can make more money with it, well, he'll just go ahead and borrow it for that purpose. He thought it was his right to do. And for that, he belongs in prison and for a long time because the, the incredibly high amount of money that was stolen. This is the largest amount of money ever stolen in a circumstance like this. This is the biggest scam ever. $10 billion. It's crazy. $10 billion worth was stolen. This is bigger than the Madoff situation by a lot. So of course he belongs in prison. And anybody who was an accomplice here, anyone who knew what was going on or should have known, also belongs in prison, including Caroline Allison, including Daniel Friedberg, including any of the others. All right, let's move on. The new controversy in Hustler Casino Live. But for once, it doesn't have to do with a hand that was played. It has to do with an outfit, or shall I say the lack of an outfit. There is an Asian female poker player who goes by the name Sashimi. Her real name is Yuki Kaeda. Y-U-U-K-I-K-A-I-D-A. Yuki Kaeda. And supposedly she's either married to or in a long-term relationship with Joseph Chiang. And she's appeared on Huster Casino Live a number of times. And people have been curious about her. And she is attractive. People have already been talking about her prior to what happened here. But something very notable happened here that is now appearing all over the place. Not just on poker news sites, but also general news sites that are kind of gossipy in nature, like brobible.com and other ones like that that don't normally cover poker. So she was on what's known as Max Payne Monday, which is a Hustler Casino Live game where it's not as high stakes as the other games they have, but where you're encouraged to needle people, where you're encouraged to slow roll. Basically, the gimmick there is you're supposed to kind of be an asshole and make life miserable for the other players. That's the main point of Max Payne Monday. It's just a gimmick. So Sashimi was on there, and this was this past Monday. At one point, her outfit just kind of opened up during a hand. I'm talking about her top. So her top kind of just opened up, and she's just sitting there playing as if nothing's going on, as if everything's normal. But then with her top opened up, you can see very clearly both large breasts of hers with the nipples sticking right out. Like you see everything. It's right there. One of them is more visible than the other. One of them is kind of still hiding under this 
transparent slip-like top she was wearing, but the other one was just like hanging right out there with the nipple even kind of looking hard. So people are looking at this and going, what the hell? Did she really do this? And this clearly was not an accident. This was not a matter of where something happened. This wasn't a wardrobe malfunction, as they call it. She very intentionally wore this and very intentionally opened up her shirt and just had her breasts hanging out, nipples and all, for people to see on camera. And the camera's right on it. It's not like they quickly moved the camera away. Now, I know Hustler Casino Live loved to show Poker Bunny in her very skimpy outfits and everything like that, but you never saw her bare breasts there. You could find her bare breasts elsewhere on the web, but, but not there, not on Hustler Casino Live. So what was really going on there? Were we really just seeing a direct shot of Sashimi's breasts? Well, not quite. What actually happened was this was a prank, and this was something she planned beforehand, where she bought a costume, and it actually looked very good on camera. Like, you couldn't tell by looking at it that it was fake, unless you really, really look closely. And there's still some people who don't want to believe it was fake. But she actually had on a fake pair of breasts under that transparent shirt she was wearing. And this was all planned, that she just kind of open it up and sit there acting like everything's normal with breasts hanging out, but they are not her breasts. These were plastic breasts that were part of the outfit she was wearing. So you did not see her boobs. You're, you're seeing a costume. I could put those on. You could put those on. You could have those exact same breasts because they're not hers. They're not human breasts. They're a costume. So this is a gag. This is a prank. This is the broadcast. All right, Sashimi, come on. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking away from the screen right now. Are you guys? Small one. Fuck! Yeah. <laughs> Sashimi, fix, come on. Please. <laughs> so as you hear, she's just acting like everything's normal in the middle of the hand. Someone went all in. I forgot it was her or somebody else, but whatever. Like a poker hand's playing out. She's just sitting there with the supposedly real breast, but a fake breast hanging out. And the commentators are like, oh, I'm looking away. Sean Shimi, come on. Come on, Sashimi, what are you doing? But they didn't even sound serious like they were outraged. In fact, it kind of sounded from that like it was bad acting, like they knew this was coming. And the camera stayed right on that. It's not like the camera moved away or at least moved to a different angle. It just sat right on that. Hustler Casino Live is denying that they knew that this was going to happen. They did acknowledge that this was a joke. Nick Vertucci tweeted, it's a bodysuit and a joke. And Ryan Feldman later said the same thing and indicated that he did not know that this was coming. The reaction to this was very mixed. Some people just thought this was amusing. Some people, in fact, were disappointed that these were not her real breasts. They were hoping they got to see her real breasts, which looked nice there, but they weren't real. (laughs) And I guess on the camera, it's not as obvious they're fake as if you were right there in person. Because if you're sitting right next to her, you could tell it was a costume. But on camera, it's hard to tell. So at first, I believe they were real, too. But it was not. It was definitely fake. K.L. Clayton, who, if you remember, is a quadriplegic poker player. He did not appreciate this at all. He wrote, Welp, it's official and final. 
Hustler Casino Live is a joke and just objectively awful. There is zero that can be done to fully rebuild credibility. And that's when Nick Fertucci said back, it's a bodysuit and a joke. And then another Twitter poster who goes by Software Test at Brian WSOP, I believe he listens to the show, he wrote, how does it being a joke improve your credibility? Everybody, why aren't there more women in poker? Nick Fertucci, not enough nips? So he's basically trying to say that there's not more women in poker because of things like this, and Nick Fertucci is just making it worse. Christopher Patrick Johnson, who is at seat three, exactly the sound, seat and then T-H-R-E-E, wrote, it's bad for poker, like Helmuth, makes us all look like clowns. Person named Joseph W., who's hockey underscore poker on Twitter, said the degen stigma already puts it at a disadvantage, or does it? Now, of course, Hustler Casino Live survived the whole Jack Four offsuit debacle, and they've moved on, and it looks like they haven't really lost audience here. So, compared to that, this is just going to be a blip on the radar. But was this really a big deal? I know it's not a huge story like the Jack Four offsuit thing, but is this something we should even care about? Is this something that matters? Should we even be giving them a hard time or should we be giving her a hard time? Is this something inappropriate or is it just kind of a funny little joke they did that we shouldn't be all bent out of shape about? Nadia Magnus, who runs these competitions every so often to give away free seats to tournaments for women only. She's like a big women in poker advocate. In fact, she was the one who awarded a World Series main event seat to Shelby. I'm forgetting her last name, but the one from Kentucky who got pretty far. She was actually a recipient of one of those seats. But Nadia wrote, I guess I'm too old for this shit. Why try to bring more women into poker if women are making themselves into an object of a sexual joke at a poker table intentionally? Why do I even try? Well, I think this is all much ado about nothing. I don't agree with Nadia. I don't agree with Kale Clayton. I don't agree with any of these people. While I do agree that this was a bit crass, we have to remember where this poker game was being played. Hustler Casino. Why is it called Hustler Casino? Is it because there's a lot of hustlers there? No. Is it because people hustle very quickly around the place? No. It's called Hustler because it is named after Hustler Magazine. Why is it named after Hustler Magazine? Because it was founded by Larry Flint, who also ran Hustler Magazine. And Larry Flint didn't have to call it Hustler Casino if he didn't want it associated with Hustler Magazine, which was really the first mainstream hardcore porn magazine. So... Hustler Casino, it didn't have to be called that. He could have called it anything, even if he owned it just like he owns, or or shall I say owned, because he's not alive anymore. But he could have called it something else and not associated with the magazine. But he called it Hustler because he was very proud of his pornographic magazine that everybody knew, Hustler. And he wanted the casino named for that to be part of the Hustler empire. So while... At the Hustler Casino, there were no nude girls, there were no sexual acts taking place or anything like that. 
definitely the two were, were associated and not by accident. So this isn't like going to church. This is a game that's actually be, being streamed from a casino intentionally named after a hardcore porn magazine. And we do have to keep that in mind. So this is intentionally a raunchy show. And we already saw this a while ago with Poker Bunny. They kept inviting her on there because she was a pretty young female who was also kind of not mentally right in the head and would do weird things and people were entertained by that. And then she also would wear very, very skimpy outfits and show a lot of skin and show a ton of cleavage. And they would always focus on that. They focused way more on her than everybody else at the table. And that was not an accident. So again... That's what this is all about. The whole Hustler stream is about entertainment, about doing crazy and wild things, about getting your attention. And maybe you don't enjoy that, but that's always been the whole point of the show. It's never been a place for serious poker to be played. And I think most of you probably know that. So let's go back to whether this drives women out of poker. Have you ever asked a woman who doesn't play poker why she doesn't play? It's a serious question. Think of women that you know who don't play poker. Have you ever asked any of them, why don't you play? Well, if you have, I'm sure you got an answer like, I just have no interest in it. Or it just seems unpleasant to be in a card room. Or maybe even, well, I tried before and it was unpleasant at the table. And you ask, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, people are angry. They're yelling at the dealer. There's guys hitting on me. There's guys who aren't showing me respect because I'm a woman. You you may hear things like that. But the the main answer you're going to hear is, I'm just not interested. If you were to ask the girl I am with and have been with for 13 plus years, why don't you play poker? Because she doesn't. She's never played poker. If you ask her why she doesn't play, the answer would be, because I am not interested. I just don't want to play. And if you were to ask the wives or girlfriends of poker pros who don't play, that would be the answer in just about every case. I just don't want to. It's just something that doesn't appeal to me. But even the women who don't play because they've either had a bad experience at the table or just don't like the environment of live card rooms, you're never going to hear from any of them Well, I don't play because there's too much of a sexual environment there. Women are sexualizing themselves, and the whole environment is too sexual for me. Now, you may hear, I don't want to play because I don't want dudes hitting on me. There's just too many dudes and too few women, and I'm going to be constantly bothered by dudes trying to hit on me. You may hear that, but you're not going to hear that it's a sexual environment that they don't want to be part of. You're never going to hear that. So this is an invented narrative. This is a complaint which sounds right to them when they say it. And it's a good thing to bolster their outrage. But it's not true. That's not why we don't have more women in poker. Show me one woman that's ever said, well, I'd love to play poker, but I'm seeing girls sexualize themselves at the table and I can't be part of that. I can't be there for it. It's one thing if you don't want to sexualize yourself too, but how many women are not going to show up to a poker table because they see this happen on a stream? I'm not saying all women will love seeing it, 
But this is not going to keep women out of the game. That's not the way women think. And you know what? That's good. That's good that women don't think that way. It's good that women are not so weak-minded that something so trivial and stupid would keep them away from doing something they want to do. The truth is most just don't want to play. And the few that are driven away despite wanting to play, it's because of how they're treated or because they don't like the environment. It's not because of women sexualizing themselves. And we had the same stupid argument back in June when that masseuse named Cynthia, remember her, we had her on the show, when she did that joke nipple massage of Frank the Tank, one of the uh, male poker players there, and uh, they did a joke nipple massage for the camera, and then everybody at the table had a good laugh, and nobody was offended, and there were no kids anywhere around there because it's a 21-plus room where you can't enter if you're a minor. And there was this huge outrage about it, and Farrah Galfon was complaining about it, and then this got the attention of the World Series and of the company that she worked for, and then she ended up getting fired. We had her on here about the whole thing. You can go find it in an episode we did in mid-June of this year. But there were people saying, oh, this is driving women out of poker. No, it's not. Again, again, a masseuse doing a joke massage of a guy's nipples, which is clearly a joke is not going to keep women from the poker table. It's just not. And if you think I'm wrong, then show me one woman that's ever said that. Show me one out of all the women in the world. Show me one that has said, I'm not playing poker because of this. I wanted to play, but I saw Frank the Tank's nipples getting massaged in June. That's it. I'm not showing up. I wanted to play, but I saw a girl pull out her fake breasts in a joke on the Hustler Casino live stream, and that's it. I'm never touching poker again. That's not the way women think. That's not the way anybody thinks. So those that write such things just want to see themselves complain. They just want something to be outraged about. Now, if you want to say this isn't a good look or... I don't like to see other women do this because then men are going to assume that all of us want to sexualize ourselves at the table and we don't. So can you not do this again? Like that's a reasonable approach. I can see why women who are hoping to not be treated as sex objects when they go play poker, they don't like seeing a woman doing something which could sexualize herself and make men think, oh, I bet A lot of women are this way at the table. Like, I can understand that complaint. But this isn't keeping women away from poker. It just isn't. Now, if this were happening constantly, if women are constantly pulling out their boobs at the table, whether real or fake, uh, yeah, then I could see women not wanting to be part of that whole scene. It would seem like a strip club. But as a one-time prank, no. That's not going to keep women away from poker. So it's a stupid argument. I will grant you that it was crass. I will grant you that it was kind of weird. I will grant you that this isn't something you'd want to see all the time if you're a female in poker. But this was a joke. It was just a little prank that they were doing to be outrageous. I don't know if I believe Hustler Casino Live that they didn't know it was coming. They definitely didn't pull the camera away. 
and it's getting us talking about them again. And when I say us, I don't just mean me. I mean poker Twitter, poker media. There's a lot of coverage of this. In fact, there's coverage of this outside of poker media, as I mentioned. So yeah, I guess kind of mission accomplished. Here's what Ryan Feldman had to say. Remember, he's the co-owner there, along with Nick Vertucci. In response to Kale Clayton, and he's treading carefully here, because you don't want to come at Kale too hard because he's a quadriplegic. So he's probably going to come at him in a lighter way than he would just like an average dude criticizing him. But Ryan is never someone who just outright comes at people in a nasty fashion. He's always trying to maintain an air of politeness, whereas Nick is more like in your face. This is what Ryan said. Nothing but love and respect for you. Hope to meet you one day. You do a lot to grow the game. I I don't know if that part's really true. Like, I don't think there's like a ton of quadriplegics looking to play poker. I think it's nice that he can and that he can win. I think it's a great story. So from that standpoint, I think it's admirable that he's been able to accomplish this. It's, it's a hell of a lot harder for someone like him to be successful in the poker space than someone like me who has normal use of my body. So very tough what he's doing. I have respect for him for that. But I don't think he's growing the game. I just think he's an interesting story. But anyway, uh, Feldman goes on to say, but on a day we had a mega TikTok star who dates one of the most popular young singers in the world and three of the biggest poker vloggers saying HCL doesn't want to grow, poker is a bit much. In my opinion, we have done a ton to grow the game and gets lots of eyeballs. We bring in influencers, athletes, musicians, YouTubers, etc. We want poker to be bigger. In hindsight, I wish I knew that Sashimi was doing that and that might happen. Didn't know till it happened. I wish I vetoed it. Well, I don't know about that. Like Again, I think they may have said, okay, go ahead and do it. We're not going to acknowledge later that we knew you were going to. But most people will find it entertaining and innocent, even though it might be in bad taste and definitely unnecessary. Didn't know in advance what was going on and that could happen, but not sure it's that big a deal. Either way, we care a ton about poker and want to grow it a lot. Also, we stream five days a week. Everyone is free to pick the shows they like and ignore the ones they don't like. High stakes, low stakes, different formats, pros, recreational players, influencers, nipples, plenty to pick from if you don't like certain shows and like others. <laughs> That's kind of a funny last tweet, nipples. I mean, he's kind of right, though, about that. You don't have to watch if you think this is outrageous. So I said back, this is much ado about nothing. The casino itself is named after a hardcore porn magazine. This isn't a church function. Yeah, the prank was a bit crass, but who cares? This incident should be the least of poker's concerns right now. And that's the real point here. This incident should be the least of poker's concerns right now. It was a freaking fake pair of breasts. That's what it was. Not even her real breasts, her fake breasts. It was a costume. Why are we worrying about this? We just had a situation where money was stolen directly out of poker players' bank accounts. And it was done through regulated sites. Something that never should have been able to happen, and it did happen, to probably at least 50 players, maybe even more than 100. That is a big deal. That is a big deal. And even what happened with Nemo and Thalo rigging a contest as blatantly 
where people thought they had a chance to win a WPT seat when it was really being rigged for her boyfriend. Well, that's nowhere near as big of a deal as the thing with the bank thefts, but at least that is a scandal. At least that is something bothersome to think about. That is a very reprehensible event. But this? Who did this hurt? Seriously, who did this hurt? Did this hurt the eyes of innocent children? No, this is not a children's show. Did this harm anybody? No. Did it change anyone's perception of women in poker? I doubt it. I think all adults know, male and female, that all women are different, just like all men are different. Just because one woman does something like that at the table doesn't mean that all women are sex objects. I will agree that it's probably better to set an example, especially on a public stage, if you're a female, that you're conducting yourself in a respectful manner with grace and not sexualizing yourself at the table. Like, look at poker pros like Jamie Kerstetter or Daniel Anderson. Like, they would never do this. They show up to the table. They play normally. They act normally. You know, they're, they're pretty much indistinguishable from the dudes at the table, except they're women. And that's great. That's, that's what women should do at the table. But some women are different. Some like the attention. Some like the cleavage out. Some like to pull little pranks like this. Some don't mind if people sexualize them. That's the way the world is. Everybody's different. So there's a one-time prank. We just got to laugh at it and move on. Say, okay, yeah, you got us. We, we thought these were your real breasts and they weren't. Okay and move on. That's it, you know. That's all it was. It was a prank. We're all adults. It was on the Hustler stream. Keep remembering that. It's on the Hustler stream. Not the goody-goody church stream. But the Hustler, named after a porn mag stream. And it wasn't even her real breasts. So why is anyone bothered by this? Why is this a big deal? I think some people just like to hear themselves complain. I think people like to virtue signal and let you know how outraged they are. In general, I believe that anything with no real victim is not a big deal. And we shouldn't focus on it too much. So the situation back in June with the nipple massage, that didn't have a victim. This did not have a victim. And we're all among adults. We're all gambling here. So, like, who's really pure here? Whose pure eyes were corrupted by this? Let's be serious. And you know what? No one responded to me negatively when I made that tweet. Got a lot of likes. In fact, I got more likes than Ryan's tweets. But I did not get any negative comments. Because what can you really say back to that? I do believe that women should be treated with respect at the table. And anybody who has played with me I'm sure we'll have seen that I treat the women at the table the same way I treat the men at the table. And that is respectfully. I don't start problems. I don't talk down to people. I don't ever hit on women at the table, even if I were single. Even when I was single, I I never hit on women at the table. I never make sexual comments to them. I never make them feel uncomfortable. I treat everybody the same. The only way I don't treat people well is if they're treating me poorly. And it doesn't matter what gender they are. 
So I don't believe in any form of mistreatment or sexualizing women at the poker table. But at the same time, you can't hold women to this strict standard of how you feel they have to behave there. Now, I will say that if a woman sexualizes herself at the table and then complains later that she's not being taken seriously, well, that's her own fault. If a woman is leaving out a ton of cleavage and then says, why is nobody respecting my bets because I'm a girl? Or, you know, why are you staring at them? Like, Okay, if you're going to try to flaunt your body at the poker table and then you're going to be unhappy, people are staring at you or uh, or not respecting your three bets or whatever it is. Like, you're, you're trying to put out a certain image and then if people buy into the image you're putting out, you can't complain about it. So that's one thing. Now, you should still never mistreat anybody no matter how they're dressing at the table. You should still show respect to everybody at the table no matter how they're dressed. I'm not saying you shouldn't show respect. I'm just saying that I have seen cases where people try to get attention in a certain way and then complain later that people are giving them that attention. It doesn't make any sense to me. But that's not what Sashimi's doing here. Sashimi was not complaining that people were staring at that. Like she was expecting people to stare. That was the whole point of the joke. It was a joke. That's all. So while I have not always been positive on Hustler Casino Live, in this case, it really is no issue. We're going to do a bonus topic here. This is not on the schedule, but I wanted to cover it. Andy Frankenberger is a fairly known poker pro. I don't know how much he's playing these days. I think he's doing other things these days. Andy Frankenberger, who I knew of, but I don't know him personally. I've known of him for many years. Apparently, he is at the win, and I presume he was there to play this win series. He tweeted a picture of a room service receipt, and it was so expensive that he felt the need to tweet it out and even ask Alan Kessler who, of course, is known as the cheapest man in poker, the only man in poker known to be cheaper than me. He even tried to get Alan Kessler's attention to this, to get a comment from him. This is what he wrote. $100 room service breakfast for one at Wynn. Must admit, I felt a bit a sticker shock as I signed and thought to myself, what would Alan Kessler do? Let's take a look at his receipt. He ordered a fruit plate for $26, a win tradition, which I think is probably uh, some kind of traditional breakfast, for $40. Got charged an extra $2 for American cheese. I don't know if it was on top of what he ordered or what, or added to it in some way, but I guess it's $42 for this win tradition because he got two, $2 charged for the American cheese. He got a latte for $5. Then he was charged a $9 delivery charge and a $13.14 auto service charge of 18%, which is like an auto tip. And then he also got charged $6.87 of tax. So it added up to $102.01. Now, it was actually only $73 worth of food, But then when you add up all of the various surcharges, such as the $9 delivery charge, the $13 tip that was forced, and the tax that pushed it over 100. 
So how do I feel about this? Do you think I would ever order a breakfast at the Wynn just for me that would cost me over $100? Well, you know the answer. Absolutely not. Never. I would never do that. Even if I was like a billionaire, I wouldn't do it. I'm not even kidding. I'll never be a billionaire, but if if I was for any reason, I, I wouldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. It's the principle. But was this avoidable? Aside from not ordering room service in the first place, which I wouldn't. In fact, I've almost never ordered room service in my life. And I've been to a lot of hotels, spent long periods of time in hotels, especially during the World Series of Poker. I don't order room service exactly for this reason. Not only is it expensive, but you get surcharged to death. And it's just not worth it to me. And also, I hate the whole thing where they wheel it up there and then you go, up, this is wrong, or up, this is cold, or up, you didn't bring enough ketchup. Bye, you didn't bring enough this. You didn't bring enough that. And then you got to wait for them to go all the way back down and get whatever they forgot. Or if it's wrong, you got to wait for a whole long process of it coming back. It's so tedious. Like I, I've had it in a few times that I've ordered room service and things are not ideal. I just take it. This is one of the few things I just don't even bother to send back unless it's like inedible. So I've gotten food that's cold. I'm like, you know what? I'd rather just eat the cold food now than wait another hour for it to come back. So F it. Just I'll take it. So I don't even like room service, but to have to pay all this extra money for it is the extra kick in the ass, and that's why I don't do it. But let's put that aside. Let's say you do like room service. Well, first of all, what do you think the number one mistake Mr. Frankenberger made? Because obviously Andy Frankenberger didn't feel, he didn't feel that money was no object because he ordered room service, and I'm sure he's not dumb enough to think that at the win he's going to get a bargain on room service. So it's not like he thought he's going to get away for 25 bucks. So I don't know what he's expecting to pay, but he knew it was going to be marked up. He just was shocked to see for just a win traditional breakfast and a fruit plate that it comes up $102, which I understand is alarming. But what mistake did he make here? Well, the obvious mistake he made here is he didn't look at the prices. How do you order this shit without looking at the prices? Seriously. He must have not looked at a room service menu. He must have just called up room service and said, room service, hello? Yeah, uh, I'd like uh, some kind of breakfast. What do you have? Well, we have the Wynn traditional breakfast. It's uh, bacon and eggs and this and that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And uh, does it come with uh, cheese? Well, no, if you want cheese, it's extra. Okay, so I had some American cheese. And does it come with any fruit? Well, no. Okay, so I had a fruit plate too. Okay, I had a fruit plate. Okay, so, uh, and, you know, I'd like a coffee too. So so, uh, can I have a latte? Okay, sure. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. And then it comes up, and he's got this to sign for for $102, and he almost you know, falls off his feet. The way to avoid this is to look at the freaking room service menu, and then you'll see it, and then you can decide, is this worth it to me? And when you see these prices, it may not be. That's mistake number one. Never order anything from anywhere unless you see the price. Unless you're sure it's going to be so cheap, it doesn't matter. Like if if you want to walk into a fast food place and just order what you want from the menu and go, okay, how expensive could it be? It's fast food. Okay, fine. But anything like this, you always got to look at the price. That's mistake number one. Mistake number two is not to understand what you're ordering. 
So that kind of goes along with mistake number one. So let's say he wants fruit. So what he should have done was look through the menu, see what comes with fruit on the side, or see what you can substitute fruit instead of something. So I don't know what win tradition is as far as that breakfast. It's some kind of breakfast item that he's getting. But he could have looked through the menu, and it comes to certain sides, and he could have said, okay, instead of the hash browns, can I have a cup of fruit? Instead of this, can I have some fruit? Something like that. And then he could have avoided the $26. The problem is when you're just throwing on things that you'd like, then you may get an exorbitant charge because room service has wildly varied prices as far as how bad of a deal each one is. You're never going to get a good deal with room service, but there are some things that are just moderately expensive. For example, this $5 latte is not that terrible. And some things are wildly expensive, like the $26 fruit plate. And presumably this win tradition breakfast that's $42. So you've got to look and you'll find some things that are just way, way, way overpriced and other things which are prices you can deal with. And as I said, you can do substitutions so you don't have to buy something a la carte like the fruit plates. You've got to understand what you're ordering and how much it's going to cost. It's also helpful to familiarize yourself with the fee structure because they also vary from hotel to hotel. So maybe he would not have ordered it if he knew it was going to be a $9 delivery charge and a $13 auto tip. Remember, there's tax on top of all that too. So maybe with all these different surcharges, it's just not worth it. This just adds up to be too expensive. Maybe Andy would have gone down to order food in one of the restaurants there or even one of the to-go places if he knew this was going to be $102. So that's the answer. The answer is not to say, oh my God, how can the wind charge that? If you don't look at the menu and you just order, that's your fault. I'm actually going to defend the wind here because... You don't have to pay their room service prices. Now, there is an argument to be made, why is it so expensive? But the Wynn is one of the higher-end hotels on the Vegas Strip, so if they are charging high prices for room service, which is already known to be expensive, then you know, I can kind of understand that. Jess Wellman responded, nothing involving American cheese should cost 40 and he, she, he said back 42 Well, that's not completely fair. It was $2 for the American cheese that doesn't normally come with it. He added on the American cheese, it looks like. Someone at least said that it was free water, <laughs> which it was. There was an ice water listed there that he didn't get charged for. Yeah, just always know what you're paying for. I don't have that much sympathy for people who have the ability to look up the price and just choose not to. And, you know, there's some people who feel like it's gauche to ask how much something is, or you look like a cheapskate, or you look like an asshole, that's such bullshit. You can always ask how much something is. That's a very reasonable question in any setting. And if you don't, then you can't complain when you get overcharged. You can't have it both ways. You can't be, well, I'm too good to ask what the prices are. I'm above that. I'm in a luxury hotel. I'm not going to say, how much is this? I'm just going to order it. Well, okay, but then if you get charged 100 bucks for a simple breakfast, then it's your fault. So I don't like this whole line of, I don't ask what the prices are, and then when I get a high bill, I'm going to complain on Twitter. So sorry, Andy. No sympathy from me here. He asked, what would Alan Kessler do? 
Well, Alan Kessler would look at the prices. Hope you enjoyed our little unscheduled topic about the room service. Let's get back to Hustler Casino Live. I have an update on the Jack 4 offsuit story, but just a small portion of the story. Remember Brian Sagbixall, who was the Hustler Casino Live employee who stole $15,000 worth of chips off of Robbie's stack on the same night the Jack 4 offsuit hand happened, and they caught it on video, and they fired him? And then there was the weird situation where Brian did not get charges pressed on him at first, supposedly because Robbie didn't want to press them, and she had kind of a flimsy reason for why she wouldn't press charges, and that added to the whole suspicion of her. And then there was a weird exchange that they had which he posted on Twitter, which looked like it may have been fabricated. The, the whole thing was so bizarre. I mean, that, that's why everyone was so fascinated with the story. We've been over all this before. But the whole Robbie and Brian dynamic was weird. But if you cut through all that, we do have some facts that we know for sure. And that number one, Brian Sagbixall was caught on camera stealing 15000 off of Robbie Stack. Number two, Brian had access to the whole cards of Hustler Casino Live. Number three, since he was willing to steal, because he was caught on camera stealing, he obviously was willing to cheat. So the only question was not, would Brian cheat if he could get away with it? And it was also not, did Brian have access to the whole cards? Because yes and yes. The only question was, did Brian find a partner to cheat with him? Or did he just come up with the cheating idea a little bit too late before he got fired for stealing? But definitely, he would have had the motivation to cheat if he could. If he had a partner that he could signal that he could indicate what the whole cards were of their opponents, and then they would split the profits afterwards, 100% he would have done it. Why? Because he was willing to steal $15,000. Anyone willing to steal is willing to cheat. Show me one person that will say, well... I'm willing to be a, a thief and just outright steal chips, but cheating, yeah, that's too far. I won't do that. That's wrong. Of course they're not going to say that. Anyone willing to steal is willing to cheat. He had access to the whole cards. He obviously would have been willing to abuse that. Whether he did or not has to do with whether he found a willing participant with him. Because you can't just approach anybody and say, hey, you want to cheat with me? Like He had to be comfortable enough to ask someone to do it or somehow get in someone to the game that he already knew that did this with him. Some were alleging that was Robbie or Rip. I think that probably wasn't the case, but it could have been other people. It could have been people he snuck in at some point that were cheating that you never knew were friends of his. There's so many ways this could have gone. But for sure, there was someone in there with access to the whole cards who would have cheated and given someone the whole cards and given signals to them if he could find someone. I can say that for certain because how else can you explain his willingness to steal? And he tried to claim at least what was supposedly him, I think on 2 plus 2, claimed, oh, you know, I, I just kind of just did it. And he was making it sound like this was a spontaneous thing and he doesn't normally do this. I don't believe that. Whenever someone gets caught stealing, it's almost never their first time. With all that said, whatever happened with the pressing of charges? Because the last we heard, Robbie changed her mind and was willing to do it. But did she actually do it? Well, supposedly the answer was yes. But Andrea Chang, who's been covering this for the LA Times, and I'll give her credit, she's been following up as much as she can, she gave a little update on December 9th. 
She said, quick poker saga update on Twitter. The L.A. County DA's office told me today it has filed charges against Brian Sagbixall, the former Hustler Casino Live employee accused of stealing $15,000 from Robbie J. Liu, faces two counts of grand theft, and arrest warrant has been issued. Hmm. Now, remember, they lost track of him. Andrea tried to interview him. She found out where he was staying. He was staying with his girlfriend's family. And then he not only refused to talk to her, but was threatening he's going to follow her if she doesn't leave now, which is like the weirdest threat. You better leave now or I'm going to follow you. (laughs) That's what he said, apparently. So she left. And after that, I guess he didn't live there anymore. And now nobody can find him, including the police. I don't know how hard they're looking, but right now he is on the lam, so to speak. But there is an arrest warrant out for him. I don't know if it's like a bench warrant where if he has some kind of contact with a police officer, then he'll get arrested. Or if it's uh, more than that to where they're actively looking for him. I'm not sure, but whatever it is, there is an arrest warrant for him. And then he is being charged by the L.A. County DA's office with two counts of grand theft. So he will have to face up to this eventually, I'm assuming. At some point, I think he's going to be found. Now, it's possible he bounced and left the state, so maybe not. They're not going to extradite him for this. So that may be what he's done. That may be why he's hard to find. He may have realized that eventually the hammer is going to fall and he decided to just completely leave the state. I don't know why he wasn't arrested at the time. Nobody understood why the Gardena police required this. If they had him on tape stealing, why do they need Robbie J. Liu to press charges? That was one of the many mysteries of this. Only if Robbie were to say, oh, wait, he wasn't stealing from me. I told him he could take this on my stack. That would be the only way they couldn't charge him. Otherwise, if she said, I didn't know he was doing that, and yes, he was stealing, but I don't want to press charges, they'll say, well, too bad. We don't need you. And he stole the chips at Hustler Casino, so they can claim it was a crime against them as well. Even though it was not their property, that he did this in their casino. Like, if I were to steal chips off of someone's chip stack at a blackjack table at Bellagio, let's say I did that. Let's just say I walked up to somebody and grabbed chips off of their stack and ran off. And then security caught me. Let's say the people I stole it from, even though these were strangers who didn't know me, did, give, did not give me permission to do it, said, oh, I feel bad for this guy. Uh, I'd rather not press charges on him. That wouldn't matter. Because the casino would also be a victim of this. And the DA could press charges anyway, even without the victim's cooperation. It's not required that the victim has to press charges necessarily for the DA to go forward with the case. So the whole thing was weird. Like, why wouldn't the police arrest him? If he was clearly stealing, why wouldn't they arrest him? It'd be one thing if the police arrested him and then the DA said, you know what? This Robbie doesn't want to press charges. She's not going to cooperate. It's going to be a weak case. So screw it. We're not going to continue with this. But to not even arrest him? Very weird. The whole thing's so strange. So that's where it stands right now. There is a warrant for his arrest for two counts of grand theft, and I hope they get him. Hope he hasn't left the state. But that's why you arrest him at the time. That's why you don't give him weeks to run off. Very poorly handled by the Gardena police.
Yasiel Puig, former Dodgers player, is in the news again. He's really had an unfortunate series of events. At one point, Yasiel Puig really looked like he was going to be a very major star for a long time. So the Dodgers signed him out of Cuba, and he was a Cuban defector. They gave him a pretty long contract, but it wasn't a ton of money per year. I mean, to you and I it would be, but for baseball player standards, they weren't giving him a ton of money, but they gave him a fairly long contract. I think like six or seven years or something. And nothing was really known about him other than being a Cuban player. Well, they promoted him in 2013, and when they promoted him in mid-June of 2013, and I remember this very well because I'm a big Dodgers fan, the Dodgers were a fail team. They were a good deal under 500. They were way behind already in the standings. This looked like a terrible season. But between Yasiel Puig just killing it, I mean, he was doing everything right. He was hitting for power. He was hitting for average. He was stretching routine singles into doubles when the outfielder was sleeping. You know, he'd hit like a routine single to left field, and the outfielder would just kind of walk up to it and grab the ball and kind of lightly toss it back in. And usually nobody attempts to take second there. But when he would see that, he would sprint to second and get there and make it into a double. Very exciting player. And he had a cannon for an arm. If you hit it to him in right field, he would fire it back in. So you couldn't run on him. Let's say there's a man at third and a fly ball is hit to him fairly deep. Well, usually it's easy for the man at third to jog home and score on a sacrifice fly. Not against Puig. He would get it and immediately fire it to home plate, an accurate throw, very fast, and it would get there and the player would be shocked. (laughs) The runner would be shocked. Like, what? How did this get here already? And he'd be tagged out by the catcher. So he was great defensively. He was great offensively. He was hustling big time. Now he had his downsides too. He was very immature, very raw. He did some stupid things. He'd occasionally make a boneheaded play. He would sometimes not listen to the third base coach and run when he's not supposed to run, things like that. He would frustrate the manager, frustrate the players around him. Some teammates didn't like his antics, but he was a very exciting player. And in fact, Vin Scully, the recently departed longtime announcer for the Dodgers, he loved Yasiel Puig. In fact, Yasiel Puig was the reason that Vince Scully did not retire at the time. Vince Scully was already quite old. He was already 86 years old at the end of the 2013 season. He was going to retire, especially seeing how the Dodgers were playing so poorly. But thanks to Yasiel Puig and another player who came back from injury named Hanley Ramirez, the Dodgers went on a 43-7 and run out of the next 50 games. And they took first place and won the National League West. They did not win the World Series that year. But this was an exciting season. And Vince Scully wanted to continue announcing. This was the Dodgers' first division title since 2009. So they had gone three seasons without winning the division, without even making the playoffs. And now he was very inspired. And he called him the Wild Horse. So even though Puig was raw and he was someone who had his flaws, 
he was a very exciting player and he could do everything well. Puig then had some up and down years with the Dodgers and he didn't quite develop into the player they hoped he would be. That first season was his best season and even though he still had a tremendous arm defensively and even though some seasons he hit for pretty good power. For example, in 2017, he hit 28 home runs. And even though some seasons he hit decently for average, though never again like the 319 he hit the first year. But like in 2014, he hit 296. And he never hit worse than 252. And even though his stolen base total uh, was never really, really high, but he always stole like over 10 bases, or not always, but most years he did. A few years, for whatever reason, he wasn't stealing bases. He still was a productive player. And even in his final year, 2019, he had decent numbers between the Reds and the Indians. He hit 267 with 24 home runs, 84 RBIs, 19 stolen bases had an on-base percentage of 327. So these are all very respectable numbers. Not superstar numbers, but very respectable. The Dodgers had traded him at the end of the 2018 season to the Reds. That's why he was on the Reds, and then he got traded to the Indians. The problem was he was just more and more of a headache. So the hope was after the 2013 season, he was going to be a major superstar of baseball. He never became that. So even though he was still putting up serviceable numbers Teams are just kind of getting sick of him. And the trouble he would bring to the clubhouse, the unprofessional way he approached the game, was frustrating enough and enough of a disruption to where this just wasn't worth it to a lot of teams. He did sign with the Atlanta Braves in 2020 only to catch COVID during spring training, and then they decided, you know what, we're just going to release you. So he signed like a minor league contract with them. He was expected to make the team, and then he got COVID before he could really get going, and they just released him before he could ever start the year. So he never played again in the in the 2020s at all. He never played Major League Baseball after 2019. He has played in some international leagues since then, so he hasn't stopped playing baseball. But this isn't really a baseball story. I just wanted to give you a bank background in case you forgot. Yasiel Puig was also targeted by various individuals and organizations that was kind of unfortunate. He was smuggled into the U.S. as a defector, and after he was successful with the Dodgers and had this decent contract, he started getting threats. He started getting death threats by the Mexican gang that smuggled him in. And basically, it was told to him that he has to pay $2 million to them or they're going to kill him. And the Dodgers kept this quiet. And in fact, the Dodgers coughed up that money. They quietly coughed up that money and it came out years later that the Dodgers paid this basic, basically a ransom that he was going to be killed. This is when he was already in the U.S. That they were saying they were going to kill him in the U.S. if he doesn't pay up $2 million in return for smuggling him in because their position was, you made so much money because we smuggled you out of Cuba, pay us $2 million and we're killing you. That was the first bad thing he ended up involved with. But he can say, okay, that's not his fault. 
Well, the next thing definitely wasn't his fault. He was set up at Staples Center where the Lakers play. And I've talked about this before, but I'll recap it here. He was in this lounge, this like VIP lounge at Staples Center. And uh, he went into the ladies' room with a woman he had met. And they messed around in there. They didn't have sex, but they did some sexual stuff in there. And then later she claimed that he followed her in without her permission and sexually assaulted her. And then she sued him. Well, he ended up settling with her. But initially, his attorneys were trying to fight this. And they presented pretty compelling evidence. And they did this to try to clear his name in the public view. And it definitely cleared his name with me. That this was a complete setup. The woman in question was a lesbian and in a lesbian relationship. But she clearly had made contact with him first. This wasn't some random that he just followed into the bathroom from the VIP room. She had made contact with him before that on Instagram and flirted with him big time. This is a lesbian. And then they arranged to meet there. And then she must have told him, come into the bathroom with me. This is like a private room, so there's not many people are going to come into the bathroom at that time. It's not like a public bathroom in uh, the main Staples Center. So he went in there and messed around with her, and then she waited over 18 months and then sued him for it. And as his attorneys pointed out, she said nothing about this for over 18 months, so this way she could be pretty sure that any security footage of the whole thing was gone, and indeed it was. Furthermore, she had talked to him plenty after this. After this event, she was texting him and asking when he's going to come back into town. And uh, Could you imagine someone doing this with the person who followed them into the bathroom and sexually assaulted them? So she didn't even have good answers for this whole thing. The whole thing was a clear setup. And I don't know at what point they decided that they were going to set him up because you would think if it was a totally premeditated setup that she wouldn't continue uh, messaging with him afterwards. But I, I have to imagine it was some kind of setup, and then it evolved into this, and then they decided, okay, let's wait 18 months and then sue him and claim this encounter in the bathroom was non-consensual. It was 100% a setup. If you read the whole story, 100% the guy was set up. You can say he used bad judgment, but he did not sexually assault this woman. And celebrities, they do have to watch out for this, that they're going to get set up this way because they are seen as having deep pockets and they are seen as being very afraid of this type of scandal, especially these days. So that happened to him. Unfortunately, this made him untouchable to a lot of teams because uh, there's been a lot of attempts for the sports leagues to come down hard on men who are seen to sexually abuse or even physically abuse women. And I understand that, and that's a noble undertaking on their part. But they have to separate the truth from the trash. And anyone who is being falsely accused, that shouldn't be held against them. So in this case with Puig, while it wasn't that hard to figure out that he was set up, first of all, I think he was stupid to pay off the woman here, not just for the principle of the matter, but because it makes him look guilty. But second, this was just adding to the whole headache that was known as Yasiel Puig. So... If it was just this alone, then he'd probably have gotten past it. Like, look at Kobe Bryant. He probably did something wrong in his situation. I don't think it was as bad as was portrayed. But I think Kobe Bryant probably did something wrong in that whole situation where he was accused of rape. 
and we'll never know. And of course, he's not alive anymore. But he got past that whole thing, and he was still very beloved after that by most people. I know that was a bit of a different time, but it wasn't that long ago. That was in the 2000s. So Yasiel Puig, if it were just that, I think teams could have looked past it, especially seeing it was a setup. But because he was such a headache with everything else before this, they just didn't want to touch him. So this just added to the pile of reasons teams didn't want to touch him. Well, now there's something else to add to the pile. Yasiel Puig is now being charged by the feds for lying to the FBI. And not about this thing with the lesbian. Totally different situation. So I have an article here. It says, a former Major League Baseball player has agreed to plead guilty to a federal charge of lying to federal law enforcement officials about bets on sporting events that he placed with an illegal gambling operation. Yasiel Puig Valdez, which I've never known that was his full name. I thought he was just Yasiel Puig, but apparently his name is Yasiel Puig Valdez, who currently plays professional baseball in South Korea, has agreed to plead guilty to one count of making false statements, a crime that carries a statutory maximum sentence of five years in federal prison, which he won't get, by the way. They're just saying what the absolute maximum is. Puig, who formerly played for the Los Angeles Dodgers and two other MLB franchises, has agreed to pay a fine of at least $55,000. Puig has agreed to make his initial appearance on November 15th in U.S. District Court. Now, of course, it's past November 15th. Now I'll tell you what happened with that shortly. Under our system of justice, no one is above the law, said U.S. Attorney Martin Estrada. The integrity of our nation's criminal justice system depends on people telling the truth, and those who fail to abide by this simple principle must face consequences. When given the opportunity to be truthful about his involvement with Nix's gambling business, which I'll explain in a second what that is, Mr. Puig chose not to said IRS Criminal Investigation Los Angeles Field Office Special Agent in Charge Tyler Hatcher. Mr. Puig's lies hindered the legal and procedural tasks of the investigators and prosecutors. Lying to federal agents is a serious offense, said HSI Los Angeles Acting Special Agent in Charge Eddie Wang. There's a lot of people commenting on this. HSI Los Angeles and our partners will actively pursue those that seek to hinder the fair administration of justice. Under his plea agreement, which was filed on August 29th, in May 2019, Puig began placing bets on sporting events through a third party, identified in court as Agent One, who worked on behalf of an illegal gambling business run by Wayne Joseph Nix, 46, of Newport Coast. Puig called and sent text messages to Agent One with wagers on sporting events. Agent One then submitted the bets to the Nix gambling business on Puig's behalf. By June 2019, Puig owed Nix's gambling business $282,900 for sports gambling losses. So, yes, Yasiel Puig is a sports betting ploppy. He is someone who is not a good sports better, which truthfully describes almost all sports bettors. Almost all sports bettors lose. That's a sad fact. Now, if you want to see some good sports bettors, take a look at the Flying Stupidity Wagering thread where we have a lot of good sports bettors posting their picks. And there's some amateurs there who aren't as good posting their picks as well, but it's a mixture. But there's a lot of good, knowledgeable people there too. And there's even some picks that I have gone along with that otherwise I would not have bet on that have been good picks there and I've won money with. So it's a good thread. I'm not going to guarantee anything because you never know with sports, but I think it's a great thread. You can follow my picks, especially in football. You, you want to follow me in football. Basketball, not so much. 
Basketball, even though I had a good day yesterday, I, I am down this year in basketball, but I'm killing it in football this year in the NFL, and I, I even did fairly well in NCAA football this year. So football, I've done great this year. But anyway, back to this whole thing. Uh, Puig did not read that thread and was making ploppy sports bets and lost $283,000 and owed that to this Knicks guy who ran the bookmaking operation. Goes on to say, Agent 1 and another person identified in court papers as Individual B instructed Puig to make a check or wire transfer payable to Knicks and his gambling business client identified in court as Individual A to whom the business owed at least $200,000 in gambling winnings. So basically, uh, Puig was instructed, instead of sending it directly to this Knicks guy, that they should send it to this person who was beating the bookie and who Knicks owed money to. So instead of paying him directly, he's like, hey, pay my client I owe money to. On June 25th, 2019, Puig withdrew $200,000 from my Bank of America branch in Glendale, California, then purchased two cashier's checks for $100,000 that were made payable to individual A, that is the winning gambler who was owed money by Nix. Puig did not immediately send the checks due to a dispute over the balance and access to Nix-controlled websites used to play sports bets. Nix refused to allow Puig to access the betting websites until Puig's gambling debt was paid. So let me explain all that. The way modern bookies work is they have a website that you can access and bet with. These sites only handle the transactions, but they don't handle the money. So this way, Puig can place all the bets on there. He doesn't have to keep calling Knicks and say, okay, yeah, place this much on the Lakers today. Okay, yeah, place this much on the Rams. Like He doesn't have to do that. He can do it all through the site, and at the end of the week, they settle up for whoever's ahead. So this Knicks guy apparently told Puig, look, you're at 283k in the hole. You're not betting anymore until you pay this off. The reason he would do this, even though this site doesn't handle the money, so why would it matter, is because he didn't want Puig free-rolling him. So he didn't want Puig continuing to pay to place bets until he's gotten paid for what's already owed. Otherwise, Puig could just keep placing, placing, placing with the intention to not pay if he continues losing. And if he wins, okay, then he knocks his balance down and he either pays less or he doesn't or, you know, he gets back out of the hole because he's probably placing pretty big bets and then he never has to pay anyway. So that would be a free roll. So it made sense why Nick said, no, you're going to not place any bets through me until you pay what you owe already. So that was reasonable, except the problem was this whole thing was illegal. So Puig, in the meantime, said, okay, well, if you're not going to reopen the site, I'm not going to send those checks to your client. Well, Puig finally backed down. It says, after Puig paid the $200,000, Nix provided Puig direct access to the betting websites. From July 4th, 2019 to September 29th, 2019, Puig placed 899 additional bets on tennis, football, and basketball games through the websites. So not only was Puig placing a ton of bets, I mean, we're talking about a period here of three months, July, August, September, even a little less than three months. And he placed 899 bets, which means he was placing in excess of 10 bets a day. And I have a feeling Puig didn't know a lot about all this stuff. Like, how much do you think Yasiel Puig knew about tennis? I don't think very much. I think he's just firing. In January 2022, federal investigators interviewed Puig in the presence of his lawyer. 
During the interview, despite being warned that lying to federal agents is a crime, Puig lied several times. During the interview, he falsely stated that he only knew Agent 1 from baseball and that he never discussed gambling with him, when in fact Puig discussed sports betting with Agent 1 hundreds of times on the telephone and via text message. So the agent, by the way, is Agent 1. This next guy was not directly handling Puig, except for this payment that he owed. This agent was the guy who was interfacing with Puig about everything, so... The agent is the one who handles the money, and the agent is the one who probably uh, deals with all the things involving Puig and the business, and this Nick's guy who owns the business probably only gets involved for high-level things, such as demanding Puig pay up finally and making the decision he can't continue playing until he pays off what he owes. So the agent is the one who handles most of the day-to-day stuff. So basically, the FBI was claiming that Puig lied to them and that I guess this agent was someone that Puig must have originally known from baseball and that when they asked him what is your association with this guy who's the agent Puig said oh I don't really have any I only knew him from baseball and I never discussed gambling with him when in fact this was this was his agent to the whole operation and that they had hundreds of communications between him and this agent talking about the whole operation and the bets he wanted to place and everything involving that. So he just blatantly lied, like, no, this guy wasn't my agent. I don't know what you're talking about. He's just some guy I knew from baseball, and that was a lie. So they charged him with that. After agents showed Puig a copy of one of the cashier's checks he purchased on June 25th, 2019, Puig falsely stated that he did not know the person who instructed him to send the $200 in cashier's checks to individual A. Puig also falsely stated that he had placed a bet online with an unknown person on an unknown website that resulted in a loss of 200000 So he's like, at first, I don't know who told me to send that $200,000. They're like, okay, well, why would you have gotten these cashier's checks to send $200,000 to someone you don't know? And he said, oh, well, I just went on some random website and placed two hundred k worth of bets and lost, and I, I had to send that to pay back. And they're like, no, that's, that's not true. You knew everybody here. So, yeah, I believe he lied to them. It also says in March 2022, Puig sent individual B an audio message via the WhatsApp app where he admitted to lying to federal agents during the interview two months earlier. Nix pleaded guilty on April 11th to one count of conspiracy to operate an illegal sports gambling business and one count of filing a false tax return. His sentencing hearing is scheduled for March 8th, 2023. Federal prosecutors today also filed a plea agreement for former MLB player Eric Christian Hilgis, 49, of Panorama City, which is in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, who agreed to plead guilty to two counts of subscribing to false tax returns and will face up to six years in prison upon entering his guilty plea. Hilgis was an agent for Nix's illegal gambling business but did not work with Puig. So this is a different agent. This is not Agent 1. They're just mentioning that a related agent in this operation who is also a former baseball player has pled guilty and they're going to sentence him at some point in the future. So is Puig going to prison because he pled guilty, right? Well, it's not that simple. 
Puig has decided that he's going to withdraw the guilty plea. And you can't just easily do that. You can't say, oh, I plead guilty. Oh, wait, hold on. I don't plead guilty. You have to give a reason for why you're changing your plea. So the reason he is giving for changing his plea is that at the time of questioning, he had untreated mental health issues. Now, do I believe that? Well, I do think he probably has some overall mental health issues. The guy just is very unstable, and he always has been. But do I believe that caused him to lie to the FBI? No. Why do I think he lied to the FBI? I don't even think it was really to protect these people that they were questioning him about. Because keep in mind, they weren't looking to charge him then. They just wanted info about this operation. And I'm sure they told him this. I'm sure they said at the time, Puig, we're not looking to put you in prison. We just want you to cooperate with us to help bust this sports betting operation that you were betting with. And then he was not cooperating and just outright lying to them. However, I think the reason he did it is because remember what he does for a living. He is a professional baseball player. And they have very strict policies in baseball that you cannot gamble. Not only can't you gamble on baseball, you can't gamble at all. So if he were to admit, on top of everything else, that he was gambling with this shady bookie, then that's going to be an even tougher road to come back to Major League Baseball. And keep in mind, he's getting older and older. He's now uh, 32, I believe. Even with a normal player who doesn't have all these issues, who passes age 30, teams stop wanting to sign them as much unless they're elite players. So when you're a big headache, and you're over 30, and it's been now four years since he last played in Major League Baseball, and now he's seen as a problem gambler who's gambling with shady bookies, I mean, he's not even allowed to legally bet on sports according to Major League Baseball rules. It's not a crime, but it's against their rules. So he was doing it when he was playing for the Indians and the Reds in 2019. So if he admits that he was betting with these operations then, both gambling when he wasn't supposed to and gambling with an illegal bookie, these teams aren't going to want to touch him. Because you add that on top of that sexual assault allegation, even if it was bullshit, and on top of all the headache he brought to teams before all of this, no one's going to want to sign him. Even if he can still hit as well as he did in 2019, which, as I said, was serviceable and decent, but not anything special. So that's why no team's going to want to touch him. And he knows that. So he kind of felt that was going to be the death of his Major League Baseball career. He could probably keep playing in South Korea or wherever, but if he wants to come back to Major League Baseball, which is his goal, this was going to be the final straw, and he knew it. So he just didn't want to admit to being part of this because he knew it would be a story that would get out in the press because it's interesting. He's a notable person. So if he were to admit to all this, it would make it into court documents and it would be reported that Yasiel Puig was one of the clients of this guy, Nix, who pled guilty. So he kind of felt like he had no choice if he wanted to continue his major league career, which wasn't yet continuing, but he was hoping would. That's why he did it. I'm sure of it. Now, does that excuse lying to the FBI? No. 
But you know how many people lie to law enforcement? It's very common. Very, very common that people do not tell the truth to law enforcement, either to protect friends, to protect family members, to protect themselves, just to not be seen as being a snitch. There's a lot of reasons people lie to law enforcement, and very few of them ever get charged. So to federally charge a customer of a bookie who just didn't want to admit he was a customer of a bookie because he is a professional baseball player and it would ruin his career, I mean, that's, that's kind of crappy. That looks like just some prosecutor who wants to get another notch in his belt rather than really furthering the cause of justice. And that's the problem with a lot of these federal prosecutions is they are motivated by prestige or something political. This was not political, but this was probably motivated by prestige where someone gets to charge Yasiel Puig and get that feather in their cap. And it may have been motivated out of anger that he wasn't telling them the truth when they kept warning him he needs to. I'm not saying that he was a saint here by any means. I'm not saying this is justified to lie to the FBI about this. But you have to take a look at the intent here. He wasn't trying to obstruct. He wasn't trying to protect this guy. He wasn't trying to ruin the investigation. He just didn't want to have his career ruined over it. So you'd think they'd kind of look past this if they used common sense. But they didn't want to. And he pled guilty at first and then thought better of it. He probably realized if he pled guilty, then that's totally it. Not only is he going to prison, but that's totally it for his career. So I think he realized he messed up and he is going to fight this. I don't know if it's going to work, but he's claiming that he had mental issues that were untreated at the time of the questioning. He even tweeted about this on November 30th. He wrote, I don't know why people like to say bad things about me and believe it. They like makings, he meant to say making, me look like a monster because of the way I looks, maybe. All of my life's, I've been told to be quiet and do what I was told, no mores. He doesn't speak good English. That's why he wrote like that. And then he linked a PR piece about him now pleading not guilty. And According to the statement, he claimed that there's significant new evidence that his attorney said that she was in discussions with the government. He says, I want to clear my name. I never should have agreed to plead guilty to a crime I did not commit. And the new evidence has to do, again, as I said, with his uh, mental health at the time when he was interviewed in January 2022. And he claimed he did not have his own interpreter or criminal legal counsel with him. I thought they said his attorney was there. It's kind of confusing. It was also pointed out he only has a third grade education and that he may not have understood everything that was going on. They said that they had serious concerns about the allegations made against him. That was his own attorney saying that. So we will see where this goes. I think this is a waste of the government's time. Why are they worrying about this? It's not like he was an accomplice in the operation. He was just a better there. He was just a fish that they were winning money off of because he sucked at sports betting. He was a problem gambler they took advantage of. So, okay, he didn't want to admit it. Big deal. What do you expect? I mean, he's a 
professional baseball player trying to get his career back. They, they have all the leeway they want about not charging him. They don't have to charge him just because he lied to the FBI. They could look at the whole thing and say, you know what? We're not happy about this, but we kind of understand why this all happened and why he was doing it. And you know what? F it. We're just, we're just going to go after the actual participants in this bookmaking ring, which was really what we were going for in the first place. In general, I don't like when customers of these illegal operations get charged in any way. Just leave them alone. If they want to go after the figures that are running these operations, that's fine. That's the chance these people take when they run a bookmaking operation. I don't ever feel sorry for a bookie that gets charged. But a customer? Nah. Shouldn't happen. 775-FRAUD55 is the phone number. 775-372-8355. You can text me at any time. Some comments from the chat room. Disposition said... The makeup and the seamless lines of the bodysuit, referring to sashimi, were impressive. Going with a more oversized brown nipple might have added more to the lulls. And then he also commented on the tip percentage. He said, required tip percentage on top of an inflated service charge. What is this, Dave and Buster's? Yeah, I didn't calculate it, but it is possible that they actually did charge the tip, the auto tip on top of the service charge, meaning that he was actually tipping for the service charge as if it were an item. Part of that 18% came from the service charge, which, if true, is very obnoxious. I didn't bother to bust out a calculator and figure that out. I got a text about this, too, from the 530. Should he tip on that order? There's clearly a line for it. This is about Andy Frankenberger again. No. Big no. He already tipped 18%. And what are they really doing? Like, if anyone doesn't deserve extra tips, it's room service because they're not actively serving you. Room service is bringing it to you and leaving. They're doing much less work than the server in a restaurant, so why should they get more of a tip? 18% is too much, actually. Caller, you're on the air. How's it going, Jeff? Uh, it's Garrett. Garrett, hello. So what would you like to talk about? I uh, I forget what call and I was just listening. Um, I saw the red banner on. Is the only way to listen now the call in line? Because on my end, at least the radio is not working. Oh, I, that is concerning. No, if you go to the radio tab, you're telling me the player doesn't work. Right. You can't you can't press the, press the little play button to to hear it. Well, right. Uh, actually, when I when I go on, it's square. It says, uh, I guess it's at stop. I, the red banner is flashing, but. Well, if it says stop, that's where you can try to reload the page. That's that's the player on there. It should auto start, and if it doesn't, there's a a little play button you can push there on that little uh, box that right. you stop right now. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know why it's doing that. Yeah, but there's another way you can listen. You can also get the TuneIn app and listen through that. There's two entries for Poker Fraudulent Radio. Yeah, and on Basically. iPhone. And another way, and also you can go to the TuneIn app by just clicking on the TuneIn button on the radio page. It'll take you to the TuneIn web app, so you don't need a phone. You can you do it on a computer. Nice. And then there, you can also use the call to listen line. I don't know if that's what you're using. But anyway, there's a lot of ways to listen live. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how's it going, Jeff? Um, yeah, I was wondering that. But I figured I'd call in, and I was surprised to see you still on. 7 o'clock on Sunday morning here. So, 
Well, yeah, it's 4 a.m. Um, here, and I'm, I'm always on very late, and hey, we're getting near the end of the show. Oh, right. They're, they're yeah, always long true. shows, though. Right. I mean, you're right, this is on very late, and it's like this every week that we do the show. and Which works, I think. I get it, because people do have their own scheduled lives, and they end up listening eventually. Yeah. So that they, makes sense. Yeah, they listen in the archives. So Yeah. The archives. Yes. Like, <laughs> well, that's what we funny. call them here. That's that's the name of them for this show. Yeah, I know. I get it. It's yeah. funny. But, but, um, but good talking to you, Jeff. I'm going to let you go. Uh, okay. I didn't mean to bother you. No, that's show. fine. That's fine. Good hearing from you. And uh, sorry the player didn't work. It usually works for people. I don't know why it didn't work. But there's other ways to listen. Like, for example. You yeah, can, it's a problem on my end, to be yeah. honest with you. I'm well, probably not. Just click on the tune in page and uh you'll see it'll take you right to a page where it'll play the show live that should work for you all right thank you all right talk to you later all right okay so moving on going to get to our final topic the horseshoe las vegas right now does not exist it has not existed for 18 years the last time the horseshoe las vegas existed is when it was called binion's horseshoe in downtown Las Vegas, it was not called Horseshoe Las Vegas, but very similar, Binion's Horseshoe in downtown Las Vegas. And that was no longer when it was purchased by Harrah's in 2004. As I've talked about before on the show, the purpose of that purchase was not to buy Binion's itself. It was to buy an asset of Binion's, and that was the World Series of Poker. And they did a very, very smart thing. They bought Binion's by buying Binion's, which was in financial trouble because it was mismanaged by Becky Binion. They bought it and then automatically owned the World Series of Poker, which was property of Binion's. So then they had what they wanted. They took the World Series and they put Binion's right back up for sale without the World Series of Poker. And some company bought it for a very similar amount to what Harris paid for it. So Harris essentially got the World Series of Poker for free. Amazing. Amazing. I'm not saying that sarcastically. Whoever brokered that whole thing, whoever came up with that idea, was a genius. It's a very, very valuable asset, as I'm sure you know. That's how they got it. A year later, Harris bought Caesars, and then renamed the company Caesars Entertainment. So that's why it's known as Caesars today. But it was actually Harrah's that bought the World Series. And then when they bought Caesars, they called themselves Caesars. Much like when El Dorado bought Caesars more recently, they again renamed the company to Caesars Entertainment because it was much better known than El Dorado. And that was really kind of a merger between El Dorado and Caesars. But let's get back to this. How does the horseshoe fit into all this? Well, remember, Binion's was called Binion's Horseshoe. And they took one other thing from Binion's that they did not sell to the new owners, and that was the horseshoe brand. That was another smart thing. They basically saw two things in Binion's that they liked. They liked the iconic horseshoe brand, and they liked the World Series. The main point was the World Series, but secondarily, they liked the Horseshoe brand as well. So they sold Binion's and the Binion's name and the Binion's property. They sold everything back to another company except for the Horseshoe brand and the World Series of Poker. 
So they got what they wanted basically for free. What did they do with the horseshoe brand? Well, in Nevada, they did nothing. There was no horseshoe in the state of Nevada. And at this point, there still isn't, but there will be very soon. But for the next 18 years, there was no horseshoe in Nevada. However, there were horseshoes in many other places that were renamed to be called horseshoe. So around the country, there became many horseshoe properties. And they were able to do this because they had the horseshoe brand and they could name whatever property they wanted horseshoe. There is a horseshoe Blackhawk in Colorado. There is a horseshoe Indianapolis in Indiana. There's also a horseshoe Hammond in Indiana. There's a horseshoe Council Bluffs in Iowa. There's a horseshoe Bossier City in Louisiana. There's a horseshoe Lake Charles in Louisiana. There's a horseshoe Baltimore in Maryland. There's a horseshoe Tunica in Mississippi. There is a horseshoe St. Louis in Missouri. Not all of these were immediately named Horseshoe, and some of them were renamed after the El Dorado and Caesars merger. But as you see, there's a lot of Horseshoes, and these are all Caesars properties now. They're all part of the Caesars Rewards program. But what is the point of the Horseshoe brand, aside from just being known as being a gambling brand? What was the point of it? Did they just name it because people know Horseshoe being associated with casinos, or was there more to it? Well, there was more to it. In fact, if you would call up a Caesars property, and I think this is still in the hold music, but if you've ever called a Caesars property and they put you on hold, they play a bunch of propaganda music about different things they offer. And it's not always related to the property you're calling about. It's just general hold music with a bunch of propaganda. So among the propaganda that you are treated to while you're on hold, and you hear this over and over and over again, and it gets irritating, but among that propaganda is a little blurb about the horseshoe. And they speak about the horseshoe in general, not about a specific horseshoe property. So they say something along the lines of, the horseshoe is known for its high limits, generous comps, extra odds on craps, just something along those lines. And at Horseshoe, our motto has always been to make it right for the gambler. I remember that part for sure. So what they're trying to get across is that Horseshoe properties are different from their other properties in that they are basically a throwback to the original Binion's Horseshoe. The original Binion's Horseshoe, and this goes back many decades, way before I was born, way before many of you were born, that the Horseshoe was a place you could go if you wanted to place big bets or have a big spread in the limits at a table, or if you wanted to place 100 times odds bets on craps. And for those of you that don't know craps, a 100 times odds bet is a bet that is 100 times your pass line bet that will pay out at zero expectation, meaning the casino doesn't have an edge. You don't have an edge either, but it's the only bet you can place in a casino that does not have a casino edge unless you're doing some kind of advantage play that they don't want you to be doing. 
but this is the only bet that they intentionally offer to you which does not have a casino edge. That is an odds bet. Now, every craps table has some kind of odds bet you can do, but most casinos cap it at five times. Here you can make up to a hundred times odds bet. Now, this does introduce a lot of variance to it. So let's say the table minimum is $5. So you make a $5 pass line bet. Well, if it's a hundred times odds, then you have the opportunity to make a $500, if you want, odds bet, which again, you're getting the true odds. So there's no house edge. Now, there's a slight house edge still because you already placed money on the pass line which does have a house edge. But still, because that's like 1% of the entire bet placed, if you do 100 times odd bet, then it's almost an even money bet. So if you really, really want to do a bet that is just about even money in the casino, you're not going to earn a lot of comps for this. But if you want to do it, if you just want to have pure luck dictate whether you win or lose and have no house edge there, then go to a casino with very high maximum odds on craps and place the highest odds you can when you can bet it with the smallest pass line bet possible, and you'll be betting at uh, almost even money as far as the odds of winning and losing. Like very, very, very close to even money to where it'll have a lot of variance, but the house edge is almost nothing. But most casinos don't offer this. Why? Because they don't want you playing with a situation where neither party has an edge. They want to have an edge on you. And also, they may not want the variance. If they're going to have a lot of variance, they at least want to have the edge on you. They don't want you placing $500 or $1,000 bets with no house edge because you could get lucky and beat them. And yes, they can beat you too, but overall, this is going to break even for them. And it's not worth adding the variance for themselves when there's nothing to gain from it. When overall, over time, it's going to break even for them. So that's why most places do not offer large odds bets on craps. But some casinos do it as kind of a gimmick. Some people just like going to a casino where they have that option, even if they don't really want to actually bet that. They like having the option. They like playing at a craps table where others can do it. It's exciting to watch for some people. So some people are attracted to these places. And also what will happen is sometimes people will just lose when they are making these large odds bets. And then they'll get frustrated and just start firing off in negative expectation ways and lose a lot of money. So that's another reason that some casinos like to offer it because if someone doesn't run well, it'll sometimes send them into a gambling frenzy and they'll chunk off a lot of money and place bets in other ways that are not zero expectation. So... There are casinos that offer it. In fact, for some time, the Cromwell offered it. They don't anymore. But the Horseshoe, the old Horseshoe, offered it. And they kept, us, they kept up this tradition at the other Horseshoes around the country because they wanted to keep the Horseshoe theme. So they did things like this. They had the bigger spreads at the tables of the limits. They had the 100 times odds. I don't know if they really gave more generous comps, but they were trying to semi-imitate what Binion's Horseshoe did. Now, there are some things they are not imitating, like there was a bargain breakfast you could have, like a steak and eggs breakfast for like two ninety nine, 
at this restaurant in Binion's that you was kind of like almost like a basement. You go down these stairs and then you're in this kind of sunken restaurant and there was this super, super cheap meal you could have there. I think it was like two ninety nine, And so they're not doing anything like that at the Horseshoe Properties, to my knowledge. So it's not a complete copy of Binion's Horseshoe in its offerings, but at least they were going with the spirit of it. I'll give them that. So in all these Horseshoe Properties around the country, they were at least imitating some of the aspects of Binion's horseshoe that people liked that made it unique. Well, what about the horseshoe that's coming to Las Vegas? Because Bally's is not going to be Bally's fairly soon. Bally's is going to be Horseshoe Las Vegas. They're just going to rename it. And they are doing a lot of work inside and outside of Bally's to make it match the new theme. It's going to be very horseshoe themed. It's not going to just be Bally's with a new name stamped on the front of it. They're doing a lot of work, exterior and interior, to make it look more like a horseshoe. I don't know specifically what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. The whole point of these renovations is to make the casino and the outside of the building look like a horseshoe property. So they're putting money into that. They want you to feel like you're in a horseshoe. They want you to feel like the horseshoe's back. It's not downtown anymore. It's right there on the Vegas Strip where Bally's was, and it's going to be the same building, same rooms. But they want you to feel like you're in the horseshoe again. But are they going to really make you feel like you're in the horseshoe again? Are they going to offer the 100 times craps and other features of horseshoe that people have come to love over the years? John Mahaffey, who is a gambling reporter, he's an independent gambling reporter in Vegas, smart guy, and does good analysis. He asked Horseshoe, who has a Twitter account at Horseshoe Vegas, he asked them, are you going to offer 100 times odds on craps? And they answered very directly, 100 times craps odds will not be offered at our Las Vegas location. Okay, I mean, that's an answer, right? I believe him. It's not happening. That is stupid. That is just plain stupid. Why? You do it at all the other horseshoes. Why are you excluding Las Vegas? Why? Are you that greedy to where you can't let a few people place these 100 times odds bets? It's not going to happen commonly. The reason it doesn't happen commonly is because there are such variants to it. You have to have a pretty high bankroll to be doing this. It doesn't matter if it is even expectation. Because even at a $5 table, a 100 times odds bet is $500. At a $10 table, it's $1,000. Most people do not want to bet $500 or $1,000 per roll on craps. They don't want to do it. So you have to have a bankroll to do this, and most people don't have it. And a lot of people who do have that bankroll just don't really enjoy craps. So when you have a property with 100 times odds craps, you have very few takers for this. It's kind of more of a gimmick. And again, they're not going to lose money from this. 
This is not something you can use to beat the casinos. It's just something you can do to gamble without the casino having an edge on that particular bet. So what's going to hurt? In the long run, they're going to break even. They're going to have some variance, but they can take it. It's not going to be done that often. So why not just let it happen? Why not let a few people who want to do these 100 times odds bets do it? You're spending a lot of money on the branding, spending a lot of money on the exterior and the interior to make it look like a horseshoe. So you don't mind spending that money, but heaven forbid you let a few people do 100 times odds on craps like you do on all your other properties. I'm not asking for anything different than the other horseshoes that you already own. I'm asking to make this equivalent to those horseshoes, but they don't want to do it because they feel in Vegas they don't need to. They feel like people are coming to Vegas because it's Vegas. People are coming to Vegas for more than just gambling. If you go to the Horseshoe Hammond, you're probably not going there because Hammond, Indiana is an exciting place. You're probably somewhat of a local to Hammond, Indiana, and you're coming there because you want to gamble. And that's it. Same with Horseshoe Indianapolis. Same with Horseshoe Council Bluffs. You're not going there for the destination. You're going to gamble. So there they feel that they have to do things that are more gambler friendly. But in Vegas, they feel, hey, we don't need to do anything that's gambler friendly because you're coming to Vegas because it's Vegas. Vegas is an exciting place to be. So we don't need to. And we decided a while ago we're not offering at the Cromwell anymore. So we're not bringing this 100 times odds back to Horseshoe Vegas. We don't care if it's called Horseshoe. We're just not doing it. We don't need to do it, they think. But that's the whole problem here. The bean counters have taken over these corporate properties. And they're making decisions which they think are advantageous financially, but they don't understand the appeal of the brand. And this will cost them in ways that they won't be able to quantify. When you make these decisions, you can't just look at, well, do we really need to offer these odds? And do you think we're going to fill up the property anyway? And what are the other hotel casinos on the Vegas Strip do? And that's what they're looking at when they make this decision. But what they're not looking at is, why are we naming this horseshoe? Why are we bringing that brand back to Nevada after 18 years of dormancy? Why? Well, number one, because they were tired of leasing the Bally's name since Bally's doesn't really mean anything anymore. And it's confusing because there's actually Bally's properties around the country, which are not Caesar's properties. So I understand why they want to drop the Bally's name, but why change it to Horseshoe? Why not change it to something else? Because Horseshoe is a long revered brand. Horseshoe is a well-liked brand. And people equate horseshoe with things like this, things that are considered high limits or gambler friendly. And you can't have a horseshoe without this stuff or it's not a horseshoe. That's the whole point of a horseshoe. And if you don't want that, then don't call it horseshoe. But this is what bean counters don't understand. If you're going to call it horseshoe, people are going to be pissed off when what they expect out of a horseshoe, it doesn't have from a gambling standpoint. Now, if this were very costly, then I would understand. Or if this could be taken advantage of by advantage players, I would understand. But that's not the case here. That's not the concern here. They just feel like they don't have to. So they're not doing it. And what they don't realize is it's going to cheapen the brand. 
People are going to go there and go, oh, this is just Bally's. I, I don't care about the imagery around here. I don't feel like I'm in a horseshoe because it operates just like Bally's. It operates like any Caesars property in the Strip. There's nothing horseshoe-like here at all. I don't care what way they have renovated the place or what the outside of the place looks like. It's a horseshoe in name only. And people are going to be turned off by that. Here they had an opportunity to have something that was kind of special. Set it apart from the other Caesars properties in the Strip. So people who like the horseshoe brand and what it represents and the options there, they'll say, oh, cool, we have one in Vegas now. The horseshoe's back in Vegas. Okay, I'm going to stay there. And it'll attract people. But when people go there and see it's nothing but just Bally's dressed up in a different way, they're not going to want to come back. I mean, people who don't care about this stuff, I, I guess, will, but there'll be nothing special about it. It'll still be a generic property with a name that pretends it's not generic. Bally's is very generic because what does Bally's stand for? What does Bally's mean? They're not even the company Bally's. They have nothing to do with the company Bally's anymore. They, they haven't actually ever. Not since they bought it. So it was a meaningless name other than being the name of the hotel since MGM Grand switched to being called Bally's before they owned it. It's familiar, but it doesn't mean anything. You don't go, oh, there's Bally's. And I love at Bally's that it has, uh, 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 well, it once had a fire in 1980 when it had a different name. Killed a bunch of people. That's about it. Like that, That's really what that property is known for. So if you're going to change it to a brand that is known for something, then you've got to do what it's known for. It's like putting up an In-N-Out burger and then not serving In-N-Out food. You go to In-N-Out Burger, and then you get a McDonald's-quality burger. You're going to say, what? I came here for an In-N-Out Burger. I didn't come here for some crap McDonald's burger. I want an In-N-Out Burger. That's why I went to In-N-Out. Just calling it In-N-Out and putting the imagery of In-N-Out all over the place and making it look like an In-N-Out doesn't help if the food is not In-N-Out. So same thing here. You can't call it a horseshoe and operate it like it's Bally's. But that looks like what they're going to do. So to... Eliminate the 100 times crafts odds when it costs them basically nothing is so stupid. I tweeted this. I posted about this on my Vegas Casino Talk site, which is a sister site of Poker Fraud Alert. I own that as well. And people agree with me that this is stupid. And people agree with me they should offer these 100 times odds. There are some people who have said that the corporate takeover of Vegas, which began in the early 90s, has killed Vegas, that we needed to go back to the old days of the 80s and beforehand when it was basically run by the mob. Now, it is true the mob wouldn't do things like this, but I'm not one of these people who is delusional with nostalgia about the past. I can recognize what was better about the past in some ways and what is worse about the past. I wouldn't enjoy gambling in a mafia-run casino because I'd be scared. Because if the mafia doesn't like something that you're doing, like if you're engaging in an advantage play or if they think you are, you never know what they're going to do to you. You could end up buried in the desert. So the fact that that's not a fear anymore when you gamble in Las Vegas is very nice. The fact that if anything happens, that you have a corporate structure to complain to, to submit complaints to whatever you want to do, and you don't have to worry about 
any kind of mafia pushback is pretty nice. The fact that everything runs with a certain level of service and expectation and you're not just dealing with a bunch of people who are mafia operatives running the whole place who are all out for themselves and demanding their palms grease for everything they do for you. I mean, those days kind of sucked in that way. I'll give you a a slight example here. This is definitely not the most concerning aspect of the whole thing, but just a small example that I personally witnessed occur. In the 80s, when I went with my parents to Las Vegas, I couldn't gamble then. I wasn't quite old enough then. I was a teenager. But they would like to go to shows. And these were not giant, spectacular shows. These were kind of like lounge shows. But it had still a decent-sized theater. Not a giant theater, but a decent-sized theater. And you would go to the door, and all you'd have was a general admission ticket. You weren't buying the good seats or the bad seats. You were just buying a seat. And there would be a doorman who looked like a mafioso. And this mafioso-looking doorman, you would have to tip him if you wanted to have a decent seat. If you gave him no tip, he would let you in, but he would put you all the way in the back corner, maybe with an obstruction. So the bigger tip you give him, the better table you get. So I watched my dad pull out money from his wallet after he already bought the tickets and hand it to this leech who would then take us to better seats. And I say he was a leech because... He just pocketed this money. This wasn't going to the show or the production. He was pocketing it because he was fortunate enough to get that job through his mafia connections. And that was considered a fringe benefit that he gets to pocket all these tips that you knew you had to give him if you wanted a good seat. So if you didn't tip him, you weren't going to get buried in the desert or beaten up, but you're going to get a crappy seat, and if you complain to him, he would laugh in your face. My dad wasn't dumb enough to do that. My dad just gave him the tip, and we got a good seat. But it was frustrating to have to do that. I was frustrated watching this. And it shouldn't be this way. There shouldn't be these leeches that have to be tipped to give you a good seat. It should just be if you want a good seat, you pay for a good seat. If you don't want a good seat, then you don't pay for a good seat. And if you do pay for a good seat, that payment should go to the production It should not go to some leech who's seating you. So that was the type of thing that would go on under the mafia rule of Vegas that I thought was stupid. And I'm glad it isn't there anymore. Even if you want to say it breaks out to the same money or maybe even cheaper to get the good seat, I I just don't like the whole thing. It's just not right. So in some ways, I like the corporate structure of Vegas, but in other ways, I hate it because... They don't understand what appeals to people. The bean counters who make these decisions often don't understand the service or the product. And then they will just do nonsensical things that they think is going to make them more money and actually cost them money, and they don't get it. And because it's hard to see the implications of this, they can't even blame these policies when things don't work out or things aren't working out as well as they could. They will not see, for the most part, when people go there and say, oh, huh, you know, there's nothing about horseshoe that we like here. They're just calling it horseshoe. Okay, this is kind of lame. We're never coming back. They're just going to see that people choose to go elsewhere. A certain percentage of people can go elsewhere. They won't know why. You have to understand why people are patronizing the business, why they're choosing your business over competitors. 
what people like, what people dislike, and then adjust accordingly. And this isn't just about Vegas or hotels. I have seen this across all industries. Whenever a large company buys a smaller company, they almost never understand the product or service and what people like about it. This is why Skype has gone downhill so much over the past 15 years. Microsoft has ruined it. Microsoft did not understand Skype. And I've seen this all over the place. Think about it. When has a corporation bought a small company and made it better? When have you seen improvements overall when that's occurred? You probably can't name one. But you have seen where the spirit of the product or service has degraded, where good things about it you liked have been taken away, or changes were made in the name of improvement, which actually make it worse, or suck the soul out of it, and those making the decisions don't understand. I even see this in creative works, which are bought by outside operations and then start dictating the way it's going to be. Because again, they don't understand why people like it. They don't understand why it was successful in the first place. They think they do, but they don't. It's a big problem. And this is true in the casino industry as well. So when Binion's Horseshoe was bought, that already was the beginning of the process. That was already the beginning of the de-horseshoeing of the horseshoe. But I will say at least they tried for a while. At least with the other horseshoe properties, they kind of tried. They kind of emulated it. They didn't just use the name. But now they're just using the name. It is so hard for them to say, okay, we'll just do the same policies as the other horseshoes that we own. We'll just do that. No, because it's not industry standard in Vegas, so why should we do it? It's unnecessary. No other property on the Vegas Strip does this, so why should we? That's, that's what the bean counters think. It's the same idiot bean counters that overcharge big time for the food at the World Series of Poker, not understanding that People will be so much happier. I don't just mean pros. I mean recreational players too. If you make the food reasonable and there's a lot of choices and people don't have to pay an hour and a leg and it's decent quality or give a big range of food from kind of fast foodish stuff that's cheap to higher quality, more expensive food, people will enjoy it. They'll have a good memory of the food they ate during the tournament. And that'll be a positive memory, even if the recreational player lost and otherwise didn't really have much of a chance to do very well anyway because they're not very good poker players. See, you want people to walk away with a good memory of the whole thing. But if they not only remember losing at the World Series of Poker, but the food situation was frustrating and difficult, they're not going to want to come back. But the thing is, the World Series does so well anyway because they market it so well that they don't notice this. All they look at is, okay, every year we grow. Everywhere we do, every year we do great. Well, it's because your marketing team is great. And it's because the tournaments are unique in some ways. I give them credit for that. That's why I go. But the food is really, really disappointing at the World Series. But it's because the bean counters just can't bring themselves to give people a decent deal on food. They just can't. They feel they've got to make a profit everywhere. That's a mistake. You don't have to make a profit everywhere that you sell something. You can sell something either as a loss leader or at the very least where you're making very little money, knowing that you're making a lot of money in the associated parts of the business. 
the bean counters have such a difficult time doing it. It's like against their religion. And no, this is not a, a Jew joke. I wouldn't do that being a Jew myself. These bean counters are not necessarily Jewish. I don't know who's specifically making the decisions. But I mean against the religion of being a bean counter. It is so hard for them to do this. But you do it if you understand the product or service. You do it if you think it's going to overall help the entire picture of the enjoyment people have from their experience there. And people will enjoy the Horseshoe Las Vegas if it is like the horseshoe they remember 18 years ago. And it doesn't have to be a sleazy downtown place. It just has to have some aspects of the horseshoe they liked and, and not just be horseshoe and name only. It just is frustrating to me. I, I just don't know why they make these dumb decisions. Trader Risky, hello. What's happening, Jeff? And, and you know, and how many people just bring in their own food and then don't don't buy anything? That's me. Yeah, right. Like, I, right. right. I don't. I don't ever so go to their food. Probably a out. huge percentage. So then they're losing money there. I mean, there's got to be a middle where it would be, you know, worthwhile, and then they wouldn't have to. People wouldn't bring in food. They'd probably make the same money. Yeah, it's like what I said about the six dollar Gatorade bottle. Like, well, why charge six dollars? Why not just charge like what Seven Eleven charges, which is not cheap. Like, you you go into Seven Eleven and buy a a bottle of Gatorade, it's gonna be way more than at the supermarket. But it's still not like so ridiculous that you're not gonna want to buy it. But the, you go there and it's a six dollar thirty two ounce bottle. And you go screw it. I'm not buying this shit. Six dollars is just uh, so outrageous. So why can't they just charge convenience store prices for it? They'll still make a little money. And people won't be pissed off. Like that, That's where the bean counters just make the mistakes, and it's the exact mistakes they're making with the horseshoe and not offering the 100 times odds. And you know what? This doesn't personally affect me because I don't even play craps, so I don't really care about the 100 times odds personally. I, I just think it's dumb. I just think it's them not understanding the whole point of the brand. Like, Why put all that money into renovating the place if you're going to cheap out on things like this? But they really think if they just make it look like a horseshoe... Then people go, oh, cool, it's a horseshoe. Oh, okay, oh, it's, it's nothing really about it that's horseshoe-like in the casino. But all right, it, it says inside it's the horseshoe, and they have all this imagery in there. That's the horseshoe. Uh, I guess we're the horseshoe. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen that way. Maybe for some people, but people enjoy nostalgia. People enjoy coming back to something that they once liked. I, I have a similar thing that's popped into my head, nothing to do with gambling. But I think I met you, uh, not for the first time, but one of the earlier times I met you was at Insert Coins, which was a combination nightclub and arcade in downtown Vegas. Remember that? Yep. Yeah. Well, I had a problem with Insert Coins. I tried to play some of the games. We had like a a meetup for that uh, Donk Down site that I used to be part of. And... I tried to play some of the games there, and I really liked the concept of the place. It was like a nightclub with classic video games there and with 80s music. So you'd think it would be up my alley, and it was definitely aimed at people my age. So I dropped a quarter in Pac-Man, and right away I was disappointed it wanted 50 cents. Like, really? Just just make it a freaking quarter. I understand inflation and all that, but come on. You're not trying to make money from the video games. You're trying to make money from the drinks and everything else in the place that's far more expensive. You, you can let the damn Pac-Man be for a quarter, but that, that wasn't the biggest problem. I put, I put in the second quarter, and I said, okay, well, truthfully, the 50 cents at that time, this is like 11 years ago, was worth about a quarter, like in the mid-80s. So, okay, fine. 
So I, I put it in the second quarter. Start playing. It is incredibly hard. And not because I was rusty. It was set to the most difficult setting, which they can do. A lot of video games in that day had an easy, medium, and hard setting that they could do through dip switches or through controlling from the standpoint when they first turn it on. And they can set how hard the game is going to be. And they set it to hard mode. And I'd never played a Pac-Man in hard mode. But it was very, very hard. It lived up to its name. It was very, very hard. It didn't warn you either. It didn't say, oh, this is Pac-Man in hard mode. You just drop the 50 cents and you think you're going to play normal Pac-Man and then you just get clobbered. So it was Pac-Man in hard mode. I went to go play another game. I don't remember which one. Another 80s game that I used to be very good at. And again, it was in super hard mode and I got my ass kicked. I played a third machine and the joystick wasn't even working properly. So I died there very fast. And I go, this sucks. I didn't have fun with any of these. One was partially broken and the other two were set to a mode that was so hard i couldn't make it and and this is me a player from the 80s who was good at these games and yeah i'm not as good as i was in the 80s but i still remembered enough to where i should have been decent and i just got clobbered and i was out super fast so this wasn't fun it wasn't fun playing pac-man when it was super hard and i was just dying over and over why did they do this because they don't want you sitting there playing pac-man on like a half an hour session on 50 cents, and not drinking. So the games were just a gimmick. The games were there really in name only, but they set it to the hardest setting so you'd die fast and go back to drinking and spending money in other ways there. And I thought, that's really shitty. Like, why have a whole place that's themed around video games, actually called Insert Coins, and then they make the video games intentionally impossible to succeed? So that's not understanding why people are coming. They weren't bought by anybody. It's not like someone bought them and misunderstood it. But here they came up with a creative concept and they screwed it up because they were greedy. And it did not last. They ended up closing. I don't know if it's just because of that, but I I know I didn't have any fun playing those games. And who's going to? Who's going to have any fun playing those games when you, you play and within a minute you've lost all three lives and you're gone? And when I walked out, I thought, wow, I was so looking forward to this place, and it was such a disappointment. They totally missed the whole point of why people like me, people who were kids and teens in the 80s, who remembered these games and enjoyed the thought of a club themed around them, why you don't ruin the games themselves just so you can get people off of them so you can sell more drinks. But they thought it was brilliant, I guess. They must have thought, oh, wow, we're going to set these really hard and people are going to die real fast. Then they're going to buy more beers and they're going to buy more uh, vodkas or whatever else we're serving here. Oh, ha, 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 we're going to make so much money. No, because people think this place sucks and they don't ever come back. So that's what you, you don't strangle your own business with greed. You, you have to provide a good customer experience. And that's what I'm afraid happens a lot with these corporate owned casinos another thing I remember when my parents I I got them a free room at Caesars so they were at Caesars I was at Caesars this was for New Year's and they really enjoyed it because you know rather than having to be out with a whole crowd when it's cold outside they were able to sit in their Caesars Augustus Tower room and we looked down on the strip and and we'd watch the whole fireworks show from the warmth of our own room so that, that was nice But I remember my dad wanted coffee, and there was a Keurig in the room. And he saw it was $12 
for like two pods of the coffee. And he couldn't believe it. And he said, wow, that's just incredible that they're charging these prices. It wasn't that he couldn't afford the $12. It was just so outrageous compared to what the retail price is of these pods, which is a small fraction of that. To have to get like a two-pack for $12 was just insane. So I said to him, well, good news. You know, we have one in our room also. And even though I don't drink coffee, my girlfriend drinks coffee. So knowing this, we brought our own pods. So she just gave some of hers to my dad and he was fine. But he was saying at the time, this is what happens when you let accountants make these decisions. Because he was instantly turned off by this. And he's not as cheap as I am, by the way. Not even close. But he saw that it was just like such an insult. And here he's getting a comp room, you know, because of me, but still he was getting a comp room and he gets to have this nice view of the fireworks and everything. And he appreciated all of that and he appreciated that I got it for him. But like what was on his mind a lot was, wow, look at what Caesars just tried to charge. That's a lot of nerve. Like that's like he was, he had that in his head and that's what you don't want. You don't want when you have people coming to your hotel and spending a lot of money and a casino spending a lot of money. You don't want to hit them for $12 for two pods for coffee. You either give it free, which a lot of places do, or you charge something very nominal. I think on this same trip, we had gone to a meal and we got a dessert. We got like a big cake or a fairly big cake. So we, uh, we brought the cake back to the room and the plan was to eat it as we were watching the fireworks. And what we didn't have was plates and forks. So I called up, and keep in mind I was a seven stars at this point. I called up room service, and I asked them, hey, uh, could you please either bring up or tell me where to go down and get some plates and forks? And it can even be plastic and paper plates. Like, I don't care. It doesn't have to be fancy. Just something we can eat on and eat with. And they said, that's fine, sir. But we are going to charge your room a $12 per person platage fee. (laughs) A platage fee. They actually called it that, a platage fee. I've never heard of that word before, platage. I said, wait, 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 hold on. You're charging me $12 for every plate and fork you bring me? And they said yes. It wasn't even like $12 to bring a bunch of plates. They're actually going to bring me plates at $12 each. I said, how could you do that? Like, How could you charge me that? We're not getting any food. They said, well, it's from room service and that's what they charge. I said, that's outrageous. I said, I'm a Seven Stars member. We brought back some cake from a restaurant that we actually went to on property. I forgot which restaurant it was. We went to an on property Caesars restaurant and we brought this cake back to the room and you're charging me a platage fee of $12 per person? I'm sorry, that's what we charge at room service. Ah, so I said, unacceptable. I want you to ask the manager that a seven-star member is requesting these plates to be brought for free. Or if you don't want to use up an employee, bring it to me. I'm glad to go down anywhere you want on property and pick them up myself. So they put me on hold and came back and told me that the manager has agreed to waive the platage fee. So we did have our cake on the platage without the fee. But can you imagine $12 per plate they tried to charge me? They seem to be obsessed with $12 there, both for the coffee and the platage.
They have to clean the plate. They have to move the plate. You know, it's the forks, not to talk about the forks. Yeah, you know, that's just plateage. It's a spoon, forget about it. It's forkage, too. Plateage and forkage. I mean, how ridiculous is that? This is where you've just got to say, okay, yeah, we're not going to make money on the plateage here. If we bring the person plates, we're not going to make money on this transaction, but we're going to give them a good experience here. It's New Year's. We're not going to charge them for plateage. That's how you do something where you can really alienate people without even realizing it. And that's what people remember. They'll remember the $12 plateage rather than the good things. So you don't want. But you have to understand the gambler. Not how to extract every last dollar out of him on each particular trip, but you have to understand the gambler and why he's there and what will piss him off and what will make him happy. Because when the gambler's happy, then he's more willing to go downstairs and have fun and gamble and lose the real money that you're looking to get out of him. And then he's willing to come back and spend a lot of money on the hotel room, or as I said, on the gambling, or at the restaurants, or the shows. A lot of different income sources there on property where you make a healthy profit. You don't have to hit him for $12 for platage or for a two-pack of coffee. So that is where they need to employ people who understand these things and not leave this up to accountants. And I'm afraid that's where it all comes back to the horseshoe not offering 100 times odds or, I presume, anything that resembles the 2004 Binion's Horseshoe. Trader Risky, did you go to the Binion's Horseshoe in 04 or beforehand? Oh, I used to go in the 90s when when the Mirage was just, you know, kind of the first one in. And we'd go play poker all night. Then we'd go, you know, play, go downtown, play craps or blackjack and have the $1.99 steak and eggs, I think it was. Yeah. Or, or ham steak and eggs. And, um, yeah, that was the routine. Yeah. Right, I, I, you know, and it's it's uh, it's crazy. You know, I had met with uh, the v- I think her, her title was the VP of Social at MGM Mirage. God, it must have been like twelve or fifteen years ago, and she was just telling me they, they they're they're doing everything they can to not depend on gambling and bring in all these other resources. Yeah, and. You know, and this our money out of these revenue streams. You know, and then it's like parking, copy, and plates. I guess was a genius idea. <laughs> well, you know that they got burned by that during COVID, though, because it, the properties yeah. that were just gambling they they survived really well. Like like most of these survived and continued, but the ones that really took a beating during COVID were the ones that had all these other sources of income and didn't count on gambling that much. And then when the gambling came back and everything else stayed closed and they couldn't do the conventions and they couldn't do the shows and they couldn't do the restaurants at full capacity, these properties were taking a bath, whereas the locals' properties that were mainly for gambling were, were doing just fine, especially with everyone bored where they couldn't do anything else. So this kind of burned them. Now, I understand how you couldn't predict a pandemic. So I'm not going to say that, oh, they didn't think about what if there's a pandemic. Like, who would ever think of that back then? But still, they were... to be able to move fast, right? You know, and it's right, and it could be a whole for the one that does it right. It could be a whole marketing campaign, right? If one of them said we're not going to do this ridiculous bullshit anymore, that could be their whole marketing campaign. You stick you're getting nickel to dimed by fucking the Bellagio and all these other places, 
you know, free plates at the uh, <laughs> free <flights>. forever. <laughs> yeah. If you bring the cake back up to your room, no platage fee. Yeah, you know, I agree with you that I think there probably is a market for a property that makes it clear that they're not going to do any of this bullshit because they have no resort fees for anybody, uh, no no parking fee, and uh, reasonable priced food, and we're going to have a cheap coffee shop you can go to. That, that's another thing that's really missing. You know, forget the dollar ninety nine steak and eggs meal. Just like a cheap coffee shop that used to be in every single hotel casino in Vegas that you could go to 24 hours a day and get food that not just is reasonable but is actually cheap. But they're so afraid to offer that. They're like, whoa, if people keep going there, they're not going to go to our expensive restaurants. And I go, no dummies. They will because you don't want to just have cheap coffee shop food when you go on a Vegas vacation. You want to have your nice meals. So make the freaking cheap food available as well. So that's an option for people. You don't have to extract every dollar out of them for food too. So that's the problem is that they are convinced that if they're not extracting every dollar out of you at every moment, then they're doing something wrong and leaving money on the table. They just don't have a bigger picture in mind and they, they don't understand what annoys people and frustrates people. And this is one of these things where they're accidentally backing into success, but they could be doing even better. So because Vegas has done so well since things have reopened and people want to come back and gamble and people had all this extra money to spend because of all the COVID money that was doled out by the government, they they see they're making every month collectively a billion dollars in gambling revenue and all this extra revenue from uh, – the hotels again and the shows again and all that and they're doing so well and they say okay great well stay the course why change anything because we're doing great uh, except you can do even better if you remove the things that are pissing people off that aren't really making you all that extra money so i think at least some property should offer that even if they don't want to do it system-wide then at least do it to where people have an option who like that stuff who like to not get nickel and dimed and even as an experiment, have one property that's not like that and see if people flock to it. And if they do, then say, okay, you know, maybe we're onto something here. And I'm not even talking about offering better games. And that's a whole different discussion, how the games have degraded over time because the gamblers are less informed than they once were. I am surprised it took as long as it did. I noticed this back in the 90s that I was starting to notice more and more people in Vegas that were visiting that had no idea what they were doing. And I'm like, why are they offering these good games? Like Casino Royale, for the longest time, they had a good blackjack game with good odds. And nobody there had a clue what the hell they were doing. I'm talking about the players. So I'm like, why are they even offering this game? (laughs) Because they could be making more money off of these people because almost nobody understands blackjack at all over here except the very, very basics of playing. And some don't even understand that. I, I actually saw a woman at my table at Casino Royale back then. I actually saw a woman next to me standing on 11. (laughs) Can you believe that? Standing on 11. (laughs) And I tried to tell her and the dealer tried to tell her and she got mad. She's like, I want to stand on this. Leave me alone. Let me play how I want. And we're like, no, but you can only do better here. You can't bust. You'll always end up with a better total if you hit 11. If you hit 11 and you don't like the next card, that's fine. If you get a 4 and you get 15, you want to stand. Okay, maybe it may not be correct with what the dealer's showing, but okay, fine. At least you could technically bust. But you can't do worse if you hit 11. She didn't want to hit 11. 
And by the way, she lost. So, like, I see players like that at Casino Royale. It's like, why are they offering a good game there? And all that was ended up happening was card counters were showing up and beating them. Finally, they learned and stopped doing that. But, like, in general, I just noticed so many games that they could be extracting extra money out of visitors because they don't know the difference. And it took a long time, but they finally all realized it. And now the odds on video poker suck and the odds in blackjack suck because it's 6-5 to five almost everywhere. And boy, has it really gone far. I mean, there's even triple zero roulette. We've talked about all this before. But this is because of general ignorance by gamblers, that gamblers don't want to understand the odds of the game, whereas in the 80s and before that, the gamblers made sure to understand the odds of the game, and they, they knew it very well, and if they tried to offer games like that, nobody would play them. So it's, it's kind of a different crowd coming once they started getting the entertainment-seeking crowd of the 90s and beyond, and then the convention crowd and all that. But once that began, began to be more what was dominating who was visiting Vegas, then they could degrade the games and nobody would notice. So that I kind of understand more, even though it sucks. I see people complaining about it, and I go, you know, it's never going to change because there's no demand for that. And the people demanding it, they don't really want anyway because they'd rather have the ploppy gamblers who'd rather, who will lose at a higher rate. They don't want the informed gambler. Forget the advantage player. They don't want the informed gambler. In fact, Caesars was tossing around at one point that they were going to soft ban. And when I say soft ban, I don't mean actually ban them, but just not send them offers and kind of try to push them out. They're going to really try to make things unappealing, shall I say. Not really ban, but make things unappealing to the 20% of players they feel are well-informed gamblers. So they could look at their playing history, see who seems to be playing at the minimal casino edge, and then just kind of find ways to get rid of them without actually banning them. I don't think it was actually implemented, but that was being talked about. Here's something else interesting, sort of along those lines. They are actually looking to sell a Vegas Strip property for an interesting reason. And that reason is that they want to have fewer rooms available. Not more, but fewer. Why would they want fewer rooms available? Wouldn't they want to sell as many rooms as possible? Well, the concern, and this is a very recent thing, by the way. This is something that just came out recently when it was being discussed on a uh, Caesars earning call. But the concern is that, except for very high demand times, there's a lot of nights where there's a huge glut of rooms available and they have to drop the prices because there's just so many rooms open. In order to sell these rooms, they have to drop the prices. And the theory is that there's a lot of people who prefer to stay at a Caesars property. And that really, while they can stay elsewhere, they'd really prefer to go to a Caesars property, maybe because they have already gotten a fairly high tier in the Caesars Rewards program, or they just know Caesars well, whatever it might be. There's a lot of Caesars loyalists out there. So it was determined that Given that being the case, if they had fewer rooms available, then they would not have to lower the price on all these rooms. It would kind of artificially create demand by diminishing supply. And that by having a higher supply, 
that all they're having to do is bring the room prices down because otherwise they're not going to fill them up. And so basically, in order to pay the bills for all these properties, they have to fill up rooms even at a discount. So they feel pressure to lower the prices. They can't just say, well, screw it, we're not going to lower the prices, or they just uh, will have too many rooms sitting empty. But if they have fewer rooms that will sit empty because they have fewer rooms, period, then they can charge the higher prices. So that's the theory. I don't know if it'll work because you could also say, well, what about the competition? There's a lot of people who will look and see if it's a lot cheaper to stay in an MGM property that's equivalent. They'll say, screw it, we're not going to stay at a Caesars property. So they have to look at the competition too. And usually the percentage of rooms that are filled at Caesars properties generally goes along with the percentage of rooms filled at other strip properties. It kind of all goes together. It's rare that Caesars properties are empty and MGM properties are full. It's kind of more based upon how busy Vegas is that week and that weekend. So if they have higher prices for their properties and MGM has lower prices, they're just going to lose out to MGM for everybody except for the real Caesars loyalists. So I don't know about that thinking. I I don't think that's the best way to go about it, if that's the reason they're trying to sell a property. But they claim they're trying to sell a property. I'm thinking it would probably be Planet Hollywood. And the problem is that they don't want to break up anything. They have that whole block there off of Flamingo on all sides, except for where Bellagio is. So I guess it's not all sides. I guess it's three of the sides. But they have three of the sides. They have Caesars on one. They have Cromwell on the other. They have uh, Bally's, soon-to-be Horseshoe, on the other. And then they have properties next to them, which they own as well. So they have this whole wide area there on three sides of that block extending out. And they don't want to break it up with an owner in the middle that's not them. But they're still considering it. Harrah's and Planet Hollywood could both be sold and not break up anything because they're on the edges. They're not going to do it to Caesars. But I thought that's a weird reason to want to sell. The Rio soon enough will not be theirs. The Rio soon enough, you know, it already has a different owner. They're just uh, leasing it at the moment and operating it. But uh, soon enough, the Rio is not even going to be a casino anymore. So they are going to lose that, but that's not a strip property. So that doesn't count. Trader Risky, are you going to go to Vegas for New Year's? Definitely not. Hmm. I've been considering it, but uh, I'm actually leaning towards no right now as well. Though it has been some time since I was last there for Vegas, uh, for, for, for New Year's. And some time. I think the last one was the 2018 to 19 New Year's. The 2019 to 20 New Year's, I was in Tahoe. The 2020 to 21 New Year's, I was at home for obvious reasons. And you guys are going to laugh at me, but the reason I stayed home in the 21 to 22 New Year's was because of a scary new form of COVID that was very contagious called Omicron. (laughs) And I was hearing rumors then that it was less deadly and much less of a big deal, but it wasn't that clear yet. This is just as Omicron was being discovered, being studied. So I was like, if this is way, 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 way more contagious, which it is, than the previous variant, Delta, I was like, do I want to go there and like 
I, I really just thought that maybe it's going to bust through the vaccine because I was hearing that was happening because it was, you know, it turned out it was busting through the vaccine, Omicron. So I was like, well, wait, I am vaccinated, but it's going to bust through my vaccine and get me really sick. And like, maybe it is just as deadly as the other. They're just not sure yet. So I, I kind of chickened out. I, I was going to go to Tahoe again and I canceled it at the last minute. Now I kind of feel stupid because <laughs> Omicron was really the best thing that could have happened to us with COVID. It's a big game changer, how much more mild it is. Oh, by the way, I, I'm not going to do a whole COVID topic, but while we're talking about Omicron, I did a tweet. You may have to scroll back a little bit on my Twitter, but I did a tweet with a graph that I kind of made myself through to the CDC website. So this wasn't a graph I grabbed from a right-wing website or anything like that. This was from the CDC itself, and you can use these little slide bars to create a custom graph about COVID. So I did, and I made two graphs. The first one was COVID deaths by age group from the beginning of COVID to the present. And another one was the same graph, but only starting in early April 2022 through the present. And it was very interesting. The first graph showed the big spikes of death. And then it would go back down and it would spike up again and go back down. But by far, the lowest death rate is right now of any point in COVID. I thought September was low, but November is even lower than September by a good margin. So there's never been less death from COVID than right now since COVID started. That's the first thing. Second, if you take a look at the age groups, especially in the more zoomed in graph of April through the present, you will see that pretty much almost nobody under 65 is dying of this anymore. You'll see that it is so low that even most of these age groups don't even show up on the graph because they're that low. This is like deaths per 100,000 people. You can't even see anything below 50 to 64 on the graph, and even 50 to 64 is super low. Even 75 plus has gotten low. And this is across everybody. Vaccinated, unvaccinated, pre-existing conditions, whatever. This is across the whole population of the U.S. It is lowest now by far than ever before. And it's been going down, down, down ever since April. Why April? Because April was the point where everybody who was going to die from Delta had died by then. Because there's a lag in people dying from COVID. Some people will sit there for months on a ventilator or whatever and, and not die yet, even though they caught it months prior. But by April, pretty much everybody who's going to die from pre-Omicron variants was dead already. So April was really the beginning of the deaths that were only from Omicron. And it's just gone straight down from there. And the reason it's gone straight down is because Omicron is so contagious that it has either infected everybody or people got vaccinated and the vaccine worked to either stop it or they uh, at least didn't die from it or get hospitalized from it. So basically at this point, just about everybody either already had COVID or got vaccinated for COVID or both. And all of that makes it much less likely that 
future COVID infections are going to kill you, even if you are very old. So because Omicron is just much less deadly and it's more contagious, it hasn't created a herd immunity situation, but it's kind of created a situation where enough people have had it or vaccinated from it or both to where it's just not going to be that deadly anymore, especially to those under 65. So you still see people trying to panic about it. Hashtag COVID isn't over. No, it is. It's not actually over. It never will be actually over probably in our lifetimes. But it's kind of converted itself to the flu. And if you think I'm just talking out my ass, go look at these graphs or go make your own graph on the CDC website. But you can look on my Twitter. I posted that. And it's directly from the CDC website. It's just straight right there. You can see the numbers. You can see the trends. And that's always what I've told everybody with COVID is you have to just look at the raw data and understand it and don't be brainwashed by people on either side. One thing I haven't liked from the right recently, and I don't know why they're doing this when they have the strongest data on their side that nobody under 65 is dying of this anymore for the most part. I don't know why they're not pushing that. But for some reason, they're pushing that most of the people dying of COVID are vaccinated. So they're trying to show that the vaccine is actually killing people, not saving people. That it not only didn't work, but it's also killing people. That's not the way it's really happening. Because almost everybody dying from COVID is old now, and because almost all old people are vaccinated, they have a very, very high vaccination rate, the old people, for obvious reasons. And since it's old people that are most vulnerable, especially these days to Omicron, then you're going to have most people that are dying of it being vaccinated, not because they're vaccinated, but because some old people are going to die anyway from it because they are very old and many of them are in very bad condition anyway, unrelated to COVID. And COVID kind of just pushes them over the edge and they die. You know, that's, that's the way very old people are, is that many of them are very sick. Many of them are on the verge of death anyway. So if they catch something like COVID, it will kill them. Same with the flu. That's why so many old people die of the flu and the rest of us don't. Because if you're healthy or semi-healthy and not super old, you'll get over the flu. If you're very, very old and in bad condition, the flu can kill you. So it's the same concept. So if this population, if almost everybody is vaccinated, like let's just say for argument's sake, 100% of old people were vaccinated. They aren't, but let's say they were. Well, then 100% of the people dying who are that age would be vaccinated people. Would that be saying that the vaccine killed them? No. Would that be saying the vaccine is useless? No. It would just be saying that with such a high vaccination rate that, of course, those that still die from it are vaccinated. But without the vaccine, you'd have a lot more of them dying. So you, you can't just look at how many are vaccinated or what, what percentage of them dying are vaccinated. You have to look at it, number one, separated by age group. And number two, look at the percentage of those who are dying that are vaccinated, the percentage of those that are dying are unvaccinated, and then looking at the raw numbers of how many are vaccinated, how many are unvaccinated, and then looking at the death rate for each person that's vaccinated and each person that's unvaccinated and which one is higher. Then you'll get a good idea. And you have to separate it by age group too. Then you'll get the truth. And I say that to people on the right who try to tell me that the vaccine is either worthless or dangerous. And I say, show me that data, and they won't. And they tell me I'm brainwashed by the mainstream media, which you guys know is not true. 
And then I'll even tell them, no, 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 no. Look, I'm on your side about a lot of this stuff. Like a lot of the stuff the left is doing is crazy. This COVID is not over crap is totally crazy. So I agree with you on that stuff. But like this anti-vaccine stuff is insane. And then I go, what about the excess deaths? That's another big thing I see these days, the excess death crap. Now, are there excess deaths that don't have to do with COVID in 2022 that we didn't have in 2019? Yes. Is that because the vaccine's killing people? No. Has the vaccine killed some people? Yes. Has it saved way more people than it's killed? Yes. That's the more important thing. And what about the excess deaths? How's it happening? Well, there's a good answer. During 2020 and 2021 as well, a lot of that time you could not go in for routine medical tests and treatments that were not urgent but necessary, such as things like a colonoscopy. And if you don't do these things in time, then it can end up killing you later. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing people that are dying because they did not get the treatments and tests that they should have gotten during times of COVID. So the criticism should be that policy that the hospitals didn't allow elective medical procedures. I can understand disallowing unnecessary procedures like cosmetic surgery, but to disallow elective procedures that are medically necessary was a huge mistake, and we're seeing excess deaths now because of that, plus people having unhealthy habits during that time when they were trapped at home, plus people abusing more drugs and alcohol during that time, plus people getting depressed and killing themselves. So that's what we're seeing now, even in the after effects of all that. So all of that combined is what the excess deaths are from. The vaccine, it's a very small part of it. Only a very small percentage of people died from the vaccine. It wasn't zero. Some people died from it, for sure. But you've got to look at the raw numbers. You have to look at how many did it save versus how many did it kill? And you can see this on that same graph I'm talking about, the same graph that makes the left look like fools when they're talking about COVID isn't over, and yet we're at the lowest death rate at all age groups by orders of magnitude. Oh, COVID isn't over. Well, then why is the death rate so low now compared to any time if it's not over? Why is almost nobody under 65 dying? Huh? If it's not over. Why is it profiling like the flu if it's not over the way you say it? So that makes the left look stupid, but it also will make the right look stupid if you look at the times where there's the big declines, like specifically January 2021, when it went from the highest death rate in the entire COVID pandemic to falling off a cliff by March. How did that happen? Oh, that's when they were vaccinating the old people. So how come when they started vaccinating the old people in early 2021, did the deaths fall off a cliff? How did that happen? How is there such a tremendous reduction of the deaths from COVID between January and March 2021? How did that happen? How did it happen to coincide with when they vaccinated the old people? Oh, yeah, because the vaccine was working. Now, yes, it wears off. But it still does you some good at that point as far as preventing death. And you can get boosters if you're one of the people who really needs it. So it did work. It didn't work as well as was first promoted, but it did work. So anyone who said it didn't work or it killed more people than it helped, they're full of crap. And again, that's where you look at the data and it shows you. So that graph is a great graph. You can make them yourself. 
because it will tell the whole story. It'll tell the story the vaccines worked. It'll tell the story that the vaccines wore off. It'll tell the story that after the vaccine started to wear off and also that Delta was more contagious, that we had another spike up of deaths that had a second peak in January 2022. And then another complete drop off because Omicron is far less dangerous. And then because of its contagiousness and less danger that now we're at the lowest rate ever. So conclusion, COVID is a fraction of the concern it once was, especially for people under 65. Anyone on the left still acting like we need to be in panic mode and have all these mandates, they're full of crap and they're doing it either because they're ignorant or doing it for political reasons and they're not being honest with you. And it's also proving that all this anti-vax stuff is a bunch of crap as well. And you don't have to say the vaccine's perfect. You don't have to say it killed nobody. You don't have to say there's no permanent effects from it. I think the denial of a lot of these things, the denial that the vaccine was causing some people problems, for example, interfering with the cycle of women's uh, periods, that they denied that for a long time when it was clear to women that it was happening. Like they take the vax and their cycle changes and they're alarmed by it. And the quote experts are saying oh no 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 we've studied this this doesn't happen and like a year later oh yeah yeah it kind of does mess with your cycle but it goes back well then why not say that in the first place like uh, tons of women are noticing this and they're denying it see that that's what makes people not trust what they're hearing from the experts and that's the problem you've got to be honest with people even the unpleasant stuff don't lie to them so they won't be afraid to take it just say yes it's going to mess up your period it's going to go back to normal don't worry about it and if people don't want to take it oh well you got to be honest just like I was saying with that whole thing with that rigged contest at the beginning of this show, if you lie to people about the situation, it's just going to make them resentful. It's going to have the opposite effect of what you think you're doing. So that's why you got to look at data and graphs and look at the truth. And if anybody challenges me, I say, okay, well then explain this. Why is this graph showing this? You can't argue with the cold, hard numbers. All right, so that's it. Didn't mean to do a COVID topic, but I did a COVID topic. Once again, the show ended up a bit longer than I thought it would, but overall, it wasn't as long as the others lately. Try to do the next one sooner, but I keep saying that and I don't do it sooner. But I had people complaining. I had people say that they wanted a show because they were used to it. They, They wanted to take a long drive somewhere and listen to the show or they had a flight or while they were exercising or grinding poker, I had a number of people say to me, they're out of material to listen to. I felt a little bit bad. I shouldn't because nobody pays me for this, but I felt a little bit bad. Okay, well, Trade Risky, uh, thank you for coming on this morning and this evening. Thank you. Did, I thought I heard Cal watch in the middle of the night, but... Yeah, he was there at one point. I was kind of just... No, he was there. Okay. Yeah, you, you, at one point, both of you were on, but not on. Yeah. That was nice. I had two co-hosts that uh, were unconscious. That was uh, only nah, on the I passed out. Yeah, only on this I show. Yeah. I, heard I don't know any other poker show. I don't know any other show, poker or not, that has uh, co-hosts that are unconscious a lot of the time. But we we do. That's that's a hallmark of this show. I'm the I'm the only one who is always conscious on this show, or at least I pretend to be. 
I, I know, and I thought, Jeff, and I was listening on that Joe Ingram show, and you said, oh, you even have some, some listeners that listen to it to fall asleep. You could have even thrown in even have co-hosts. Yeah, I should have said that. I think I was embarrassed <laughs> to say it. I think I was ashamed. They're going to go, wait a minute, your co-hosts even fall asleep? I think that's an indictment of how interesting your show is. But, yeah, I, I do. I do have co-hosts that fall asleep. I have listeners that fall asleep. This, this is the sleeping show. This is what you use instead of uh, melatonin. If you want to fall asleep, it's a drug-free yeah, way to like fall every, asleep. Everybody listens to it in their subconscious, you know. Yeah, yeah, they, they, <laughs> yeah. They they listen and they don't know they're listening. They just wake up with the info. They go, "How do I know this stuff now? I I don't remember ever listening to this or being told. I just suddenly know all these facts about the poker world. It just came to me. It came to me in a dream. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, thank you, Trader Risky, for coming on here and. I guess Kawa won't be up in time to join us again. Okay, brother. All right. Have a great Sunday. Any hot picks for today? Is there anybody you love? Oh, I. I you know what? That's the last thing I got to do before I. Uh, before I go to sleep, I, I got to make my uh, NFL picks. I haven't put enough time into this yet. I'm going to delve into it when the show's over. And. Uh, I got, you know, before we shut down, though, I, I got screwed by that stupid thing with the Buccaneers and the, the Saints. That was just so ugly. Mm. That was so ugly. Yeah. And how do we have two weekday games in a row that have 16-3 to three leads that get blown in the mid to late fourth quarter? How's that possible? That was amazing. The two consecutive well, games. Covered, so you had Tampa Bay? I mean, no, no, I had the money line. I had, I, had the, I had the money line. Oh, wow. Yeah, at plus 163, and I lost. Wow. I saw it happening, too. Like, as soon as they allowed that first touchdown, I'm like, okay, they're going to lose. Like, I, I just knew it. I could just tell they were just in a tailspin. And sure enough, they just immediately gave back the ball after getting it, and then there came uh, Tampa again, and suddenly Tom Brady was playing like he was 10 years younger, and... They pulled off that victory with three seconds left. I, I saw it happening. I, I kind of knew it was going to happen. And f fortunately with the uh, Raiders, I didn't have a bet on the side of that game. I just had the under, so that's still covered. So at least I won that one. But I still have an excellent record. My record right now, and this includes some of the money line, underlying, uh, underdog money line picks that I won as well, 41-17-1 uh, at the moment. So that's that's very good. And I'm like, 24 point something units up so that's good nice yeah i'm up by one game in my pool oh now. i was gonna ask you <laughs> so i was gonna ask you if you're still leading there tight. wow it's getting close yep so yeah you still got you can still gotta hold them off there got some time left here yep now does this run through the playoffs my... or is it does it uh end at the end no the... it just goes till the, it goes till the to the uh last week of a regular season Okay. Does this include college games too? It does. Okay. Well, good luck. I hope you pull it off there. Thank I'm not in any uh, competition. I've just been posting them on the Flying Stupidity Wagering thread. And you know, people kind of learn. They kind of learn, you know, if you want to win, you, you follow Dandruff's football picks, whether college or pro, you just ignore the basketball ones. <laughs> That's what people exactly. learn. Or go the other way. Yeah, or go the other way, right. You just bet against me in basketball and uh, bet with me on football. That would have worked very well this season. 
All right. Well, uh, thank you for trader, coming on Trader Risky. I hope you win this week. I, I'll, I can even text you what my uh, picks are once I looked in, look into this more closely. I, I have some ideas, but I, I don't want to commit to it until I look more closely at the end of the show. Yeah, I'd be curious, but I'm pretty. I think I'm firm. I might okay. move one of them, but all right, I'll text you what I got. Okay, very good. I'll talk to you later, right. Trader Risky. All right, cool. All right, brother. Bye. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm coming at you with the uh, Archie Bunker's place instead of All in the Family, the jazzy version by Ray Conniff. The other one is by Roger Kellaway. I don't know if Ray Conniff is still alive. I, I know Roger Kellaway is still alive, which is amazing. He composed that ending song of All in the Family in the 1960s. The guy's still here because he was young then. You would expect a composer from the 60s would have croaked a long time ago, but now the guy's still there. Well... If I wait two weeks, it'll be Christmas Eve, which I guess I could do because I'm a Jew. Christmas Eve doesn't mean anything to me. But I'll, I'll try to get it out before then. Now, I'm going to have to open a show with Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. I, I haven't done that yet. We're not quite at Christmas, but that's a Christmas tradition on this show to play Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year by Tiny Tim. And I'll give you an update on all the different ongoing stories we do here recently. The FTX thing, the bank theft by BetMGM and Global Payments, and anything else that needs an update. I don't think we're ever going to get the result of the investigation from Hustler Casino Live with the Robbie J. Blue thing. But if we do, it's going to be very underwhelming, so... I don't really care. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the show, the information I presented to you this week. I'm going to go pocket the very, very thick wad of cash I made from this show this week. I don't know what I'll do with all that money. Good night and shalom. Shalom.